And now, Roma Wines, R-O-M-A, Roma Wines present Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Robert Taylor in the house in Cypress Canyon, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense. Radio's outstanding theater of thrills is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Those better-tasting California wines enjoyed by more Americans than any other wine. For friendly entertaining, for delightful dining. Yes, right now, a glassful would be very pleasant, as Roma Wines bring you Robert Taylor, star of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's Undercurrent, in a remarkable tale of... Suspense! Merry Christmas, Jerry. How's the real estate business? Oh, kind of early with your greeting, aren't you, Sam? Well, I got to get them in sometime. I may not see you again until next Christmas. If this real estate racket gets any crazy, I'll be dead by next Christmas. <laughs> I'm glad you could get up here, though, Sam. What's on your mind, Jerry? Uh, you, you'll probably shoot me when you hear it, Sam, because I'm probably nuts. But, but doggone it, you're a detective and you're my pal, and I just had to tell somebody. Well, you sound like it's serious. That's just it. I, I don't know what it is, Sam, but... Now, listen, you you know we're agents for a group of houses up in Cypress Canyon. Mm -hmm. Those places that were started before the war never got finished. Oh, yeah. All they got in were the foundations, just mm -hmm. concrete and a couple of beams. Well, they've been finished now. In fact, I'm putting up the for rent on the last of them today. What do you want? Police protection from the mob? <laughs> listen, Sam, this house that I'm talking about, it's got a number now, uh, 2256. But before, when the men went back to work on it about three months ago... Well, they just started when the foreman on the job brought me a shoebox that he'd found up on a beam. And this box had a, a what do you call it, a, a manuscript in it, a story, kind of, all written out. Yeah. Well, he gave me the thing. I read it. I didn't think much about it. I put it in my desk. But the other day, and I happened to drive by there, I saw the number on the house and what the house looked like. I thought of this manuscript. And, well, I don't like it, that's all. There's something funny about it. What's funny about it? Well, I, Mind you, this thing was found in an unfinished house in Cypress Canyon. House that was only just started building. All it's, right. Uh, well, listen, Sam, I want to read it to you if you got the time, and you'll see what I mean. All right, shoot. <clears throat> well, here's how it begins. Uh, to whom it may concern, my reasons for setting down on paper what follows here will be abundantly clear. What follows here will be abundantly clear to anyone into whose possession it may fall. First, let me say that I'm a very ordinary person. My name is James A. Woods. I'm 35 years old. By profession, a chemical engineer. My wife, Ellen, was a schoolteacher when I met and married her in Indiana seven years ago. There's nothing in the past life of either one of us to suggest remotely any cause or reason for the dreadful thing that has invaded our lives. Our married life has been in no way different from that of millions of other average, reasonably happy, and congenial families. Three months ago... I was ordered by my firm to take charge of a rather minor project in Los Angeles, uh, Hollywood to be exact. The order was a sudden one. There'd been no time to secure accommodations, and conditions being what they are, the inevitable result was that until day before yesterday, we'd been living in the cramped quarters of one of those characteristic California motels. Needless to say, most of our spare time had been devoted to a search for something more permanent and comfortable, but 
The fruits of these efforts had been, financially and in every other way, a geometrical progression of discouragement. Until last Saturday afternoon, only four days before Christmas. We were driving into town on our way to a movie when Ellen saw it. Jim, look! What? That sign in front of that real estate office. Oh, yeah. But yeah. don't you see what it says? For rent, furnished, two-bedroom house, close in, immediate occupancy. Yeah, uh-huh. Aren't you going to stop? Oh, Ellen, you know a sign like that. It mean right out in plain sight in front of a real estate office. Oh, yeah, but Jim... Either they want $600 a month... We'll and... never know until we ask. Well, if it's any good at all, there are probably 50 people fighting for it right back there now. Well, honey, there's no harm in trying. Now, is there? You really want to go back? Oh, it's probably foolish, but what can we lose? Okay. Oh, darling, come on, cheer up. How do you know? Maybe our luck's changed. Maybe fate's going to give us a nice new house for a Christmas present. Come in. Oh, uh... We're sorry to bother you, but we just happened to see that for rent sign outside. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, I hung it outside just this minute. Is... is the house available? Why, sure, sure it is. Uh, let me introduce myself. My name is James A. Woods, and this is my wife, Ellen. How to do? Wow. Looks like it's fixing to rain. Yes, so it does, doesn't it? Well, it was one of those things. The real estate agent had just been authorized to rent the place by mail that morning, and he'd hardly had time to look at it himself and put up his sign when we drove up. It was just an ordinary little California house about halfway up Cypress Canyon, number 2256. Just an ordinary, undistinguished little house. The agent didn't know much about it. Construction on it had been stopped by the war, and it had just been completed and furnished lately. Been vacant while somebody's estate was being settled, and... Now it was owned by a bank in Sacramento. Of course, we didn't... We didn't got this key in the mail along with the authorization to rent. Only one there is. Of course, you can have duplicates made. Yeah, seems to stick a little. Oh, no, there it is. Doesn't sound as though that door had ever been opened. Well, a little oil on the hinges will fix that all right. Oh, sure. Now, now here's your living room. Furniture's a little dusty, of course. You've got to expect that. It's good furniture, though, you see? Benson Brothers. Yes, uh-huh. Now, over here's a little den. Panel, you see? Radio, fireplace. Really a very attractive little room, particularly for a man. Uh-huh, yep. Now, the, the bedroom's off the living room here. Everything's all on one floor, you understand? Uh-huh. It's uh, quite nice, I think. Yes, uh-huh. You can see you get the morning sun here. There's a view of the canyon through these front windows. we got cross ventilation. That's about all there was to it. It wasn't the best place in the world. It was small and badly built, but what would you have done? We took it with as little inspection as that. It was the Saturday before Christmas. And the very same evening, we were struggling up the steps from the road with suitcases and boxes and armloads of clothes and... All the endless bric-a-brac that people collect and never know they have until they move. Ellen began unpacking, and I began moving things around and taking the worst of the pictures off the wall, doing all the little things that everybody does when they move into a new place and try to give it something of their own Don't personality. Don't be such a sourpuss. You know, it's a roof over our heads for Christmas. That's more than we ever thought we'd get, isn't it? Now, what in the world are we going to do with those two pictures? Why don't we just leave them where they are? Jim, we can't. They're too awful. 
Well, all right, put them in the closet then. I can't. Both the closets are jammed full. No, I mean the other one in the little alcove off the den. At least there's a door there. I suppose it's a closet. Yeah. I don't know. That isn't a commentary on the housing problem, huh? A woman moving into a house without even knowing where all the closets are. Take the pictures down, will you, honey? Bring them in here. Okay, okay. All right. Guess you'll have to help me with this door. I can't get it open. Let me see it. Well, of course you can, silly. It's locked. Where are those keys we found in the desk? Mm. Here they are. Mm. No, not this one. Sure, this one won't work. No, feels like an awful solid door for a closet. Oh, and that's one solid door in the house. No, this one won't do it either. Well, we'll just have to get a locksmith up here on Monday. I'll put the pictures behind the desk, okay? Yeah, yeah, all right. Jim, if you could just help me move this armchair, huh? Oh, Ellen, will you let it go until tomorrow? You know what time it is? Oh, but honey, I'd like to get the place looking just a yeah, little bit. Yeah, but it's bit. almost midnight. In fact, it's it's exactly... What was that? <laughs> Tomcat, I guess, out in the brush somewhere. Sounded near. <laughs> oh, hope that doesn't go on all night. Well, there's much we can do about it. Come on, Ellen, I'm dead tired. All right, Jim, all right. Where'd you put the toothpaste, honey? It's right in the medicine cabinet. Oh, yeah. Jim, we ought to get some firewood tomorrow. You know a fire in that living room would make all the difference Make's in the world. Cab, Sunday. Well, Monday, then. Jim, I think red curtains are what we need, don't you? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, just at least for the living room. Anyway, the ones in there now have just got to come down. Yeah, I suppose they do. What do you think of red? Well, I guess it's all... Jim... Some tomcat. Jim, it, it sounded in the house. Oh, now, how could it be in the house, Ellen? We've been over every inch of the house. Except the closet. Now, how could a cat or anything else be in the closet that's been locked up for over a year? Oh, I don't know. It's... Yeah, it's probably under the house. A wildcat or mountain lion or something. I hear they have them in California. Jim, I don't like well, it. Well, neither do I like it, but there's nothing we can do about it tonight. Well, maybe we ought to call somebody, the police or oh, some neighbor. Oh, don't neighbors. be silly, Ellen. You act like a kid. Come on, let's go to bed, huh? Well, all right, I suppose it is silly. Jimmy, did you lock the door? Yeah, yeah. Can I turn out the lights now? Yeah, all right. Good night, Ellen. Sleep tight. Good night, Jim. I don't know what time it was, perhaps an hour, perhaps only a half hour later. My mind was in that hazy borderland between sleep and a dream that's still part of consciousness. <laughs> then I was awake. <laughs> Ellen, are you all right? Yes. Did you have a nightmare or something? No. I heard it too. Well, that didn't sound like any cat. Put on the light. Yeah. It, it seemed to be... Out there, Jim, in the house somewhere. I'm going to look into this. Jim, you be careful. Come on. Where's, where's my shotgun? In the den, I think. Jim. What? There. There's something wet. What? Wet? Running from under the closet door. Sticky. Hey, Ellen, don't. Don't touch it. I had to. Jim, it's blood. For suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Robert Taylor in the house in Cypress Canyon. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, 
Suspense. Between the acts of suspense, this is Ken Niles for Roma Wines. These days before Christmas are busy ones indeed, yet smart hostesses everywhere find time for shopping and distinguished home entertaining later. The secret? Magnificent Grand Estate Wines. Presented by Roma, America's greatest vintner, Grand Estate Wines add distinction to your hospitality on a moment's notice. Make your holiday welcome, effortless, and in perfect taste. The brilliant clarity, full fragrance, and mellow taste of Grand Estate Wines please discriminating people everywhere. For Grand Estate Wines, limited bottlings by Roma are born of choicest grapes, then patiently guided to superb taste richness by Roma Vintner skill, necessary time, and America's finest winemaking resources. Delight your guests with Grand Estate California Wines for entertaining... Medium Sherry, Ruby Port, or Golden Muscatel. For dining, Burgundy or Sauterne. So insist on Grand Estate Wines and enjoy the crowning achievement of Vintner skill. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Robert Taylor as James A. Woods with Kathy Lewis as his wife Ellen in the house in Cypress Canyon. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. not be too difficult to understand from the foregoing why I've taken the pains to set down in writing the events related here. To find in one's newly rented house a closet which cannot be opened is in itself certainly no great cause for alarm. But to be awakened in the stillness of the night by unearthly cries within that house, to find oozing from under that closet door something that is unquestionably blood, that's another matter. Perhaps others might have been braver than we. Suffice it only to say that we got out of the house in something very close to a panic and only returned when we had the moral support of two stalwart Los Angeles policemen. You uh, just moved in here, you say? That's right, officer. You can, you can see we're still unpacking. And the place has been empty right along before that? Yeah, I, I don't know much about that part of it. You could check all that with the real estate agent, though. Well, uh, <clears throat> where is this closet? Oh, it's it's right in here, officer. And and the blood, the blood is... Where? Where's the blood? Jim? Officer, I, I swear to you, there was blood on the floor less than an hour ago. I, I saw it. Uh-huh. It was running out from under that door. We heard that noise, and we got up, and then we saw it. The, the door was locked. Locked, huh? Oh, no, I... Well, it seems to be all right now. Hey, uh, you folks aren't trying to be funny, are you? Is, isn't there anything in it? No, ma'am, there is not. Look, officer, we're reputable people. You can call my firm. They'll tell you all about me. There's nothing wrong with this closet. Walls are solid, no trapdoors. You think I'm lying? I didn't say that, mister. Oh, you probably did hear some sort of a noise, and you got a little panicky, and... What, uh, what about the blood? It, it got on my hand. It isn't there now, is it? Yes. Where? I, I feel it. <laughs> now, you folks, just take it easy. You know, you're liable to hear all kinds of noises up in these canyons at night. You're uh, from the east, you say? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, officer. Ah, oh, that's all right. That's all right. If you have any real trouble, call on us any time. All right. Well, good night. Good night. Good night. Hey, 
<laughs> you ought to have this door fixed. That's enough to scare you. Yeah, we're uh, we're going to have it fixed. We didn't say much about it after that. There wasn't much that could be said. The next day, I went down to a lot and bought a little Christmas tree and some trimmings, and we tried to pretend we were cheerful, but there was an uneasiness between us that had never been there before. Ellen seemed tired and listless. Several times during the day, I noticed her washing her hands with a, with a brush, scrubbing the one that had touched the blood. That night, we each took a sleeping pill and went to bed. Sometime after midnight, when I was suddenly wide awake and staring into the darkness. In some way, I, I knew at once and instinctively what had awakened me. Ellen was not in her bed nor in the room. The nameless thing I feared gripped at my heart until I could scarcely breathe. I opened the bedroom door and started through the house, putting on every light that I could find. There was not much to search, but I searched thoroughly. The, the living room, the kitchen, bathroom, den, even the garage... And all the time, the dread of looking where I knew at last I must look. For I think I knew from the very first time where I'd find her. It must have been a full minute that I stood before that closet door. Then, I opened it. She stood there rigid, her arms at her sides, her fingers extended like claws. Her hair was over her face, her eyes stared out of it. Her lips were drawn back in a grin like an animal at bay. For a moment, I was frozen with the horror of it. I stretched out my hand. Very deliberately, she turned her head and sunk her teeth until they met into the flesh of my forearm. I'd raised my hand to strike at her, but already she'd relaxed her hold and gone utterly limp. She would have fallen unless I'd caught her. I carried her into the bedroom and laid her on the bed. Strangely, at that moment, my only thought was how I might revive her. Until I saw that it was... It was not a faint, but a sleep that she'd fallen into. Sleep as deep and heavy as though she'd been drugged. And so I left her. But for me, that night, there was no sleep. Jim? Yes, Ellen? Oh, I, I got a little restless. I'd make some coffee. Oh. Oh. I had the most wonderful sleep. And I feel so rested. Do you? Mm-hmm. Jim. What? What's the matter with your arm? Oh, I I just heard it. Well, honey, it's it's terribly swollen. Let me see it. No, it, it's all right, Ellen. Oh, it isn't all right. You've got to see Dr. Wesley right away. Sure, I, I will. No, I now, will. you promised me, Jim, that you'll go the first thing this morning. How'd it happen? Why, oh, uh, th th there was a dog. A dog? Yeah, I, I heard him trying to chew through the screen door. I went out to chase him away, and he bit me. Well, you mean there was all that racket, and I didn't even wake up? No, Ellen, you, you didn't even wake up. It was clear to me that Ellen knew nothing of what had transpired the night before. I went to my office that morning and 
made a pretense of going over routine business if only to restore my mind to some semblance of calm by the sight and sound of common, familiar things. Pain in my arm had become a persistent, dull throbbing. I made a late appointment with Dr. Wesley. He treated my arm with something of an arched eyebrow, and he said, Well, I've never seen anything quite like it before. That is such a rapid onset of infection. It was dark when I left his office. I hadn't realized it was so late. Driving home my car seemed seemed sluggish until I saw the needle on the dashboard and realized that I was pushing it to the utmost of its speed. I was racing home to prevent prevent something before it was too late, before the darkness had conspired against me. Somehow I already knew with certainty that it was the darkness and the night that I had to fear. The curves of the canyon seemed endless. And then the cold fear leaped up inside me. My house, too, was dark. I went slowly up the stone steps from the road, looking, praying for some sign of light or life. There was none. The house was empty. Ellen was gone. I I looked with the same self-torturing thoroughness. And in that closet, first of all, knowing as I did so that it was hopeless. And so, alone in that empty house, I waited, powerless and helpless now, deadened in thought and will, empty as the house itself, save only for the overwhelming sense of a terrible foreboding. For some time in the early hours of the morning, I snapped on the radio, shortwave. Why? Surely a minor question now. I only know that I did, and then I heard it. Car 58, car 58, go to Laurel Canyon, the 4,000 block. A report that a man has been injured or attacked. Condition thought to be critical. Ambulance will follow. That is all. I was there almost before the police, edging my way through the little crowd, staring down at the man lying there in his white uniform under the street light. Yeah, the milkman, poor guy. I heard him scream, but when I got here, just like this, it's all nothing right, stand back, stand back. Please, please stand back. Well, you again. I, I heard it on the radio. I, I live just down the road. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Well, what happened? Well, take a look. Maybe you can tell us. He was dead. And he was lying on his back. And his throat had been torn out as though by the fangs of some wild animal. It is now Christmas Eve, or rather Christmas morning, for it's a little after midnight. I've been waiting here, here in the stillness of this empty house for nearly 24 hours, waiting for the end. Already once tonight I've heard that dreadful wailing cry somewhere in the hills. I've nailed up the closet door, but that I I know was childish and useless. My arm is swollen and turning black, but that's nothing. It's another end that I foresee, as, as surely as other men foresee the rising of the sun. I hear the cry again. It's nearer now. I shall leave these notes in a sealed envelope and put it in a shoebox, in the hope that someone will give credence to these dark and terrible events, if indeed such nameless horrors can ever yield to mortal understanding. <laughs> As for myself, I feel no longer any fear or even sorrow. Only a desire that the end and the thing that I must do may come soon. 
And it will be soon, I know. Yes. But there is someone at the door. Someone at the door. Huh? What do you make of it, Sam? <laughs> it's quite a yarn. But what of it? That's what I thought. Now, listen, that's not quite all of it. Huh? Clip to it's a newspaper clip. Listen. Hollywood, December the 26th. Police reported what was apparently a case of murder and suicide in Cypress Canyon sometime in the early hours of the morning. The victims were James A. Woods, a chemical engineer, and his wife, Ellen. Preliminary investigation indicates that Mrs. Woods was killed by the blast of a shotgun in the hands of her husband, who then turned the weapon upon himself. That she fought desperately for her life, however, was evidenced by the disorder of the room and the severe lacerations inflicted upon her husband about the neck and arms. This is the second tragedy to be reported in Cypress Canyon within 24 hours, the other being the unexplained death of Frank Polanski, a milkman. Well, no such murders or whatever they were ever occurred, if that's what's worrying you. The clipping, one of you. have those things printed up, you know. No, no, it's not that, Sam. That story was found in an unfinished house in Cypress Canyon. No number, no nothing, just a framework. Uh-huh. Now that house is finished. When I drove by it today... But that's what stopped me, Sam, because it all fits. Now that it's finished, it is the house in the story, the same construction, the same vines and creepers on the lawn, even the same number. So what? A guy who knows roughly what this house is going to be like writes a yarn and loses it or something. Did he know the place was going to be listed for rental today, the Saturday before Christmas? <laughs> oh, Jerry, coincidence. Two bits you find the guy next door is a ghost story writer or something, and he's been wondering for a year what happened to that thing he wrote. Okay. Okay, coincidence. <laughs> Well, I, I'm sorry I bothered you, Sam. <laughs> Don't be silly. I liked it. It's a good yarn. Uh, that the uh, for rent sign you were talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to put it up outside now. Uh-huh. Well, so long, Jerry, and Merry Christmas again. No, well, thanks, Sam. <laughs> I guess I was kind of silly, all right. <laughs> Listen, when a guy named uh, whatever it is, Woods, with a wife named Ellen, comes in to rent that place from you, then you can start worrying. <laughs> yeah. Well, so long, Sam. So long, Jerry. Come in. Oh, we're sorry to bother you, but we just happened to see that for rent sign outside. Yeah, I hung it out just this minute. Is... is the house available? Oh, sure, sure it is. Let me introduce myself. My name is James A. Woods, and this is my wife, Ellen. How do Wow. Looks like it's fixing to... Yes, it does, doesn't it? Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A, Roma Wines, selected for your pleasure from the world's greatest reserves of fine wines.
Tonight's show marks the third birthday of Suspense on the Air. And this is Ken Niles asking our star of the evening, Robert Taylor, to help us celebrate. Why didn't you tell me before, Ken? If I'd only known, I'd have baked a cake. Well, Bob, all suspense parties are surprise parties. As an old hand on suspense, uh, you know that in our plays, the tables are usually turned on the star. So tonight, although it's our birthday, we're going to give you a present. Here it is, a gift basket of Grand Estate California wines from Roma, America's greatest vintner, to our distinguished anniversary guest, Robert Taylor. Thanks, Ken. You turn a nice table. And you can set a nice table with Grand Estate Burgundy in your basket, Bob. For Grand Estate Burgundy means rare dining pleasure adds memorable distinction to holiday dinner. Even everyday meals are outstanding in taste when Grand Estate Burgundy is served. Yes, all Grand Estate wines presented by Roma are limited bottlings of outstanding taste excellence. Well, that I know about Grand Estate wines, Ken. But did you know that for Grand Estate wines, Roma selects only the choicest grapes? Then the ancient skill of Roma master vintners, necessary time, and America's finest winemaking resources guide the cuvee of this grape treasure to rich taste luxury. That's why discriminating wine users everywhere look to grand estate wines as the crowning achievement of vintner skill. Reason enough. And now, Ken, who's all set to star on Suspense next Thursday? It's that very wonderful actress and wonderful girl, Miss Susan Peters. Susan will appear as a young lady in straitened circumstances who finds herself mistaken for a very rich young lady and who is forced into continuing the deception with murder as a result. Well, I'll certainly make it a point to listen. And uh, before I go, I'd like to thank this really great company of actors who have played with me tonight, and particularly Kathy Lewis, who played Ellen. Thank you, Bob. Tonight's original suspense play was written by Robert L. Richards. Next Thursday, same time, you will hear Miss Susan Peters as star of Suspense. Produced by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. high on the frozen slopes of a great mountain, terrified and caught in a blizzard, while the thing for which you've been hunting has suddenly become the hunter. And if it finds you, then for you and your companions, there can be no escape. So listen now as Escape brings you Anthony Ellis's exciting story, The Abominable Snowman.
Our first bit of luck was when we hired our Sherpa guide, Nasang. That was in Darjeeling. When I told Nasang what we were after, he hesitated for a moment. And then he said, The Saibs have not come to climb Shomolongma? Oh, no. We're a little late for that. It's already been done. The other two Saibs and myself are here for the reason I told you. Meto Kangmi? That's right. The Saibs always hire me to climb the mountain with them. But never this. Are you afraid of them? I have seen one. You've seen one? Yes, many of us have seen them. Uh, wait a minute. Alan. Yeah? What's that? I'm interviewing a Sherpa in here. He says he's seen one of the things. Hey. Where's Frank? Uh, went out to get some tobacco. Yeah. All right, come on in. I think this is our man. All right. Nasang, this is Mr. Ferris. Sab? Hello, Nasang. Nasang was telling me about what he'd seen. Go ahead, Nasang. It has a face that is evil. And when it saw me, it uttered a strange cry and bounded away. Sometimes leaping, sometimes running with great strides. It was dusk. And after a moment, I lost sight of it in the snow. Where were you? With the French expedition. It was at 19,000 feet on Shomolungma. How far were you from it? 30 feet, uh, perhaps 35. You're sure it wasn't an ape? I am sure. There is no ape in the Himalaya to make such a track. What about bears? This too I have been asked. But does a bear walk always upon its hind legs? Well, that's enough for me. Alan? Yeah, he'll do. Yeah. But if you want the job, Nasang, you're hired. You are going to try to capture a yeti? Yes. It will be a difficult thing. But I will serve with you. Yeti, wild man, Netokangmi, abominable snowman. That's the name the natives had for the things, and Alan Ferris, Frank Davis, and I were going to try to get one. We'd all done some climbing, but climbing was secondary here. Expeditions since the beginning of the 20th century had heard of the abominable snowman, observed their tracks, and one or two white men claimed to have seen them. Great ape, bear, monkey, wild men... We didn't know, but we were going to find out. Four weeks later, we were in the Rongbuk Valley for our interview at the monastery with the Lama. The journey from our base had been uneventful. The weather was good and our spirits were high. From the Lama's window, we could see the great peak of Everest in the distance. Why, gentlemen, do you desire to capture Little Kang? Because, sir, we believe it will be an invaluable aid in our prehistoric research. That is, if these things are in any way human. And for this reason, then, you have formed the expedition? Yes. You are all familiar with climbing? Yes, we are. You would need to be. The Yeti move at high places. Dangerous places, so my people tell me. Also, the monsoons are arriving in a short time. I understand that. Then do we have your permission to investigate in the valley and beyond? You have my permission. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. There is one point, however, 
I must request that no wild animal or being in this valley be shot. Our religion does not allow. We'll respect your wishes, sir. Now, may I ask you one more thing? Of course, my son. Do you believe in the existence of Metokangli? I myself have never seen them, but I know that they live here, above the valley, on the goddess mother of the world. It is also true that at least five, and possibly more, inhabit the upper Rongbuk and its glaciers. Thank you. Do you have porters? Our guide Nasang is hiring them now. Yeah. I trust that he meets with good fortune. The old man, with great dignity, bowed slightly to us and we were dismissed. But I thought I saw the shadow of a smile on his lips as he turned away. And it wasn't long before I found out why. Nasang returned to us in our quarters and his face warned of bad news. Sir, I am unable to hire any porters. Why not? They know the purpose of the expedition. They will not go. Why? They are afraid. Of the snowmen? Yes. They live in peace with them. They wish no trouble. They are afraid. <sighs> well, all right. It'll be rough, but we can't waste time talking them into it. The monsoons will be coming in a couple of weeks. It's not the same as climbing, Everest. We'll travel light, just the four of us. Set up a base and start hunting. All right with you, fellows? Yeah, yeah sure. Nasang? I will go with you. I am not afraid. Good. Well, let's take a look at the map. Now, we'll each carry a capacity load. We should be able to make this point below the glacier in two days. That's 16,000 feet. Mm. And if our abominable snowmen are in the vicinity, we've got two weeks to find them. When do we start? Tomorrow. Good. Well, that's it. Um, Paul? Yes, Frank? Uh, one thing. What do the natives mean when they say they don't want any trouble with the things? Uh, superstition, probably. Oh, no, sir. It is not superstition. It is because the Yeti are cannibals. That is why the porters are afraid. The weather turned ugly the day we left the village. A cold Tibetan wind blew down from the west, and with our heavy packs it took us much longer than we'd thought to arrive at the point just below the Rongbuk Glacier. We set up our camp and made ourselves as comfortable as we could. The next morning wasn't so bad. There was a heavy overcast, a promise of snow, and the peak of Everest looming over us was shrouded in clouds. The four of us sat in the tent looking at our charts and drinking hot tea. I figure it'd be easiest if we started at the East Glacier. It's only about three miles from here, and with the weather as stinking as it is, we won't run too much of a risk. What do you think, Paul? Well, that sounds all right. What do you say we split up? Uh, you and Nasang, Alan and me. We'll work up on either side of the ridge, here. And if we spot any tracks, fire two shots. Hmm? Yeah, good enough. Now, the big thing, though, no matter what... Don't shoot at the thing if you do see it. Okay? Okay. All right. If we lose touch with each other, we'll meet back here at five. All right, let's get going. Hey, 
We'd left the base at six that morning, and the going was rough. Alan was pretty well shot by the time we got to the 17,000-foot mark. He was having a tough time breathing, and the wind had come up again. And with it, a fine, powdery snow that blinded and choked us. Hey, I, I, I gotta take five. All right. Here, move over here. Might cut some of the wind. Oh. Oh. Oh, that's better. Well, we might as well start back for the base. We couldn't see anything in this anyhow. You know, right now, I don't care whether we do or not. Uh, this is good weather. Wait until the monsoon starts. No, no, not me. Oh, I'm cold. I've never been so cold in all my life. We stayed in the half-shelter of an overhang for ten minutes, and the wind was quieter and the snow had let up. I noticed that the tracks we'd made coming into the shelter were gone now, but we didn't have any worry finding our way back. I figured that Frank and Nassang had met pretty much the same thing on their side of the ridge, and we'd meet them at the base. So Alan and I picked ourselves up and started off. Boy, I, I thought I was in pretty good shape, but up here... Boy, I'm nothing. Oh, Paul, I'm tired again. We'll just take it easy going down. You haven't got frostbite, have you? No. No, not yet, but... What? The left there. Yeah. They're, they're not our tracks, are they? Not unless you took your boots off on the way up. Must have... Just passed by. It must have seen us. Yeah. Come on. We were looking at a set of tracks newly made in the fresh snow. And they'd passed so close to our shelter that the thing must have known we were there. They weren't the tracks of a bear or an ape, but more like a splay-footed naked foot. The tracks of the abominable snowman. We will return to escape in just a moment, but first, 30 million school children make their way back to class this year. There are just 10 million too many for existing school facilities. Contact Better Schools to West 45th Street, New York 19, for information on ending this menace to America's educational standards. And now, back to escape. began to follow the tracks, and for a while, perhaps 150 yards, it was easy. And then the thing made a leftward traverse down a deep slope. We could see the prince clearly, angling with a sidestep, as sure-footed as a mountain goat, except that it was walking on two legs. This way, Paul. Take it easy, Alan. Get, 
Getting steeper. Boy, that thing sure can climb. Hold up. Alla. I think they... Hold up. And he dropped out of sight over the lip of the crevasse. We weren't roped together. I got as close as I dared to the edge. The loose snow crumbled away from my outstretched body. And I looked down into the blue-black darkness below, falling away into nothingness. He was gone. Finished. All I could think of was the noise he'd made when he went over. Surprised, angry, then silence. The crevasse might have been 500 feet or 5,000. Snow started to fall again. Big flakes this time and wet. I stood up. And across the gap 20 feet away, I saw the tracks of the thing continuing on and away until they became lost in the blank whiteness of the glacier. It had jumped and landed still upright on the opposite side. I went back to the base. And an hour later, Frank and Nassang returned. I told them. And we were quiet for a long time. Then... Paul, are we going out again tomorrow? Why not? I just wanted to. We should go back. It is an omen. I tell you, he was going too fast. He didn't have a chance to see the crevasse. That's not an omen. It's bad sense. Metokong, me cannot be caught. We'll catch him. Uh, but there are only three of us. If we had a few more men... I tell you, the thing was so close that we'd, if we'd looked up at the right time, we'd have seen it. You think I'm going to give up now? Next time we'll get it. There was no chance to get Alan out. Huh? No. You think if we went back... We'd... Listen, you think I don't want to? He's gone. I tried, but he's gone. Okay. Oh, okay. Wish that wind had let up. Maybe by morning. We'll try again tomorrow. It was cold that night, and somehow colder because Alan was gone. I heard Frank tossing around, and I knew he was thinking about... A body broken and lonely, lost somewhere in a deep and dark place. In the morning, the three of us packed our gear, camera, food. It was a light pack. We started up again. This time to a crest above the ridge. It was tougher than it looked, and we weren't even halfway up before we had to rest. But as I looked to the west, I saw clouds boiling up. Not white, but somber, threatening. And below... The valley looked grim, ugly gray, and then the sun was gone, and we kept on going up, and then I had a strange feeling. It was nothing I could see, nothing I could hear, only a sensation of being watched, followed. Wait a minute. See something? No. I, I have felt it too, Saib. Something following us? Yes, it is Metukongmi. How do you know? It can be nothing else. At this height, there is nothing else that lives. Maybe it's curious. No, don't turn around, uh, Frank. Listen. When we get up to the crest, you two flop down. Stay in sight of the slope here. What are you going to do? Move around the hump and watch. If it thinks we're all together, it may come close enough to give us a chance to get it. You better watch your step. It looks nasty. I will. Now, come on. It took us another 15 minutes to get up to the crest, and then Frank and Nassang hunched down to rest 
They were in clear view of the slope we just ascended. I moved back out of sight and made my way toward the hump, which backed a long shelf on the north side of the crest. In a couple of minutes, I lost sight of them and of the slope. The wind had increased and the clouds had spread now to become an iron-gray canopy over the mountain. It was getting colder again. I don't think it took over five minutes to reach my lookout point. And when I did, I had a perfect view of the ground we'd covered. There was nothing there. The men were out of sight. And I waited. A minute. Two. There was nothing. Until... It came, carried on the wind, a cry, and then shots. I scrambled back to where I'd left them. And when I got there... When I got there... Frank was lying on his back. And I couldn't look at what was left of his face. There were terrible deep rents in his clothing, and... He was dead. The song lay huddled a few feet beyond, a gun in his hand. Sir? What is it? What? Metokang me. Came from behind us. Before I could draw the gun, it has killed. Then it sprang at me. It is strong, Saib, with the strength of ten men. All right. All right, can you sit up? My leg, it struck at me, my leg, broken. I shot at it, but I missed. It jumped away and was gone. Okay. We'll have to figure out a way to get you down. We were four hours from camp, and with Nassang practically helpless, it could well be four days or never. I buried Frank where he was lying, then began to work down the slope. Nassang was in great pain. He half slid and crawled as best he could. That part of it wasn't too bad. Then we were at the bottom, and there was a ledge to climb. It took well over two hours to do that, and we still had three miles of difficult terrain to cover. The stops became more frequent. Stop. Leave me here. Go back. No. My leg is frozen. There is no feeling anymore. I shall not live much longer. Don't be a fool. After a rest, you'll be able to go on. Soon the night comes. If we are both caught here, we both die. There will be snow, much snow. Leave me, sir. No, we're going back together. Please, let me sleep. Let me sleep here. I cannot go on. You've got to, Nassan. No. No more. The ridge is only about a half mile. From there, it won't be too bad. No. No, let me stay. Nassan. Let me sleep. No. No, no. come on, Nassan. Come on, you're not going to sleep. Sam, You'll Sam, be all right. Behind you, Sam. I turned, and for an instant, I saw it outlined against the snow, crouching of medium height. It was covered with thick hair. The face was reddish and bare. A semi-human face. And it was not an ape. The thing made a tremendous leap and was gone, but I'd hit it. I knew I hit it. But the Kangmi, that was he. Did you kill it? No, I don't think so. Then it will be back. It has tasted blood. You must leave me. No, get up. Get up, come on. Let's go. 
Sorry, sir. Will you ask the Lama to make a prayer for me? Sure. Sure I will, Masang, but... Give my pay to my wife in Darjeeling. I'm sorry, sir. I die. Masang. Masang. darkness came, and with its shadows and the snow, every hillock mound became the thing, motionless, waiting. In my mind, I kept seeing it, its long arms, powerful, and the dreadful claws it must have possessed. I carried my gun in my gloved hand, but I knew that I couldn't fire it unless I was barehanded, and that meant my hand would freeze to the gun. And then suddenly, I felt myself slipping. It was a short incline, but when I reached the bottom, the gun was gone. I'd lost it. I've got to find it. I've got to find it. And I saw a glint of metal in the snow ten feet away. And at the same time, above me at the top of the bank, the thing, it stood swaying a little, looking down at me. I moved slowly. Slowly inch my way toward the gun. And as I drew closer, I kept my eyes looking up. But it didn't move, only stared down at me. And I thought I saw its little eyes glittering. And I thought, if the gun's frozen now, if it's frozen, doesn't fire. And I was nearer to it, near enough to take off my glove. But that moment in which I'd have to bend to pick it up, that's when it would leap down at me, tear my throat out, tear and... I had the gun and I pulled the trigger. And it lay there, strange and terrifying, its blood staining the snow. And it looked at me. Looked at me. Until the sound died away. It was dead, but the eyes kept on staring. It must have been the shots that loosened the snow and ice on the ridge above. I heard the sound, and I ran, ran! Passed me and swept on down toward the valley, the thunder of it dying in the distance. And when I went back, there was nothing there. It was buried somewhere under tons of snow. I made my way back to the Rongbuk village 
I don't remember how. I didn't remember anything for two weeks after. But I'm alive. And I'm not going back there again. That's all I know. Or want to know. About the abominable snowmen. Escape has brought you The Abominable Snowman, written and directed by Anthony Ellis, starring William Conrad as Lane. Featured in the cast were Anthony Barrett, High Everback, Jack Crucian, and Edgar Barrier. The special music for Escape was composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Next week... You are a passenger aboard a submarine making its last peaceful voyage across the sea. While unknown to you, the captain has a plan, which, if it succeeds, will mean for you and the entire crew a fate from which there can be no escape. So listen next week, when escape will bring you Marion Mosner... And Francis Rosenwald's exciting story, The Log. You're headed in the right direction. The station is right. The network is right, too. Check all timepieces, and then check your local radio schedule. Let's have no slip-ups. Everybody wants to hear the Jack Benny Show right from the beginning, when it returns to CBS Radio tonight. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. Plus, science fiction adventures from the world of tomorrow, the years beyond 2000 A.D. 2000 Plus presents The Insect.
wonderful news, darling. It means I'll probably get that research appointment at the university. Oh, I can hardly believe it, George. Oh, here's the telegraph of the Dean of Science himself. I'll take the jet plane in about two hours and be there in plenty of time for my meeting this afternoon. I know. I'll get a bottle of champagne and we'll celebrate a dinner tonight. Well, that's nice, but <laughs> I'm not sure I'll be home for dinner. Oh. The meeting may go on. Maybe I'll have to stay overnight, take the plane back in the morning. Well, then we'll have champagne for breakfast. Well, let's not hope too much. Hey, 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 I've got to gather my papers and things while I'm going to get to the airport in time. You'd better help me. In your laboratory? Oh, now, look. The wife of a budding scientific genius shouldn't act like that. But, George, I'm frightened when I go in there. Nonsense. They won't hurt you. Oh, no, I can't stand insects. That's why I stay out of your life. I've got to have help with these papers. What do you want me to do? Cancel the meeting because my wife is afraid of the work I do? Oh, I'm sorry, darling. It just... All right, all right. I'll try to do it myself. Uh, don't be angry, George. If they were ordinary insects, tiny ones were... Maybe it would be different. Even with what I've done to them, they're not so big. So I've taken a spider, a house fly, and a wasp, and by means of my growth ray, I've made them larger. The spider still isn't any bigger than my fist. The house fly is about as large as a pack of cigarettes. The wasp no bigger than a golf ball. They're not giants. But they look so, so horrible when they're even that big. Easier to observe and study. That's why the university is interested in my work. With a long-term appointment and a grant to amplify the growth ray, maybe I can really increase the size of the insect. Imagine a fly as big as a horse. That would be some horse fly. Hey, that's a joke. All right, George. I'll help you. It's only the papers we're packing. You won't have to go near the insect cages. <laughs> Now, uh, hand me those uh, poisonous insects. That one there. Uh, this is? Right. Do you, do you have any poisonous ones in here now? Only Sam, the spider. He's in the glass cage by those books. I don't want to look. Maybe if you'd looked, you wouldn't have such ridiculous ideas. Sam is a nice guy. He just squats and stares. Looks like a wise old man. If I looked, I'd get sick. All those legs... Okay, okay. Now the notebook, please. Hey, 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 be careful. Why? Well, what's the matter? That machine is very delicate. You almost touched it. Oh, the growth ray? Uh huh. I don't want that running while I'm gone. Don't worry. I can't wait to get out of here. Uh, let's see now. Have I got everything? Mm, yep. Well, that does it. Come on. After you, meet Terra Stricken Beauty. You know, I hope when we get to the university, if I get the appointment, you'll keep your disgust of insects to yourself. A wife is supposed to build up her husband's work. Faculty wives do that all the time. George, don't argue with me now. I just can't help the way I feel. Sam should really be fed while I'm gone. Stop it! I'm not going in there. All right. All right. What about Pete the housefly? He's not poisonous. You feed your insects when you get home. Now, hurry up. George will be late. Sure. Well, goodbye. Oh, George, I, I don't want you to leave when you're annoyed like that. I'm sorry, darling. I really love you. But I love my insects, too. Just a minute. 
Martin. Here are the groceries you ordered. Oh, hello, Bill. Right in here. Okay. On the table? Uh-huh, please. Well, I hope the oranges are better this time than they were last. Oh, Mr. Ginkelheimer said to tell you that these oranges are swell. Well, I'll know when I squeeze them for breakfast. <laughs> oh, thank you, Bill. Oh, is uh, Mr. Martin home? Mr. Martin? Uh, no, he isn't, Bill. Why? Well, he was going to show me his bugs. Oh, you don't want to look at them. But they're dreadful. I find them very interesting. Mr. Martin said he'd take me into his lab today. That's why I delivered your order first. I was anxious to see them. Oh, Mr. Martin was called away suddenly. He got a telegram and had to leave almost at once. But you'll be home tomorrow. Tomorrow I've got to work at the other store, the one on North Street. Well, in a few days, then. The bugs will still be here, Bill. Mrs. Martin, would it be too much trouble if you let me peek at them? I never go into Mr. Martin's laboratory. I won't hurt anything. Just peek. I was kind of looking forward to oh, seeing them. Oh, it's a horrid place, Bill, that laboratory. Uh, you wait till Mr. Martin gets home. Sure, Mrs. Martin, if you say so. Well, don't look so glum. What you men see in those revolting creatures, I'll never know. They're scary. They're so big. I feel funny when I look at them. Then Mr. Martin explains about science and stuff, and it's really interesting. Would you like to be a scientist, Bill? I sure would. <laughs> well, I suppose I ought to encourage it. I, I won't take you in, but you can peek. You know where the door is. Oh, thanks, Mrs. Martin. Thanks very much. But don't touch anything. I won't. I better put these groceries away. Mrs. Martin, help! 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 Bill! Bill, what's the matter? the last time. I don't know. At least six feet high. What is it? Look at the eyes. Feelers out in front. Waving. Wings. It's got wings. It can fly at us. Kill us. Eat us. Get out of here. We must. We must get out of here. Yeah. Walk backwards. Keep your eyes on it. It looks like a like a moth. A giant moth. Watch it. If it flies to open it. Just sit here. 
watch it. Now, Mr. Martin, I'm very interested in your growth rate. As Dean of Science, I want to be certain that this university encourages brilliant young scholars who are experimenting in new fields of research. I understand, At sir. the same time, I must be satisfied that the research will be of fundamental value. Yes, sir. Now, suppose you talk for a while. Tell me about your work. Well, I have always been interested in the effect of environment on organisms. I narrow the environmental factors to universal conditions applicable to all organisms. Mm-hmm. For example, sir... Uh, air, temperature, humidity, light, and so forth. And then I approached each of these conditions from the point of view of its specific effects on organisms. I discovered that the presence or absence of light gave me the widest variance of reaction. Oh, excuse me. In what way the widest variance? In the effect on physical growth, change, adaptation. I see. You see, sir, because light is a general term, I broke its definition down into all known rays, infrared, ultraviolet, so forth, and studied reactions of organisms to those rays in every conceivable combination. Mm-hmm. Now, after two years, I evolved the theory that if certain rays could be combined electronically and concentrated on living organisms for specified periods of time, their growth would be greatly stimulated. And you have constructed such a machine? Yes, I have. The Electrodyna spectrum, the growth ray machine. Uh, what have you accomplished with it so far? I've multiplied the growth of certain insects many times. My present machine is small and homemade, and its power is not too great. But so far, I've increased the size of a fly to that of a pack of cigarettes. Mm. The size of a spider to that of my fist. Well, what kind of spider? A tarantula. Well, it's a very dangerous and poisonous insect to work with. Well, being a tropical spider, it might be more receptive to light. Its size has tripled. Tell me, Mr. Martin, what is the optimum increase in size that you've so far obtained? About eight times with the fly. The size increase uh, varies with the insects. There's a lot of research yet to be done. Yes, so I can see. Your work certainly excites the imagination. Think of your having the kind of equipment that will permit a 20, 50, 100, or even a thousand-fold increase in an insect's size. Imagine an insect large enough to attack and devour a human being. Imagine this university needing lion cages to contain its giant insects. Well, there's no limit to what new things we could learn about all manner of organisms with a growth rate. Not not just insects. Yes, that's right. Mr. Martin, I'd like you to stay on another few hours so that we can talk some more. I'd be very happy. Yeah, perhaps you'd like to phone your wife, but you'll be a bit late. Thank you, sir. You can use the phone in the other office. And Mr. Martin. Yes. When she asks you how everything's going, you tell her that it's going just fine. <laughs> sitting there, looking at us. The most horrible thing I've ever seen. Six feet high. Those giant wings. How does it get here, Mrs. Martin? Somehow the growth ray must have begun working. It gives off a slight glow. The moth must have seen it. Flown toward it. It must have seen us. Those eyes. They're big as dinner plates. Maybe it's swimming. Then it will come toward us. It'll try to kill us. Don't, Bill. Don't say that. Crouch down, Lord. This chair protects us. We've got to get out of here. 
the door's locked, but isn't there some other way out? Only the window. Behind the north. Yes, the window locked. I can't see the shade is drawn. Yes. Yes, the window is locked. Gosh, if it would only fly to the other corner of the room. Then what would you do? Maybe I could run to the window, pull up the shade, unlock the window, get out and get help. Just leave me alone with it. The monstrous creature. Oh, no. What do we do? I don't know. When will Mr. Martin come home? This afternoon. Tonight. Maybe not until tomorrow. Huh. Listen. The phone. Maybe that's Mr. Martin calling. Yes. When you don't answer, maybe he'll come home. No. No, he'll think I'm out shopping or visiting. Mrs. Martin, look. The moth. It stopped moving its wings. It's looking right at us. At this corner. I'll bet it hears the telephone. It scares it. Do- but that must be George calling home. Why doesn't he realize something has happened? Why doesn't he call the neighbors or the police? Why doesn't he come home? Mrs. Martin, I think it's going to fly. What do we do? I don't know. It'll kill us. If it heard the phone, it'll hear us. When it flies, crouch down to get as much protection from the chair as possible. And scream. Yell. Anything to make noise. Okay. Okay, Mrs. Martin. Oh, the way it just there. Maybe. Maybe it won't fly. It The phone has stopped ringing. Yes, Bill. Yes. Let's be quiet. Like a nightmare being here. George, darling, you know I hated these insects. Yet you built a laboratory in our home. Home. A place with a room of terror. Why am I here? Why did things happen to trap me here? Was it because I hated George's work? Was it because I refused to help him with these Mr. Martin, I am delighted to see you. The dean phoned and said you were coming over. 
I think I am the last member of the faculty committee who wants you to see. Oh, sit down, won't you? Thank you, Professor Buckley. Yes, I've been going all afternoon from one appointment to the other. And all of us are happy to talk with you. The dean is quite excited about your research, you know. Yes, I'm very pleased about that. Uh, Professor Buckley, I hope you won't think me rude at the beginning of our meeting, but I wonder if I might use your phone. Uh, of course, Mr. Martin, is something wrong? No, I don't think so, but I phoned my wife several times to tell her I was staying on all afternoon, and uh, there's been no answer. Oh, I'm sure there's nothing wrong. By all means, call. The phone is right there. Thank you. Number, please. Uh, Lakeview 84572. And uh, reverse the charges, please. Thank you. doesn't seem to be any answer. Oh, well, let it ring a few more times. Sorry, sir. There is no answer. Shall I keep trying? Uh, yes, operator. Please keep trying. I'll call you, sir. Thank you. I can't understand it. It's not like Betty to be away so long. <laughs> Mrs. Martin? Yes. Still there? I saw the spider last week. As big as Mr. Martin's fist. I looked into the glass cage. I could see the hair on its legs. Like bristles. And Mr. Martin showed me its mouth. Where it bites and kills with the poison. Stop it, Billy! Looking at them. They don't like the sunlight. That's why they're on the sofa. But the whole room is flooded with sunlight since the shade went up. Hiding in this corner behind this chair. It doesn't give us the protection we need. Why? The moth is too big to get at us here. But the spider. It can scurry on the rock under the chair. I'll take off my shoes. Something to hear with if it comes. There. Now you take one of them. Wings are fluttering again. It's going to fly again. But let's not scream. It might scare the spider. Can they hear too? I don't know. Here he comes. Call you back. Ask for operator 34, sir. Thank you. No answer yet? No, sir. Of course, I did tell Betty that I might be late or even stay overnight. She may have gone to her mother's. Well, it's a real pleasure finding a young man who cares that much for his wife. I suppose Mrs. Martin feels the same way about you. Oh, Betty's wonderful. Yes, I'm sure she is. After all, not many women would approve of their husbands inventing machines that make insects larger. 
You've got a rare wife, Mr. Martin. One who doesn't object to giant insects in the house. Keep the shoe tight in your hand, Bill. If you see the spider, hit it. It's hard. Yes, ma'am. I will. I can't stand it much longer. My hands are trembling. I'm cold all Me too, Mrs. Martin. I think I'm getting to stay. Oh, you mustn't, Bill. If I could have a drink of water. The moth. It's acting strangely. See? Yeah. Its feelers are kind of limp. And its body. Oh, that disgusting worm-like body. Flabby all of a sudden. Droopy. Its eyes. They look different, too. I don't know why, but somehow they... Yeah. only the hem of your skirt touching my leg. I, I thought it was the spider. Oh, oh, oh Bill. Bill, what's going to happen to us? Gosh, Mrs. Martin, don't cry. Please don't cry. Mr. Martin, are the terms satisfactory to you? Oh, yes, sir. Very much so. Thank you, sir. It's going to be a great pleasure having you at the university. And I know that you'll find your association with us a real incentive to carrying on your work with a growth rate. I'm sure of that. I'll do my very best to be a credit to the university and to scientific research. Now, my boy, it's time for you to leave if you want to catch the 610 and be home to tell your wife. You just get home and you'll find that there's an explanation for why she didn't answer the phone all day. I'm sure you're right. Thank you again, Dean. Thank you very much. Feel better now, Mrs. Martin? I guess so, Bill. I'm all cried out. I haven't a tear left. Look, Mrs. Martin, I'm going to try to reach the window. The, the window? The moth is back on the couch. I think I can make a run for the window once I push the chair aside a little. But he might attack you. For me? Well, maybe he won't. Oh, but he really will. The moth is so big. Six feet high. Bill, what would happen to either of us if he did attack? I would be eaten alive. Do they, do they have tea? Could really kill us? The moths eat all sorts of things. George would know exactly. I had a whole group of claws ruined last year. It's so big. So terribly big. I'm biting. Oh, Bill, I, I don't know what to say. I'm going to try it. I'll crouch down. I'll, I'll push the chair out a little, squeeze by between the chair and the wall, and make a dash for the window. Now, there. The chair's pushed aside. Now, give me my shoes. Okay, Mrs. Martin. Here I go. I'm here. I'll try to unlock the window. Look out! The ball's are flying at you! Get away! Get away, you get away! Bill! Bill! It's attacking me! It's trying to kill me! Ah! Bill! Bill, are you all right? Bill, answer me! Answer me! 
going home. The lights are off. Ah, oh, that's better. Where can Betty have gone? Betty! Betty, are you here? No! No! Betty, where are you? It's alive, it's alive. Oh, my. Good Lord. Locked. It's locked. Where's the key? Here. Oh, my darling. George. George, it was awful. Who's that? Betty, for heaven's sake. It's Bill. Bill, the grocery boy. He's killed. Killed by that. that, that Look at that mall. I can't believe it. It's dead. Bill. 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 sake, what happened? Here, sit down, darling. I'll get you a drink. Here you are. Thank you. Now, now tell me. The, the laboratory door snapped behind us. The giant moth was there. He knocked over the glass cage with the spider. We thought we'd die. And I thought, I thought Bill was dead. I'll find the spider and kill it. But as for the moth, darling, despite its size, you had nothing to fear. What? Well, you see, darling, the adult moth doesn't eat. It has no mouth. Nothing to attack or kill with. Despite its size, Trichophaga tapicella, the clothes moth, is utterly harmless. You mean it? You, you mean we could have just shooed it away and opened the window? Of course, dear. The reason it's dead and why you could have waited without worrying is that a moth cannot live more than six hours in sunlight. You see, dear, all this horror was unnecessary. Next week, a strange drama of a silver rocket and an unseen visitor from space. Be sure to listen to 2000 Plus, radio's different series. 2000 Plus is produced by Dreyer and Winolson Productions, Incorporated. In today's cast, Joan Shea portrayed Betty, Larry Robinson was Bill, Ralph Bell was George, and Bill Griffiths was the Dean. Music composed and played by Milton Kay, sound Al April and George Cooney, engineer Bob Albrecht, this is Ken Marvin speaking. program came from New York. In ancient times, they thought that the rising of the dog star Sirius was responsible for the sultry weather of midsummer. Serious or not, no one needs to be told that these are dog days, and every sportsman knows it's perfect weather for just plain fishing. So for the latest tips and information on how to catch everything from minnows to muskies, listen to Mutual's Rod and Gun Club of the Air every Thursday. You'll hear moderator Milo Bolton with his panel of sports experts in an informal sports session you won't want to miss. 
Listen to Rod and Gun Club of the Air every Thursday. You'll enjoy it. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. And now... The Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted, and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of The Marquis of Death. Are you coming, Davy? Yes, Andre. Where are you? Right along the riverbank. Oh, yes, I, I see you. Where is he? Over here. Everett. Don't worry. He is alive. What happened to him? I will show you. Let me light a match. Take a look at his throat, monsieur. Three little red marks. That is correct, mon ami. The mark of the vampire bat. And now for our story. An original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne entitled The Marquise of Death. My brother went with me to Milo in the southern part of France. But while I wrote my novel, he was to rest. The doctors in the States had told him to take a complete six-month rest. I knew of no better place in which to do it. It was a warm evening in June when it began, this tale I tell. A warm evening, cooled by the soft breath of a summer's breeze. Everett, my brother, had gone for a walk. Monsieur André Decour, the son of the mayor of Milo, had dropped in for a glass of wine. Another glass, Andre? Uh, one more, and that is all. And how are you coming with your novel, mon ami? Mm, I haven't even started, Andre. You've only been here two weeks, you know. What's the matter? Why do you wait so long to begin? Well, you whine, Andre. Ah, I take pleasure. you. Oh, I can't explain it, Andre. It just can't get started. I thought I had a good plot when I came over here, but the more I think about it, the less I like it. Then you do not know what you'll write about? No. I hope you'll not think it presumptuous of me, monsieur. But I know the story you could write. Oh? I shall tell it to you. Have you ever heard of those they call the undead, les morts qui vivent? The undead? Doesn't that refer to someone who lives even after death? Oui, but in a very certain way, mon ami. One who lives after death by feeding upon the blood of the living. A woman who was known as the Marquise de la Moparte. The name rings a bell somewhere in my memory, but I can't quite place it. It should, mon vieux. Many stories have been written of the frequent appearance that she's made since her death. Since her death? Oui. I myself saw her one night, many years ago, when I was just a lad. I shall never forget the sight of her. Why? Was she so terrible to behold? Oh, quite the contrary. She was the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. Shall I tell you about her? Oh, yes. Mettez-vous à votre aise, for it is a fairly long tale. 150 years ago, this part of France was the personal property of the Marquis de la Moparte, 
the Marquis was a kind man who cared for his people as much as they cared for him. He was a lonely man, the Marquis, but he entrusted himself with his people and this way forgot his loneliness. When he was almost 45, he married her. No one knew how she came to this province, nor when she arrived. Immediately, the Marquis began paying attention to her, and in a short while, they were married. It was after the marriage that the Marquis began to change. She seemed to bring out in him everything that was bad. One night, there came to this province an unknown carriage drawn by four full black horses. The driver whipped the horses and called out harshly to them. Those who saw the carriage said the driver had the eyes of a madman. The carriage raced along the road, stopping finally when it came to the Chateau Maupin. No one got out of the carriage, but the driver jumped down and made his way into the chateau. The driver claimed to be the father of the Marquise and that she must return home with him for a while. And indeed, the Marquise upheld his story. I must go with him, my husband. But it will not be for long. And so she went with the black-caped man with the terrifying black eyes. One month to the day she left, she returned. And the same man drove the carriage. Get up! Get up there! And the Marquis de la rode inside. They arrived in the dead of night. We are here, my daughter. As I see. You have what I have promised you. As long as time exists, so shall you exist. Others may die. But you will live forever. Remember that at night, when the sky is dark and the moon is high in the heavens, then you shall walk the earth where others sleep. Then you may strike them down. The Marquise went into the chateau and the carriage and man disappeared and were never seen again. It was after her return that the Marquise developed an aversion to sunlight. By day she would sleep, and when the sun had set, she would wake and live while others slept. The Marquis soon died, and he was laid to rest. And one by one, the servants died. And those that were left ran away, saying that she had caused their deaths. They said that the mark on her neck she had when she returned to the Chateau Maupart had been caused by a vampire and that she too had become one of the dead who live, les morts qui vivent. Is that all of the story? No, mais non, mon ami. It captures your interest, I see. Yes, go on. The Marquise disappeared shortly after that, but occasionally the villagers would see her and some lived to tell about it. What do you mean? Many they found dead. Those who were brave enough to go abroad at night. Dead with the triple puncture of the vampire bat on their throats. You don't actually believe that, do you? Oui. 
I do. But, Andre, you don't expect I me I tell to... you, I saw her, mon ami. When I was younger, I didn't believe the tale. Another lad and I had gone over to the chateau to play around the ruins. It became quite late, and the sun set in the west. Suddenly, she was there, in back of me, standing there in a black gown, with her raven tresses falling down over her shoulders, her skin the color of pale ivory, and her eyes looking through me, holding me in a trance by their power. Oh, no. I shall never forget her, mon ami. She must be beautiful, the way you describe her. Words cannot do justice to her. By the way, where's your brother? Oh, he said he was going for a walk along the river. Which way? North or south? Well, I don't know. Why? Because the ruins of the Chateau Mopart stand north of Milo on the river. No one ever walks there alone at night. You really expect me to believe that story? I would if I were you, monsieur. The Marquise walks along the bank of the town river at night. If your brother is walking north toward the chateau, he is apt to meet her. And that meeting, monsieur, could very well result in his death. Back now to our story. An original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne entitled The Marquise of Death. We sat there in the gathering darkness. Andre Lacour had just told me a story I found difficult to believe. Yet he sat there sipping his wine. And a look in his face told me that he believed it. Believe me, mon ami, if your brother is walking north along the banks of the town, he is apt to meet the Marquise. And that meeting could very well result in his death. You really do believe the story, don't you? But of course I do. And I would advise you to believe it too, mon ami. What do you think I should do? Go searching for him. Alone? I shall go with you, monsieur. All right. Venez avec moi. Come with me. Together we shall go to the bank of the town. Perhaps we may not find him. But if we do, he will be a victim of les morts qui vivent. Of the dead who live. the other way. Then we shall have made the trip for nothing, but at least we'll know. Shall I try calling him? Oui. Everett! Everett! He's around here. You should have heard that. He might not be able to hear you, monsieur. Maybe we ought to split up. A good idea, but do not go far. Stay within voice of each other. All right. You go south. I'll go north. We meet again here in ten minutes. Ten minutes. Au revoir. See you later. I watched him walk off. It was getting quite dark when I started down the river. It couldn't have been more than three minutes from the time we parted when she stepped out from behind a tree. Bonsoir, monsieur. Uh, good evening. Are you looking for someone? How did you know? I heard you calling to him. Have you seen anybody around here? No one, monsieur. What are you doing down here? I am walking, monsieur. You live around here? Near the chateau, monsieur. The chateau? Oui. But what are you staring, monsieur? Your eyes. Davy! Davy! What? Your friend. He is calling to you, monsieur. Abiento. Davy, thy body! Where are you? The part of the river now. Abiento. 
Are you coming, David? Yes, Andre. Where are you? Right along the riverbank. Yes. Yes, I see you. Where is he? Over here. Everett. Don't worry, he's alive. What happened to him? I will show you. Let me light a match. Take a look at his throat, monsieur. Three little red marks. And that is correct, mon ami. The mark of the vampire bat. We shall know how your brother is in a few minutes, mon ami. Stop wearing holes in your carpets. I saw someone out there, Andre. Out where? By the river. Oh? Who was it? A woman. A woman? Yes. What did she look like? I don't know. It was pretty dark. She stayed by she bringing her back here. Did she talk to you? Yes. What did she say? Well, she said she was out walking, that she lived near the chateau. You know, her eyes, they were the only things I could really see clearly. They seemed to burn and shine in the darkness. I felt like I was being hypnotized, and then you called me. That snapped me out of it. Then you have met the Marquise of Death, mon ami. And had I not called you when I did, you would not be alive to tell about it. Did you say anything else? Yes. She said, Abianto, two or three times. You know what that means, do you not? Something like, I'll see you again soon, isn't that it? Oui. And she means that, monsieur. She will see you again. Oh, the doctor's coming. Yes. Perhaps he can tell us how badly your brother has been hurt. How is he, doctor? He is at a narrow escape. You are his brother? Yes. He will need blood transfusions. He has lost a great deal of blood. Then do you think we should take him to the hospital? We cannot do that, Monsieur Gaumont. Oh, why not? This is a very delicate matter. The people of Miller will not allow it. What do you mean, Dr. Moreau? It, uh, you tell him, Andre. Uh, oui, Doctor. What he means, David, is that she will follow your brother wherever he goes. The doctor cannot take the risk of bringing him to the hospital. The danger to the other patients would be too great. You can't, Your I shall bring it back here, Monsieur Gaumont. All right. He was walking down by the river, was he not? Oui. Monsieur Gorman and I went after him. We found him just in time. Those three marks on his throat. You know what they are, monsieur? The marks of the vampire bat. The mark of the Marquise of Death. Well, he hasn't anything been done to stop her. Because we cannot find him, monsieur. And besides, the townspeople are afraid to go after her. If they went out in sufficient numbers, They've I'd... tried that before, mon ami. When the sun shines, they've gone out and searched for our resting place. For she lies helpless during the rain of the sun. They've searched all day, and yet they've not found it. Mm. And those unlucky ones who stayed after dark, some of them went to join those she had claimed earlier. That's why they do not go out after her, mon ami. They are afraid, and with good reason. What do they do? There are protective measures, Monsieur Gaumont. Garlic, the cross, things which the dead who live fear. Uh, but it's getting late. I shall return as quickly as I can. What was that? It sounded like a window breaking. Came from upstairs. Come on. Could he regain consciousness? I doubt it. Then what broke the window? Uh, we'll see right now. Look out! What was it? The dead who live. The vampire bat. What was it doing here? Let me see. He's all right, isn't he? No, Monsieur Gaumont. He is not all right. He will not need the transfusion now. Your brother is dead. Back now to our story. An original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne entitled 
the Marquise of Death. The three of us, Andre Lacour, Dr. Moreau, and myself, stood there, staring out the broken window after the thing that had flown out. My brother lay in the bed, eyes open, seeing nothing. He will not need the transfusion now. Your brother is dead. What? That is correct. Remember what Andre said about her returning? Wait. She did. She came back before we could do anything for him. Now, it is too late. To stand here and calmly say that he's dead, you accept it for a fact, but you don't propose to do anything about it. What can we do, mon ami? We can go find her, we can destroy her. Oh, others have tried before you, Monsieur Gaumont, with no success. I don't care, I'm going out there, even if I have to go alone. You cannot go out there alone. But I am, and you're not going to stop me. I shall go with you, mon ami. And I, monsieur, I shall go with you too. What about him? He will be all right, Monsieur Gaumont. There is nothing more. She can do to him. Before we started out, the doctor insisted on picking up some things. Eventually, we were ready, and we started out into the blackness of the night. You have everything? Yes. All right, let us go. Where, where shall we begin, doctor? In the ruins of the chateau, Andre. Why don't you bring all those things, Dr. Moreau? The wooden stake, the crosses. If we find the Morkebib, the dead who live, we shall have need for the things we have brought. We must stay close together. Yes. Close enough so that we can always talk to each other. Yes. No matter what happens, we must not become separated. Now we all have a long departure. What? A flashlight, mon ami. What are we to look for? A trail. A footpath worn smooth by the years of returning to her resting place. I've been thinking since we started out tonight. And that, I am sure, is the only way we can find her. At either end of the path. There we shall find the resting place of the Marquise of Death. Let's begin. We. Oui. I will take the center, Andre. Uh, you take the left. All right. Monsieur Gaumont, you take the right. All right. We will circle the chateau at varying lengths from it. Look not only for the path, but for the presence of each of us. So that she cannot destroy us singly. All right, let us go. Right. Bonne chance, monsieur. Bonne chance. Good luck. That is far enough, monsieur Gaumont. Right. Look for the footpath. Oui. Bonsoir, monsieur. We meet again. What? Silence. Where did you come from? I have been following you, monsieur. Yeah. So beautiful. My eyes. Look at my eyes. Your eyes. And I come close to you. Like this, monsieur. So close. Davy! Doctor, look! Hold up your cross, David! Your cross! A bientôt, monsieur. David! David, are you all right? Are you all right, monsieur Dormont? What happened? Let, let me see your neck, monsieur. Is he all right? Oui. She did not touch him. All of a sudden, she was here beside me. She told me to look into her eyes. I couldn't help myself. And then, then I seemed to be going to sleep. It is a good thing André looked back and saw you, monsieur Gamar. We reach you just in time. We will have to stay together, the three of us. We cannot split up. Oui. You're standing right there, right where... Look. Where? Right there. It's a path. You have found it. What should we do? Follow the path, Mr. Raymond. Let us go. 
path that leads away from the chateau. Always before we search near the chateau. The woods get heavy up ahead, Doctor. And she cannot harm us as long as we stay together. Put the cross around your neck, Monsieur Gaumont. As Andre and I have done. Right. Had you worn it there before, she would not have come near you. Now, the woods begin here. Uh, let us go slowly, then. The path is well hidden. We... No wonder we have missed it so many times before. Look, up ahead. A huh? cave. The path leads into a cave. Then that must be a resting place. Let us go quickly. Uh, be careful. You'll be around here somewhere. It's getting close to morning. The sky is lightning. Oh, the better for us, Mr. Gamor. She will be powerless when the sun rises. This is the cave. Let us go inside. Shine your lump to pass your head of us. I see something up ahead. Looks like a coffin. It's a coffin, monsieur. Aye, she will be returning soon. The sun will rise in a short while. She must return here to sleep through the day. Ah, to the other side, into the shadows. She comes. There was a bat up there. Then suddenly it changed into a beautiful woman. the Marquise de Lemopard. A terrible toll of death she has taken through the years is now ended. She has crossed the barrier from which there is no return. Below has been freed from the curse of the Marquise of Death. Characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental.
Ironized Yeast presents Lights Out, Everybody. Lights Out brings you stories of the supernatural and the supernormal, dramatizing the fantasies and the mysteries of the unknown. We tell you this frankly, so if you wish to avoid the excitement and tension of these imaginative plays, we urge you calmly but sincerely to turn off your radio now. This is Frank Martin. Before bringing you the final Lights Out play tonight, a word from Ironized Yeast. Friends, are you getting all you could get out of life? Or are you so run down, weak, and on edge these war days that good fortune, good friends, and good fun often pass you by? Well, if vitamin B1 and iron shortage is what's to blame, try Ironized Yeast Tablets. They give you these exact two substances. They've been of splendid benefit to people who used to suffer from these shortages. Today, these people tell of glorious pep, strength, and needed pounds regained. So now they can really enjoy life again. That's right. The name is Ironized Yeast Tablets. Enough? Lights out, everybody. Miss Goddard, answer the phone, please. Yes, Mr. Obler. Yes? Oh, yes, Miss Harrison. Here he is. Mr. Obler? Yes? Miss Harrison. Oh, oh, thank you. Hello, Joan. How's the phantom lady? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, am I in trouble? Well, the last light's out. I just don't know what to write about. Oh, no, I got plenty of ideas, but... Oh, well, men dying in foxholes, and what am I doing? Thinking of fantastic... Well, thanks very much, but I still insist that I ought to be... <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Sure, I'll make this last one a good one, and then that'll be that. If I live through it. Huh? <laughs> no, no, I was just talking to myself. I've been doing that rather consistently these last few days. <laughs> yes, I, I guess all those zombies and ghouls and loop-garoos have finally caught up with me. <laughs> I know, I know. Two aspirins and a glass of water every half hour. Uh, now, look here, Miss Harrison, don't worry about me. I'll get the story written tonight if I have to talk to the devil himself to do it. All right, John, all right. Yeah, sure. Oh, fine, fine. Call me back in an hour, and I'll have some kind of a plot figured out. I hope. Give my regards to Norman. Talk to you later. Well, Miss Goddard, let's get to work. Yes, sir. What time is it, anyway? 11.32. Sorry I have to keep you working so late? That's perfectly all right. I know you have to have that play done by tomorrow morning. I'm glad to help. You're an angel. Angel. That's a strange word to use here in this room where I've thought up so many demons and monsters. Tell me, or maybe you won't want to tell me. What, Mr. Obler? Working with me on these lights-out plays, do you ever get frightened? Well... You do, don't you? Yes, I do get frightened many times. There was a time I'd have found that very amusing, but not tonight. Is there something wrong, Mr. Obler? I don't know. 
Tommy, did you ever sit alone in a room at night and have a premonition? I mean, suddenly get the feeling that somewhere in the house, perhaps in the darkness in the next room, something was waiting, something of malignancy and evil? <laughs> Ugh, what's the matter with me? If I keep on talking like this, they'll be using me as Exhibit X in a psychopathic ward. Come on, let's get to work. Yes, sir. Uh, let me see. We'll start out next week's play with the regular lights out opening. Lights out everybody. Chimes later than you think. Gone. First character is named um, Hellman. Call him Hellman. Jack Hellman. H-E-L-L-M-A-N. Two hours. Got that? Mm-hmm. Um, he commits a murder and he... Um... <sighs> oh, what's the use? I can't write another one of these things. Ghosts and groans and blood. I, I tell you, I can't do it. I can't do it. Mr. Oberler. <sighs> I'm sorry. Look here, Miss Goddard. You better run along. But aren't we going no, to... No, I just can't write anymore tonight. But the cast, they'll be standing by. The rehearsal. The devil with the rehearsal. I'm not going to go insane writing these things for anybody. Now, now, run along, please. Try to get some rest, and if you come back early in the morning, we'll see what we can do. Just as you say. Are you sure you're all right? Please go. All right. Good night. Good night. <sighs> What's come over me anyway? Why, why did I tell her to go? I gotta write this play. Premonitions. <laughs> she must have thought I was getting softening. Who? Who's there? Oh. Well, I am in bad shape. The wind rattles the window and I. <laughs> lights out. Author goes nuts. There's a headline for variety. I gotta get down to earth. Quarter to twelve. Joan said she'd call back in an hour. I've got to have some kind of a plot by then. Let me see. How about a, a press agent named Black killing a man named White and black and white murder? Oh, is that corny? <sighs> Maybe I could use a story about a Hollywood producer. Let's see, Johnny Hour. He meets a girl and then's afraid because the girl's husband. Oh, is that out of character? <sighs> How about Nero chopping off heads in the Roman circus and... Certainly is quiet in here. <laughs> Yell all day for quiet, and now that I've got it, I... I have got the jitters. What the devil have I got to be jittery about? Things are what they are, if anybody knows that I do. Two and ten makes four, unless you're talking about curved space, and them that has hold on to what they've got, and anybody who's in this war for profit ought to have his bones broken off, and... The... What the devil am I talking about? Huh? Okay. I'd better stop kidding myself. I know what's wrong. I want to write it, and yet I don't. What's the matter with me? Afraid to put it down on paper? What have I got to be afraid of? Here it goes. <laughs> Get it over with, and outline of title undecided. Get out of my system. Play opens in the cell of a monastery in the Middle Ages. The mystic is cowered in the corner of his room. Outside, a mob is clamoring for his life. It appears that a horrible crime has been committed in the village below. A horrible monster had torn a woman. It appears that this creature, brought into being through the incantations of the sorcerer, was the concentration of all the evil in men's hearts and minds. A tremendous force of fiendishness and inhumanity put into living flesh to roam the world and commit unspeakable of all the drivel. A tremendous force of fiendishness and inhumanity put into living flesh to roam the world and commit unspeakable... Well, 
Drivel or not, there it is on paper. Me own monster conceived in me own mind. Congratulations, Papa. Have a cigar. <laughs> conceived in my own mind. Huh. That's what that crazy monk said in that book Nat Wolf gave me. I wonder who gave Nat that book. Conceived in... Where's that book anyway? It ought to be... <laughs> yeah, I even marked the page. And I say unto thee that if thou shalt be evil and do evil and think evil and let thy mind rest upon this evilness in the light of day and in the darkness of night for seven days and seven nights, there may come into being a thing of evil, and it shall take the form of the evilness of thy thought. <laughs> Written by half-starved mystic more than ten centuries ago, and I... Funny I should have thought of those words tonight. I've been thinking about them for a week. Shall take the evil, the form of the evilness of thy thought, Seven days and seven... Who? Who's there? No, no, no! What? What the... You... You in my mind... You're just in my mind. No, no. You, 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 evil. You, you, you don't exist, I tell you. I, I thought you up. You're, you're a dream. I said a dream. When I wake up, the door. It is a dream. It's got to be a dream. Come in. Come in. Get me out of this dream. Get me out of this dream. Get me Hi, Arch. Well, don't you ever open doors anymore? And what's the big idea sitting in here it's all night? It's not alone? a dream. It's, it's still... Hey, Arch, what's cooking? Eli, get out. Oh, now, Arch, Don't stand there, look at me. Get out. Can't you see it? Can't you see it? Get out. Get out of here. Hey, what's Eli, the gag? See in here what? Behind you. Look behind you. Well, there's nothing behind me but the wall. Eli. Say, what is this, anyway? A preview of April Eli, get Tuesday? out of here. All right, all right. Now, let's have it. What is this? A preview of a new play? <laughs> Boy, am I glad you're quitting lights out after all. Can't you hear him? Who? Hear who? Eli, behind you. Behind me what? What's the matter with you, anyway, Arch? Don't you feel well? You keep staring back at me. It must be a dream. It must be a dream. What's a dream? Are you tight? What's the matter? The pink elephant's beginning to... No! 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 My brother! No, my brother! Let go of me! You think to my brother! No! 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 Eli. Eli. Oh, no. Eli. <laughs> Operator. Operator, please. Send police right away, my brother. Please, send police, send police. My brother, my brother, my brother. Yeah. How much time we got to go on this shift yet, Joe? Uh-oh, uh-oh. Hold it. Here comes Frank Sinatra again. Squad 39 and 48. Go to Ventura and Redwood. Drunk, making a disturbance. Claims his brother ate by a monster. Squad 39 well, and 48. Go to the children red Drunk, claims brother ate off by a thing. KLPD signing off. But I tell you, it's true, officer. It's true. 
My brother, my own brother, I saw it. I saw all it with my own right, eyes. All right, all right, all right. So you saw it. Now, take it easy, young fellow. You're in a bad shape. I tell you, I'm not drunk. I'm as sober as you are. Now, don't get funny. You thick-headed fool. Look, it's there behind you. Huh? What? The thing, the monster. Look at it. Believe my brother, my oh, brother. Oh, I've heard brother. of him seeing snakes and pink elephants, but this is the first one I've seen this bad off, eh, Joe? But he don't look tight. Oh, you never can tell in the valley. There, the, the two of you. Can't you see him? Can't you see him? Slobbering there in that corner. Right hey, hey, maybe we'd better take him down to the station and let him cool off in the can for a while, eh? Yeah. yeah. Stop staring me, the two of you. Why won't you believe me? Why won't you believe me? See, Clarence, maybe this guy's on the level. Oh, are you nuts, too? If something happened to his brother, there'd be someone around, wouldn't there? And there ain't nothing in this room. What have I done? What have I done? You've done? What do you mean? I thought of the monster. Seven days and seven nights. See, thought... Joe, the guy's nuts. Let's find out who he is. <laughs> What's your name, young fella? Yeah, what's your name? Quiet down now. What's your name? Oh, what difference does that make? The thing that sits there and grins at me. Why don't you see it and help me? Why oh, don't you come on, me? come on Tell now. Me. What's your name? Let's have it. Uh, Opaler. What's your business? What do you do for a living? Well? Radio. I, I write radio. What's the difference? Radio? Opaler. Say, ain't you the guy that writes them screwy lights out things Tuesday nights? Yes. Yes, help me. Please, please help that me. Joe. What? Why, this is the guy that writes them ghost things I was telling you about. You know, over the radio. Obler, the guy who always makes his cops Irish. You get it? <laughs> it's one of them gags, one of them publicity gags. Gags? Oh, you infernal... Now, wait a minute, fellow. Watch your tongue. I tell you, it's not a gag. It's here, here in the room. It took my brother and... There. Can't you hear it? Can't you hear it? Huh? It's laughing. An infernal laugh and listen to it. Listen to it. <laughs> it's later than you uh, think. Okay, young fellow. If it ain't a gag, you better take a broom and go back to bed. Uh, now, listen, you. We're going to hang around for a while, so take it easy. Come on, Joe. Let's get out of here. This no, no, wait. Screw is wait. Come, come don't let me. Don't. It's here, I tell you. It's here. Don't let me. Oh. What'll I do? What'll I do? I got to get out of here. Yeah. That's it. I've got to get out of here and find someone who'll believe me. What? Oh, it won't let me out? No, no. Don't come near me. Don't come. The police, they come back. Come in. Come in. Hi, Arch. Oh. I was just driving by and I thought... No, no, Mercedes, get out of here. Get out. What? No, no. Arch, what's the matter? What are you staring at? Mercedes, believe me, you got to get out. you got to get out. No, Where's no. Mercedes? Ladies and gentlemen, the time has come to take a moment's intermission in tonight's Lights Out story, the tale of a weird and horrible monster dreamed by its author into actual existence. In this moment, let's return to the world of stark reality, where a man is saying... Don't talk to me about having fun tonight. I feel too tired out. Same as last night and many other nights. I'm getting thin as a rail. I'm too jittery to eat or sleep as I should. I feel like I'd never be able to enjoy life again. Now, wait a minute. Lots of men and women who used to feel that way have found it was due to simple vitamin B1 and iron deficiency. If that's your trouble, try ironized yeast tablets. Ironized yeast tablets? That's right. Ironized yeast tablets give you vitamin B1 with iron, the exact two substances you need when you suffer from these deficiencies. It's this two-way help of ironized yeast that's been of such splendid benefit in such cases. Yet the cost of these pleasant little tablets is only a few pennies a day. Gosh, 
Maybe I ought to try ironized yeast tablets. By all means do, if vitamin B1 and iron deficiency is what's getting you down. Then see if pretty soon you aren't saying... It's sure swell to feel like myself again. I've got back my old time weight and pep. It's like a new lease on life. I'm certainly glad I tried ironized yeast tablets. And now back to our final Lights Out story. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Hey, what's going on here? Didn't oh, we no. tell you to go to bed? Is that the way to act? We heard you screaming all the way down in the... Oh, no. Where did she come from? She, her, torn. Give me her gun. Huh? That thing in the corner there, won't you look at it? Won't you believe me? Give me that gun. Get away from me. The gun, I'll shoot it. I'll shoot that No, gun. no, stand where you are. Stand where you are. Let you have a slug. Huh? You got it coming to you, that girl. They'll burn you for it as sure as my name's Clarence McMenzer. And I'd like to be the guy that pulls the switch. All right, right in here, sir. You've got five minutes. Yes, I know, I know. Oh, Mr. Kenny. I've been waiting for you. I uh, got here as soon as I could. Uh, looks bad, Obler. Very bad. What do you mean? I didn't do anything. I tell you, I didn't. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I know, I know. But, uh, Obler, you can't do a thing like that and just walk away from it. Well, I've explained it to you. I've explained it to everyone a hundred times, a thousand times. Won't anyone believe me? Now, look here, Arch. I'm your attorney. I want to help you. A great number of people want to help you, and we certainly can't do a thing unless you cooperate. Yes, that's what I said, cooperate. What do you want me to do? Tell the truth, the whole truth. But I've told you, I've yes, told you. Yes, yes, I know what you've told me. A horrible thing that you conceived in your mind came to life and uh, did a number of uh, peculiar things. Uh, but, oh, see here, surely you don't think that even the most stupid jury on earth is going to believe that nonsense? You don't believe me. Well, I've heard many peculiar alibis from my radio clients in time, but... Well, listen, if you want to plead temporary insanity... But I'm not insane. I'm not insane. I'm not then insane. Then let's hear a sane explanation of what happened that night. I told you. I told you everything just the way it happened. My brother came yes, home and... Yes, 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 I know. Well? Your brother came into the room and was eaten up by this monster, and then that girl... Oh, what's the use? Apparently you want to die. I've tried so hard to make you understand... And I've tried to make you understand that if you don't stop this infernal nonsense and hurry up and tell me the truth of what really happened... You'll either find yourself taking a one-way walk to the electric chair or wake up in a padded cell in an asylum for the criminally insane. What? The fact of the matter is they've already appointed a lunacy commission to pass on your case. Lunacy commission? Oh, see here, Arch. Wait. I... No, wait. Let me talk. Go right ahead. That's what I want you to do. Maybe I am insane. I don't know. At first I told myself it was nothing but a nightmare. That I'd wake up and find it had all been nothing but a weird dream that never really happened. But it's not a dream and no one will believe my story, not even you. It's such an irrational story. How can you expect anyone to believe it? Now, take that part about your brother being devoured alive by this, this monster. It happened. It happened just as I said it happened. It's common knowledge that your brother is pre-induction vacationing up north with your mother. He came back. You mean they are coming back. I sent your brother a wire to come back and bring your mother home at once. They ought to be here today. My brother's dead. Well, that's your preposterous story. This this thing, this monster who's supposed to have committed all these crimes. Where is he? Where did he come from? Where has he gone to? I... I don't know. Did the police see him? No. Did anyone see him? No. Oh, Arch, Arch, if you're going to think up an alibi to save yourself, for heaven's sake, think up a better one than that one. I'm not trying to think up alibis. I'm just trying to explain what happened to you and... Maybe to myself. I haven't believed much during my life, except perhaps that somewhere there was a power that went beyond life and death. 
What happened to me isn't explainable. Any terms that you and I... But, Mr. Gang, I tell you, it did happen. I thought of a monster for seven days and seven nights in my own mind. And like that prophet of the Middle Ages warned, the evil thing came to life, and yet only I could see it and hear it. And do you see and hear it now? No. That's what I can't quite understand. Perhaps the horrible thing only has life when I think about it intensely. <sighs> Inten That's it. It only has life when my thoughts give it life. Like an idea. Don't you see, Mr. Gang? Like an idea only exists when you think of it. Your thought gives it life. And that's the way it is with that... Terrible thing. Listen. What? Listen. Listen. Do you hear him? There. There he is in the corner. What? I what? tell you, he's there. Don't you hear it? Blubbering and slobbering. I see it now. I see it. You think? I'm not afraid of you anymore. You hear me? I'm not afraid. I'll kill you. 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 God, help. 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 God. God. He's gone insane. He's gone insane. I know how strongly you gentlemen feel about this matter, but after all, we must come to a decision on his mental status. As chairman of this lunacy commission... I feel that it is incumbent upon me to, shall I say, uh, summarize the facts as they have been placed before us. Uh, first, it is an established fact that a murder, and a very horrible murder, has been committed. The police officer has testified very conclusively that Arch Obler was there upon the scene of the crime and that it was absolutely impossible for anyone else to have committed the murder. In other words... The man whose mental status we are to determine is a murderer. Consider further facts. Does he wear conventional shirts? Uh, no, 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 Another fact. Does he participate in uh, normal activities such as drinking, dancing, uh, fraternal orders and similar uh, beneficial social activities? No, 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 no. I pile fact upon fact. Have you gentlemen ever listened to his plays? Oh, yeah, his plays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 what, uh, what are some of the distinctive features of these works? Voices. Mm. Strange voices. Strange voices. Uh, whispering yeah. voices. Yeah. Note yeah. that gentleman yeah. always yeah. whispering voices. Yeah. Voices. Yeah. Voices. Gentlemen, I am of the firm opinion that we are dealing with a very definite case of Dementia Precox in its paranoidal form. But no, I, I tell, tell you, you all radio writers are crazy. No. No, Arch. No. A lifetime in an insane asylum. Oh, my. I'm not insane. I tell you, I'm not insane. No, no, of course you're not, son. Now, don't excite yourself anymore. Please. Why do you make me go? If there was only some way I... I could make them see the thing as I see it. Mother, you believe what I told you, don't you? Yes, yes, dear, of course I do. <sighs> oh, if Eli would only get back. Eli? But I told you, Eli, you're like the others. You don't believe me now. I know you don't. Oh, you will believe. I'll make you believe. Bing. Bing, wherever you are, listen to me. I think of you. Here, I think of you. I give you life. I give you life. Oh, 
You hear, Mother? You hear it does exist? It does? No, no, don't get so excited. There, Mother. You must. It's right behind you. Turn, see, believe. Oh. You see it, Mother. You see it. I'm not insane. I'm not insane. No. My mother. Thing, my mother. No. No. Not my mother. Not my mother. Not my mother. Not my mother. All right, all right. Hello. Oh, yes, Joan. Midnight already? Yeah, I've been sitting here very comfortably, and I finally thought up the plot line, and believe me, it's quite a brainstorm. I die. Sure, sure, it's my final broadcast, so why not? No, no, I'm not gagging. Listen to me. You know, it's all about a monster that I conceived in my own little-bitty mind, and it comes to life. Honestly, I haven't had a Coke in hours. It's going to be one of those, you know, crazy stories inside of a story. Now, now listen. The way I've got it figured out is this. Now, I'm supposed to be sitting here thinking of this horrible monster, and suddenly I turn around and there it is, see? And my young brother comes in and this monster eats him up alive, and then Mercy McCambridge comes in and she... Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Joan. Hold it for a minute. I think someone came in. I imagine it's Bernie. I'll see who... I'm way down here. What are you doing down there? Didn't you hear the play? I'm dead. <laughs> All right, Frank. I'll come back to Earth long enough to say goodbye to our friends after you've had your say. I've got a word of cheer for you folks who are underweight, run down, jittery, often tired out. If vitamin B1 and iron shortage is what's getting you that way, remember, ironized yeast tablets give you the exact two substances you need. Of course, a rundown condition may be due to other causes. If in doubt, see your doctor. But if your trouble is simply vitamin B1 and iron shortage, remember, ironized yeast has been of such splendid help in such cases that it's sold on this money-back basis. If you don't begin to eat better, to feel better, and so sleep better, the cost of the first bottle will be refunded to you in full by ironized yeast, Box IY, Rahway, New Jersey. And now, how about those farewells, Mr. Obler? Yes, after a full year of blood and suspense and death in the night, the time has come to put lights out away and go on to other things. Thanks to those people behind the scenes who have helped so much, engineers, sound men, actors. Now, starting next week at the same time, our nice yeast is going to bring you a new version of an old favorite, Big Town. Yes, Big Town. And if a note of reality of our times has crept into a play now and then... Forgive me, but even a fictionizer can't always forget that there's a very real war going on for very real human issues. So, right now, it's goodbye from a man named Obler and a cordial invitation to listen in to the show that succeeds lights out, Big Town. Yes, Big Town, the thrilling dramatic pageant of America's mightiest metropolis, as mirrored by Steve Wilson's courageous newspaper, The Illustrated Press. Listen as Steve takes you behind the headlines for the stories that are the lifeblood of a great newspaper. Remember... Next Tuesday at this same time, Big Town. 
And if you need more vitamin B1 and iron, be sure to try ironized yeast. But remember, there's only one ironized yeast. You'll know it instantly by the yellow and orange package and by the big letters IY on the container and on each tablet. If you're in the middle of fall house cleaning, stop and listen to this. Save time and money by taking out dirt and grease spots from your furniture and rugs yourself right in your own home. Use Energine cleaning fluid. Energine takes out dirt and grease spots almost like magic. It's quick, easy to use. Just moisten a cloth with Energine, brush gently on the spot as directed on the container. That's all you do. So spruce up those home furnishings of yours. Buy a large economical container of Energine cleaning fluid and keep things clean with Energine. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Inner Sanctum Mysteries, starring Anne Seymour and Myron McCormick. Brought to you by the makers of Carter's Little Liver Pills, the best friend to your sunny disposition. Good evening, friends. Welcome. Welcome to the Inner Sanctum. This is Raymond, your host, teller of strange tales. Come in. If you dare. Now, before we begin, a word to those of you who don't frighten easily. It'll be no disgrace if before we're finished you find yourself trembling against your will. Inner Sanctum Mysteries takes great pleasure in presenting two of America's best-known and best-loved radio artists, Miss Anne Seymour and Mr. Myron McCormick. Tonight, these two favorite to the air lanes co-star in The Man from Yesterday, an original radio mystery drama by Milton Geiger, brought to you by the makers of Carter's Little Liver Pills, the laxative with the two-way action. For over 60 years, everybody has known that the name Carter's Little Liver Pills means gentle and efficient health whenever a laxative is needed. Yes, and they know, too, that Carter's Little Liver Pills bring added relief by waking up the flow of a very important digestive juice. So take advantage of this two-way action and ask for Carter's Little Liver Pills. Do you like to have your hair stand on end? Do you like to feel your blood run cold? Hmm. <laughs> of course you do. Come along with me, then. To the jungle, still and hot, weirdly yellow in the strange light of the tropic moon. In a clearing, the African natives of Dr. Robert Rand's museum party sway to the slow throb of their drums. A few hundred yards off in the thick bush, a monstrous humpbacked shape drops silently from the trees, moves swiftly across the shadowed jungle floor. Suddenly, the earth gives way under the dark, crouching monster's feet. He struggles wildly a moment and falls, disappearing into the earth. 
Quanaran. Quick. Come quick. Ingabi. Come quick. Eh? What, uh, what's up, Sangala? Is something wrong, Sangala? Quana, you come fast. Bring big gun. Oh, what is it? Ingaji. Gorilla? Where? Oh, man, gorilla. He fallen trap. Oh, you shouldn't go, Bob. You're fever. Where is he? Where is the gorilla? Sangala, show you. Bring big gun. You follow me. down there, Bob? And I see him. What a fellow. What a prize he'd be for Professor Converse at the museum. A full-grown gorilla. Ruth, we've got to get this fellow home, alive. Oh, Bob, it's dangerous. You're ill. Must you? Converse would never forgive me if I didn't. Bob. What is it? The gorilla has made a sound for some time now. That's right. Turn the flashlight down there, will you, Ruth? That's very strange. Is he hurt? No. But look at him. See how he stares up at me. Yes. And such steady, knowing, intelligent eyes. Almost human. Yes. Gazing so steadily into my own. Unflinching. Unafraid. Puzzled. As though he's seen me before. As though he recognizes me. Is trying to remember me from somewhere. Sometime. comes down the deck level. All right. Roll away. Easy. Easy then. Huh? All right. Good. Good. That does it, man. Now cast away the lowering chains and begin closing the hatch. We'll be right up. Right. I'm tired, Bob. A little. But it's a relief to have Engadji safely stowed away down here. Engadji. It's a musical name, isn't it? Means gorilla. Well, nothing to do but keep him safe in his cage, keep him from catching cold, and feed him wild carrots and parsley. If it were for anyone but Professor Converse, I'd chuck it all right now. Sorry I started it. I. I don't like him, Gadgie. Oh, he's a gentleman and a scholar. Don't talk playful nonsense about him, Ruth. He's a killer. He is not. I happen to know. What do you mean you happen to know? Have you been around his cage again lately? Well, I've been teaching him a few simple tricks, if that's what you mean. What do you call a simple trick? Well, for example, shaking hands with a lady. Ruth, you haven't. I have, and is my arm torn from its socket? It is not. Ruth, don't you understand? You can't make friends with a gorilla. You can't compromise with the jungle. Gudge is clever and he's dangerous. He'll watch with those beady little eyes of his. He'll wait with that tricky little brain of his. Until his time comes. 
Now, don't give him his chance, Bruno. Oh, you're not well, Bob. And so you magnify the dangers and the menace of the jungle and all that bookish stuff. All out of proportion to... Well, what... What's the matter? Look at him. He's been watching me all the time. See how he stares at me? Never batting an eye. Never moving a hair. Watching me. Matching my gaze, stare for stare. Oh, come out of it, Bob. Been like this from the moment we captured him. Ruth, that abysmal brute knows something. Darling, this stuffy ship's hold is getting you. Let's go and feed some quinine, huh? Very well. What'll I do with Ngaji back home? That's Professor Converse's problem, and he's welcome. Up the ladder with you. All right, men. Batten it down. Bye-bye, Ngaji. So long, old man. Be good. Now, don't squeeze so hard. Hey, hey, Butch, take it easy. No, 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 mustn't pull. Stop pulling, do you hear? Ngaji. That's better. Now, let go of the lady's hand. That's it. <laughs> now, then, how about some exercise? Think you could walk around the hold here with a distinguished dame on your arm? Yeah, let's see how this chain and iron pin work on this door. They think you can't be trained, but I know you can. Uh, <laughs> oh, this is easy. Uh, oh, have this iron uh, pin up in just a minute. Oh, just a patient, old fellow. Oh, here it comes. Uh, oh. Well, better luck next time. Look down there, Ruth. Tell me, Bob. I was just having a word with Ngarji. Well, hurry. We've got little old New York on our horizon and anti-glass. Very kind of you, Professor Converse, putting Ruth and me up at the museum like this. Not at all. An empty room. Just want to keep an eye on that fever of yours, because you won't. <laughs> well, nevertheless, Professor, we won't impose on your hospitality a moment more than it takes us to get settled again here in America. Yeah. Here's another door. After you, Rand. Thank you. This old wing's out of use, but it still has electricity. And what's more important, heat. Till the zoo can build proper quarters for Ngaji, we'd better keep him in here where the temperature is even. Hmm. I've been thinking, Professor. 
These oak doors wouldn't be any problem at all to Engadji if he happened to get on the loose. True, true. The door closing off this old wing from the new building is really made of iron. I see. So, unless you're gorillas of the armor-piercing variety, pretty safe. Here's next to the last door. This used to be our dinosaur room. A huge room. Well, here we are. Royal suite itself. <laughs> Ruth, what are you doing in here? I'm talking to Engadji. Hello, Professor. I shouldn't become too familiar with Engadji, Mrs. Rand. Oh, he's quite gentle. You know what he does now? He takes the rings off my fingers and then gives them back. Takes the rings off your fingers? Ruth, come on, let's get out of here. Oh, all right. You're rougher than a 500-pound ape. He's a real gentleman. Look at him. Look how he presses his face between the bars. To get a closer look at me. It's been like that, sir. By George, I'll give him a good look at me. Don't get too close, Rand. Now, careful. Well, he doesn't know you well, Bob. Bob! There, you ugly brute. Take a look. Take a good, long look. Well, what do you see? All right, all right, he missed me. Could have shattered your skull with that blow, Rand. But it's only because he doesn't know you, Bob. He does know me. He looked into my face. And he saw something. What did he see? What do you think he saw? Well, I'm no fortune teller. I'm only Raymond, your host here in the Inner Sanctum. But I can tell you he must have seen something. But what was it? That's the big question. Yes, and when that logy, dull, sluggish feeling tells us that a laxative may be needed, the big question is, what laxative will do you the most good? Lots of folks have answered the question successfully by taking Carter's Little Liver Pills. Why? Because Carter's Little Liver Pills offer help in these two effective ways. One, they help relieve irregularity in an efficient, thorough, yet gentle manner. Two, usually within a half hour after taking them, Carter's Little Liver Pills wake up the flow of a very important digestive juice. It's this vital juice that helps tone up a lazy, sluggish digestive system so that folks can lose their grouts and feel better. You better keep that in mind, friends. And next time, remember Carter's Little Liver Pills. The laxative that helps in more ways than one. All right. Do you still want to know what the man from yesterday saw when he... Looked into Rand's face. <laughs> You'll be sorry, but you asked for it. So let's go into Ngaji's cage with him now. As he listens to a strange, uh, voice. Uh, Ngaji, Lord of the Jungle, do you hear me? Uh, uh, do you hear Ngaji? Do you hear the jungle speak? Ngaji. I am in the I am the jungle. Jungle. You looked into the man creature's pale eyes. Do you remember now? Do you remember that other Ingaji a thousand million moons ago? Before the pale man creature walked here? Man. No. 
beautiful she he conquered how you hated him. Hey. He was mighty, and he was different from the others. When the others swept through the trees, that other one ran swift as the wind on the ground. Remember. Remember. Hey. You fought, and you died. That other one who was different stood triumphant in the clearing. His neck half bitten through, victorious. He who would one day be a man. Man. Your conqueror then. Your captor now. Hate. Hate man. Where is your strength, O Ingati? That this same other one conquers you again. As he did a thousand million moons ago. I am strong. I am in Yet, the weak one wins. I am here, Professor. Getting to be a habit around here. There's a knocking. It must be that feverish fool ran. Oh, come now. We want you here. Well, such a thing as wearing out your welcome. You paid a thousand times by bringing us back that magnificent gorilla. I don't consider that adequate compensation. Professor, I might as well tell you. I'm sorry I ever blundered over the booth. He was getting you again. Go to bed and take No, some. no, no. I'm afraid of him, Gadgie. Not in the physical sense. I could cope with his power, his force. But he's changed. I can't cope with, with what he's become. It infuriates and humiliates me that that gorilla has something on me. Has me at some disadvantage that I don't understand. It's gotten under my skin. You remember when he struck at me three weeks ago? Do I remember? Of course I do. He changed after that. When he looks at me now, he isn't puzzled. He isn't searching his memory for some clue to me anymore. He knows. He knows who I am and what I mean to him. Whatever it is, he hates me. Hates me with a dreadful, consuming energy. I don't question that, Rand. Plain enough. You hear? He never had those tempers. Now something is tormenting him into a frenzy of hatred and defiance. Something in that secret brain of his. He'd better calm him down before he dashes out that secret brain of his. Come on, Rand. We'll talk later. Those eyes. Where have you seen such hatred? 
With such tremendous living power. Yes. You've got to admire it at first. You almost think for a moment that he represents the super race. That big, black-haired, purebred gorillas are the dominating people. And on the basis of sheer power with a certain amount of intelligence and ruthlessness, you think he ought to rule. <laughs> then you stop to think. You remember. Yes, he's pure black gorilla and powerful. But after all, he's just a gorilla. Oh, I, I thought I heard him judge you studying him here. Well, you did. Your precious beast was being attentive. You'd catch cold running about barefooted like that, and that wouldn't do. Because Ngadji might catch it from you, and that would be the end of Ngadji. On second thought, perhaps you'd better run around barefooted. But, Bob, he's worth a fortune. Well, so are you. Now run along back to bed. Professor Converse and I have a chess game to play. Hey, Professor? Gadget. Gadget. Uh, Hi, uh, old fella. How about you, Banana? Here. No. No, I haven't got any more. Uh, what? Oh, my hand. Which one? This? Or the last? Chill, pal. Take it easy, though. It breaks. That's a good boy. Uh, oh, no. Come on, Gadget. Give me back the ring. Come on. Hand over the jewels. Pick them up, Ngaji. Ngaji! All right. I'll get them myself. But you won't hear the end of it. I'll show you. You've eaten your last banana for a month, and don't you forget it. Uh, Ngaji! Uh, What's the matter? Uh, oh, don't you know me? Ngaji, stay uh, back! Stay back! Uh, You're old, Professor. Uh, hey, Scott, the proof! There's a light in the wing. Look! He's loose. The boot's loose. Wait a minute, Rand. Here. Take my revolver. I'll come along. Come on, stay here. Call for help. I can't hold him with just a revolver. Hurry! Bob! Bob, help me, Bob! He's after me! Ruth! What happened? Are you hurt? That's my answer. I unlocked the cage. He's still over the door. I can just get in here and throw the door before he realized he was free. And you walked down in? No, no. I, I ran to the door, but I hit my foot and walked. Oh, he's gone for help. Oh. Oh. Steady, girl. Steady. Steady. 
The lights are... Yes, the fuse box. Be sharp, the lights. Listen.
So why don't you take advantage of this time-tested two-way action and ask for Carter's Little Liver Pills? Well, friends, it's uh, time to close that squeaking door to the inner sanctum until the same time next week. Invite all your friends to be here with you. It'll uh, give you courage. <laughs> the safety in numbers. Well, next week, our ghost artist... <laughs> pardon me, guest artist... It comes with the highest credentials. He, um, he was on the horror roll at Spirit School. <laughs> Fine student. And for anyone who'd like a snap course in exciting mystery reading, let me suggest this month's Inner Sanctum novel, The Murder of a Novelist, by Sally Wood. It's on sale at your favorite bookstore. Now, friends, here's an urgent, serious thought. Remember the Red Cross. It needs your help now more than ever. And also remember, you are giving both for Christmas and for America. And your presents are United States defense bonds and stamps. Buy all you can afford today. Well, good night. Pleasant dreams, huh? Attention, armchair detectives. One way to solve a puzzling case is to keep your eyes and ears open. What valuable tip would you get from this conversation? I ought to have been home two hours ago. Got to get this order out, Tom. It's important. But I've stayed three nights this week. Well, so is everyone else. Come on, Tom. These days, well, things out. But you fellas don't feel as sunk and low down and out of sorts as I have lately. I can't afford to. There's too much work to be done. So when you get the feeling slowed up and sluggish, why not do something about it? Yeah? What do you suggest? Try Carter's little liver pills. Right. And when you don't feel good, try Carter's little liver pills. They do the work of calomel, but have no calomel in them. Well, they are simple pills made of vegetable drugs. They wake up the flow of one of our most vital digestive juices. When this vital juice flows at the rate of about two pints a day, it helps to digest our food and bring back the glorious feeling that goes with regularity. Then most folks feel like happy days are here again. But be sure you get the genuine Cottage Little Liver Pills. 25 cents at all drugstores. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you Mr. Herbert Marshall in tonight's presentation of Suspense. Tonight, Autolite presents a new radio adaptation of one of the most famous suspense stories ever written, Mary Godwin Shelley's Frankenstein. Our star, Mr. Herbert Marshall. my fences if it's not the senator. How's it look for you, senator? Uh, uh, going to cast your ballot tomorrow, Harlow? Why, senator, I'd no more forget to vote than forget to winterize my car. And now's the time to do it. Get the oil and grease changed, put in antifreeze, inspect the battery cable. And check the spark plugs, too. Right, Johnny Plug Check. The spark plugs are the very heart of your car's ignition system. And when they're right, your chances of starting, even in coldest weather, are better than ever. Well, I'll visit my Autolite spark plug dealer, Harlow. Do that, Senator, because he's the expert on cleaning and adjustment. And if replacements are needed, he'll recommend those world-famous ignition-engineered Autolite spark plugs. 
either standard or resistor type. To quickly learn the location of your nearest Autolite spark plug dealer, phone Western Union by number and ask for operator 25. And remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now, Autolite presents transcribed Frankenstein, starring Mr. Herbert Marshall, and hoping once again to keep you in suspense. Victor. Hello, Mary. The Reverend Inn. Out in the garden, as usual. Do you want me to call him? No, thanks. I'll go out. Well, all right. Tell him not to get too dirty. We're supposed to play croquet with the McDonald's at five. I'll tell him. When's Elizabeth coming home? Tomorrow or Tuesday, I think. You both have to come over for dinner. Love to Mary. See you later. Hi. <laughs> Oh, you're just in time to give me a hand. Whew. Now these Indian summers, hot, too sticky. James, I've got to talk to you. Well, of course. What, anything wrong? You know, you haven't looked too good for the past month or so. Something on your mind? Yes. Oh, well, then. Uh, let's go in the house. I'll get you a beer. We can talk. No, no, not in the house. Do you mind if we walk? Oh, of course not. Oh, wait a moment. I my pipe over there. There we are. Might get some rain. Hope so. I won't have to play croquet. That's not in game. James? Oh, look, now, we're friends. You know you can speak to me. What's the matter? One of your patients die? You made a mistake, perhaps? No, nothing like that. Perhaps it's worse. I'm not sure. Has it anything to do with Elizabeth going away? In a way, yes. Oh. My favorite place. You know, Victor, I think of most of my sermons standing here looking across the valley. Lovely, isn't it? Got a match? Oh, thanks. Listen, I've been doing an experiment. It's very complicated. And I've almost finished. That's wonderful. I think I'm a little afraid of it. I don't know. I've tried to think it out myself. I can't find the answer. Go on. You believe in God, don't you? Oh. I mean, because I don't go to church, you don't think that I don't believe, do you? I don't think that at all. You're a good man. I want you to promise me something. You've got to promise that you'll never breathe a word of what I'm about to tell you. You have my word. You swear? I don't usually break my word. Oh, I'm sorry. Look, I... I've made something. It's tremendous. It's impossible. But I think I've done it. And it goes against everything you believe, James. What? What have you done? I've made a... a thing. I don't understand. I put it together. Heart, brain, nerves, muscle, everything. I've done it. Now do you understand? A complete body... And you're upset because of that? You think that you've done something wrong? But... Oh, you're a surgeon. 
what you've done will help to save a life. If you've learned more about the human body, this experiment can't be wrong. It can only do good. Oh, I shouldn't worry. Last night, I made it move. I'm not certain, but I think I can give it life. Absolute life. Now do you see why I'm afraid? I've created a man. I, uh, I'd better call Mary. She'll be worried. All right, but... Uh, I, I won't say anything. Hello, Mary? No, I'm with Victor. Now, listen, dear, I'm afraid we'll have to put off the McDonald's. Yes, I know. Well, Mary, I, I have something very important to discuss with Victor. It can't wait. Yes, dear. No, no, don't wait supper. I'll have something over here. Yes, I will. Goodbye. You don't have to see this thing if you don't want to, James. What is it? In my lab. I had an addition built on. I'm the only one who has a key. I uh, don't say I believe what you've told me, but uh, how do you know you can make it live? I mean, is it anything more than galvanic action? You'll see. I lock it. I always do. Is that the addition over there? Yes. Hmm. Dark. There aren't any windows. It's better that way. Before I show you, I want to explain. This is what started it. It was mostly an accident. One of the kids brought in his dog... It had been run over, killed. He wouldn't believe it was dead. Expected me to bring it back. I gave it a shot in the heart. And then another with this stuff. A compound I've fooled with for a long time. Yes? The dog came back to life. Just for a moment. How do you know the dog was dead? No, it was. It had been for two hours. All that happened three years ago. You've been experimenting on things ever since? Yes. It's wrong. I don't know. No, it's wrong. You run up the stage, James. What are you going to do? Try to bring it to life? I've got to. I've got to try. Then why did you come to me? I wanted to tell you. I had to tell someone you're my friend. I'm a minister. I preach and believe in the word of God. Do you want to see it? No. No, I don't, but I must. It's not terrible to look at. I've done a pretty good job on it. But it isn't quite finished. I'm not quite done with the face. Well? No. No, Victor. 
Let it be at peace. Don't do it. Even if you can, and I can't imagine it possible, don't, don't, don't even try. Do you realize what it would mean to me, to the world? Standing here with you, looking at that, it's easy to imagine anything. I don't want to. Put it to rest, Victor. Forget it. That's just it. I can't. Not until I find out. One way or the other. Watch. What are you going to do? I'm going to show you what happened last night. I don't want to see. I don't care. I know better. Well, listen to me, Victor. This, this mustn't go on. You've got to stop it. Not yet. Not until I find out. Does Elizabeth know what you're doing? No. Why did you send her away? I didn't want her here when I made the last test. Because you're ashamed. You know it's wrong. You know what she'd think. I'm not ashamed. I think I'm a little frightened at the incredible greatness of what I've done. It's bigger than anything since the world began. If it moves, if you prove your point to me, will you Will you stop then? Will you destroy it? The formulas, whatever papers you have, destroy all of it, will you? I don't know. Hand me that hypodermic, will you? No. All right. There. If I say I believe you, Victor, if... You don't have to be afraid of it. It couldn't hurt you, you know. There's only enough of this stuff to stimulate a small portion of its brain. I'm not afraid of it. I'm afraid for us all. I've never preached to you, Victor. It moved its left foot last night. Then the right. I'm going to try the arm now. Move the light over, please. Thanks. Watch carefully. Only takes a few seconds. Now. Look. Look. It's hand. I know. That's the way it was yesterday. Movement only lasts for a moment, though. I, I don't even think I understand what I've seen, except that it's terrible. Because you don't understand, or because of what it means? I'm afraid, if you like. I'm afraid for you, for what you've done. That thing lying there, you, you've got no right. I won't allow... Oh, what's that? What? Listen. Stethoscope. There wasn't enough. It's breathing, Victor. What have you done? The thing's alive. is bringing you Mr. Herbert Marshall in Frankenstein. Tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Oh, 
Hello, who's this Johnny Plugcheck who's always electioneering about spark plugs? Why, Senator, Johnny is a helpful hinter fighting old man winter. He's the blithe reminder to wise motorists that now's the time to visit your Autolite spark plug dealer to get ready for the cold driving days ahead. Change the oil and grease, put in antifreeze, inspect the battery cable. And check those important spark plugs, too. Because when your spark plugs are right, your chances of starting, even in coldest weather, are better than ever. And if my Autolite spark plug dealer finds my spark plugs need replacing, Harlow... Why, if they're worn out, he'll recommend a set of the world-famous ignition-engineered Autolite spark plugs, Senator. Like the amazing Autolite resistor spark plug. It's one of the greatest advancements in spark plugs for automotive use in the past 20 years. When you have a set installed in your car, you'll get double spark plug life, smoother engine performance, and quick starts, as compared to spark plugs without a built-in resistor. So, friends, visit your Autolite spark plug dealer soon. And remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now... Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Mr. Herbert Marshall in Elliot Lewis's production of Frankenstein, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. C.C. came yesterday, unless the drug was accumulative. Maybe that's it. His eyes are open. What are you going to do? Now, listen to his heart again. It's got to be destroyed. You've got to put an end to it. It's inhuman. Don't you see what you're doing? You can't give it a soul. How do you know? You can't give it. How do you know what I can give it? I've given it life, haven't I? It sees... It breathes, moves, perhaps hears. Yes. Does it hear? Ah! Look, did you see that? It blinked, the head jerked. It hears. It's aware of sound. Does it feel pain? Don't, Victor. It's not an animal. You formed it like a man. Give it the dignity of one. I won't let you do that to it. I've gone this far, James. Put down the scalpel. What are you going to prove by that? I think you must be mad. I don't interfere with your work, James. Why? There's someone at the door. Yes. I think I'd better strap it down on the table. You won't forget your promise, will you? I'm sorry I gave my word. I'm sorry you ever told me about this. I feel I'm as guilty as you are now. Well, whatever took you so long? Hello, Jane. uh, Hello, Elizabeth. Darling, I tried to call from the station, but the line's out of order. Oh, I'm sorry, dear. Did you have a nice time? Lovely. Everybody sends their love. That's good. <laughs> what have you two been up to? How's Mary, James? Oh, very well, thank you. <laughs> what a fine pair of sober sides you are. What did you do, darling? Break one of my good dishes? 
I knew I shouldn't have left you alone. Well, what are we standing in the hall for? Let's go Elizabeth, in the living... Elizabeth, uh, uh, I must be going. Mary will be wondering, particularly if the phone's out of order. It's raining very hard. Oh, no, no, I'll be all right. You'll take an umbrella. There's one in the kitchen. Are you going to tell her? No. You won't unstrap it from the table, will you? Not yet. All right, I'll try to come back later. I want to think. About what? You've changed since you came to see me this afternoon. You really don't care what I think now, do you? I suppose not. Thanks anyway, James. Are you going to let it live? That's funny from you. Have I the right to kill it? You've already done something you had no right to do. Something that you don't even understand. The creation of man isn't your job, it isn't mine. Oh, I know your bright scientific mind's laughing Here's at me. Here's the umbrella, James. But I wish you'd wait until the storm blows over. No, I, I really must get back. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'll, I'll return it tomorrow. Uh, goodbye. Well, what's the matter with him? Have you been arguing religion again, Victor? No, dear. Look, I'm doing a little work in the lab. It's rather important. Do you mind? What is going on, Victor? There's something. No, dear, nothing at all. There isn't. I know there is. What's the matter? Nothing, dear, really. I, I've got to get back to work now. Understand what I say? Do you feel any pain? Are you hungry? I'm a man like you. You are a man. Do you understand? Here. This is a mirror. You can see yourself in it. Look. show anger in his face. There's emotion, though. It sees ugliness and is afraid. I'll have to get it back on the table, put it to sleep. That's the best way. Then use a stronger strap or chain. The eyes just staring. They seem watery. What a marvel it is, though. I want you to come over here and sit down. Do you hear me? 
Come here and sit down. Come here. No, don't touch that. No, stop it. Stop it. Put it down. Upstairs. What? What's happened to you? Who broke the window? The window. Oh, Victor. What's the matter, dear? What's happened? Did you see anyone? No. Did someone break in? Elizabeth, don't ask me any questions. Just do what I ask. Put your coat on. But why? Do... I'm taking you over to the Gibsons. I want you to stay there. Oh, why? Why? What is it? Oh, Victor, please. I can't. I can't tell you about it now. You may have to stay there all night. Hurry, please. We've got to call the police. No, they'll shoot it. I don't want that. It's just frightened, that's all. Oh, being a fool, Victor. Do you realize what it means? That thing roaming about the country? What about the children, everybody in the village? I'm going to get the police. No, please, James. Give me a chance to find it first. Then what? You do a few more experiments, give it speech, perhaps, and it happens again. It's mine. I made it. I'm not thinking of that now. It's Mary and your wife. We don't even know where it is. If it wants to kill, how do you know where it will start? All right. Just give me an hour. Let me try to find it before we call the police. If I do, I'll take it back and destroy it myself. Do you give me your word? Yes. All right. I'll go with you. Thanks, James. I'll get my rifle. Do you have a gun? Yes. But I'm not going to use it unless it... Yes, unless. That's why I'll take mine. Shan't be marked. It's getting dark. Where do you think it might have gone? It's hard to tell. It's afraid of thunder. It might be hiding in the barn. The old Hamilton place? Yeah. How are you going to capture it if you thought of that? I brought along a hypodermic. You're not afraid anymore, are you? No. That's strange, because I am. Not of what it might do to me, but because of the fact that I've seen it. I I know it exists. There's the barn. If it's in there, there's no way out the back way. It was boarded up, wasn't it? Yes. I'll go in. Wait out here, will you? No, I'm coming with you. No. If it's in there, if it tries to escape... Shoot it as it comes out. Oh, don't take the chance. It won't let you get near. I'm going to try. Thanks, James. I lied. 
I'm afraid. And if it's in here hiding, waiting for me, I am afraid. I should have destroyed it. James was right. What's the matter with this flashlight? Wet. Ah, that's better. What's that? In the corner. frightened. It's going to be all right. You'll hardly feel this. It won't hurt. Sure. I might have hit it. I don't know. It's gone. Yes, are you? Victor. Victor. Oh, Victor. He never recovered consciousness again. Outside, I looked for the thing I'd shot at. There was no sign of it. I returned to the lab and burnt every paper, destroyed every single evidence of Victor Frankenstein's terrible experiment. But the result of that experiment has never been found. Nor have I been able yet to convince the authorities that such a thing ever existed. Presented by Autolite, tonight's star, Mr. Herbert Marshall. This is Harlow Wilcox speaking for Autolite, world's largest independent manufacturer of automotive electrical equipment. Autolite is proud to serve the greatest names in the industry. They are members of the Autolite family, as well as other 98,000 Autolite distributors and dealers in the United States and thousands more in Canada and throughout the world. Our family also includes the nearly 30,000 men and women in 28 great Autolite plants from coast to coast and Autolite plants in many foreign countries, as well as the 18,000 people who have invested a portion of their savings in Autolite. Every Autolite product is backed by constant research and precision built to the highest standards of quality and performance. So remember, from bumper to taillight, you're always right with Autolite. Next week, a story based on fact, terrifying in its truth, the dramatic report of a man returning home to find he now lives in a frightened city. Our star, Mr. Frank Lovejoy. 
The program will be heard on Suspense. Tonight's story was adapted for Suspense by Anthony Ellis. Suspense is transcribed and directed by Elliot Lewis. Music was written by Lucian Morwick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. In tonight's cast, Joseph Kearns was heard as James Gibson, Paula Winslow was Elizabeth, and Paul Fries, the monster. Herbert Marshall is soon to be seen in the RKO radio picture, The Bystander. Remember next week, Mr. Frank Lovejoy in The Frightened City. is important to you and your country. If you are eligible, don't forget or neglect to vote tomorrow. Remember, one vote can make the difference. This is the CBS Radio Network. to introduce the man who henceforth will serve as your guide and companion along the dark and often terrifying pathway of the unexplored. He will come to you only as a voice, since for reasons best known to himself, he prefers to remain anonymous. He stands before me now, ready to lead you into the dim and distant world beyond the realm of human understanding. Creep by night presents its master of mystery, Dr. X. Good evening. I have been asked to serve as your master of mystery on these weekly pilgrimages into the unknown. To choose for you stories that peer deep into the tortured souls of men and draw aside the shadowy curtain of the mind. For the time being... I shall have to be known only as Dr. X. My identity cloaked in the very darkness of which we speak. Perhaps some of you will recognize my voice. If you do, I pledge you to secrecy. It will be my duty on this program to select for you stories that have been drawn from the mystery of life itself. From time to time, I will invite leading actors, men like Peter Laura, Bela Lugosi, Edmund Gwen, Basil Rathbun, and others, to participate in our dramatic explorations. But enough of talk. Join with me now as we see unfolded before us the weird chronicle of the walking dead. Uh-huh. 
take you to the Black Island of Haiti, deep in the Caribbean, to a coffee plantation some 40 miles from the city of Port-au-Prince. It is long after dark, and the night is hot and sultry, deadly quiet, save for the rhythmic beating of native drums off in the distance. At long intervals, a human voice cries out, rising above the drums like the dismal wailing of a lost soul. On the porch of the cottage adjoining the plantation office, a man stares out into the darkness, obviously waiting for something. Suddenly, a car swings into the open gate, its headlights blazing. It pulls up before the cottage, and a gray-haired man, carrying a black bag, steps out. He mounts the steps, and the man waiting on the porch greets him. Dr. Nelson? Yes. I'm Walter Craig, manager of the plantation. Glad to know you, Mr. Craig. Sorry about being so late, but your call to the public health office somehow got lost in the shop. We've been under terrific pressure these last few days. Doctor. Too late, eh? One of your foremen, wasn't it? Yes. He's still alive, but I don't think there's much you can do for him. Well, I'll try. Where is he? Across the road in that hut. But before you see him, I think I'd better tell you something about this. Go ahead. The man's name is LaRue. He's a Frenchman. He was released from the penal colony last April on probation. He came to me for a job, and I took him on because I needed help badly. I see. I put him in charge of a crew of native pickers, and he seemed to work out fine. He drove them hard, but he brought the crop in, and that's what counts. Uh-huh. Ten days ago, one of his crew was found dead in the field. Someone had hit the poor beggar over the head with a bailing hook and split his skull. Hmm. I questioned a couple of them, but, well, you know how they are. Tight-lipped. All I could learn was that LaRue had had an argument with the man just before the body was found. LaRue, of course, denied killing him. That night, the rod of drums started a beast. They've been beating every night since. Why? The natives are certain LaRue murdered that beggar. They've been trying to put the hex on him. Hear that? It's the death whale. They know he's dying. They know it because they're killing him. Oh, now, hold on, Craig. It's all right to talk about native customs and black magic, but you can't kill people by beating drums and wailing. Doctor, how long have you been in Haiti? Six months. But what difference does that make? I've been on the island for 15 years, and I've learned one thing. There's a great deal that goes on down here that we know nothing about, that we can't explain. Oh, now, you can call it voodoo or black magic or anything you wish, but it's there. Let me tell you what's happened. Go ahead. The more they beat those drums at night, the more LaRue drove the devil during the day. I warned him to lay off, but he laughed. The night before last... I caught two of them sprinkling graveyard dirt around his hut. What's graveyard dirt? They believe that dirt dug from around a corpse can maim and kill. That's rubbish. Maybe it is. But remember this. These natives are experts on poisons. They use dogwood root and bamboo dust, both deadly and with no known antidote. They use dried and powdered lizard. Some stuff they get out of the gallbladders of alligators. Maybe there is something in graveyard dirt. I don't know. I doubt it very much. Well, at any rate, after I caught those two, I told Lulu we'd better get off the island if he knew it was good for him. He said he'd think it over. But they didn't give him a chance. This morning, he couldn't get out of bed. His legs were paralyzed. I watched him all day, and the paralysis kept creeping up his body. He can scarcely breathe now, and he can't talk. All he does is mumble. That's strange. Let's get a look at him. I'd better tell Miss Carlyle you're here. She'll probably want to come along. Incidentally... She doesn't know anything about this except that LaRue is sick. Who's Miss Carla? Her father owned this plantation. He died back in the States last month. She came down a week ago to look things over. She's inside the cottage. I'd rather not have a woman present when I examine him, Craig, if it can be helped. Well, 
All right. Follow me. Wait a minute. What's the matter? The drums. They've stopped. That's fine. They were beginning to get on my nerves. Come on. No, wait. Do you hear anything? Low voices and the shuffling of feet? No. I do. I'd better get a flashlight. Good Lord. What's that? I thought something was wrong. They've surrounded LaRue's hut. That's Miss Carlyle. Excuse me a minute. I'm out here on the porch. What's happening? All of a sudden, those drums and that chanting. Oh, there's someone with you. It's Dr. Nelson of the Public Health Office in Port of Prince. How do you do, Miss Carlyle? Oh, I'm so glad you're here, Doctor. What's going on out there, Mr. Craig? The natives have surrounded LaRue's hut. Why? I don't know. We better get to him, Craig, before they do some damage. That bracket certainly can't have a dying man. It's too late now. Too late? What do you mean? There's only one way to get along with the natives down here, Miss Carlyle. Don't interfere with them. Leave them alone. That's all well and good, Craig. But you say a man's dying in that hut. I may be able to do something for him. Of course, it's ridiculous. Order them back to their cabins, Mr. Craig. They won't take orders now. They're wild with religious fervor. That chanting you hear goes back a thousand years to when there were savages in the jungle. Do you mean to say that you're going to stand Just by... Just a minute, Miss Carlyle. I'll send the houseboy over to see what's going on. See him inside? Yes. Solo! What not? I don't quite understand why you can't order them away, Mr. Craig. You'll understand if you're down here for any length of time. Oh, here comes the houseboy. You call him, Mr. Yes, Solo. Go over to LaRue's hut and see what's happening. No, Mr. No. No can go. Him make Booker chant. LaRue, Liamour. Booker make Luamour. What's he saying? He says LaRue's dead. That's the Bocard chant we're hearing. They're going to take his body away. They're going to turn him into a zombie. Mr. Of all the ridiculous nonsense. What's a zombie? What are you talking about? A zombie, Miss Carlyle, is a corpse that's been brought back to life. Down here, they call them the walking dead. Do you mean to stand there and tell me that you believe that? I don't believe or disbelieve, Miss Carlyle. All I know is that for centuries, the natives of Haiti have conducted weird rites. Over here, I'll tell you. Some of their ceremonies that make your hair stand on end. Is that any reason for letting a man die with savage drums beating in his ears? He's already dead. How do we know? They never used a Bocard chant except over a corpse. Now, look, Mr. Craig, I own this plantation and you're employed by me. And I insist that you order those natives away from that house. Don't lose your temper, Miss Carl. I'm not losing my temper, Listen but I... Listen to me a moment. I've had 15 years of Haiti. 15 years of learning how to get along with native help. You're not in the United States now. This isn't Georgia, Alabama, it's the West Indies. You're a foreigner in a strange land. A land where the roots of voodoo and black magic grow deep and strong. We know all that, Craig, but the fact still is... Just amazing. a minute, Doctor. I've seen men disappear on this island. Vanish off the face of the earth. They were men who laughed at native superstition just the way you're laughing at it. Don't be stupid, Mr. Craig. Nobody's laughing. We're trying to save a man's life. Why did you call Dr. Nelson from Port-au-Prince if you didn't intend him to examine the route? Yes. Forty miles is a long way to come to listen to native drums. Neither of you can understand what I'm driving at, can you? All I know is that a human being is lying in that hut, deathly sick. When I saw him this afternoon, he was in pitiful condition. Nobody's denying that, Miss Carlyle. Now you say he's dead, just because you hear some chanting and some drum beating. And you refuse to order those natives away so the doctor can examine it. It isn't that I refuse, it's simply Never mind. That... If you won't order them away, I will. Miss Carlyle, come back. Miss Carlyle. Please, don't want to go over there alone. Quick, doctor, after us. <laughs> Find her this way, Craig. We'd better go back to the house and phone for help. We've got to find her. I don't trust those devils tonight. I never saw anything like it. She ran across the road toward the hut, and before we could get to her, they swallowed her up like an avenging cloud. And then they were gone. That's how they work. Did they take LaRue's body with them? Yes. Come on. We'll take a chance and bust in on this ceremony. 
I may be able to keep them in check. Are you sure it's safe? I'm not sure about anything. Keep that flashlight off. I don't want them to know we're coming. Let's go. You know, it's always been a mystery to me why the authorities haven't stepped in to control these natives. They've tried, but it doesn't work. This stuff is a religion with them. That's no excuse for killing and kidnapping. They only kill when someone has done them harm. A rule had it coming to one. What about Miss Carla? She tried to interfere in one of their sacred ceremonies. Hold up a minute. Huh? I can see the light of their torches. Where? Over behind their shacks. See them flickering? Oh. Yes, I see them now. What in the devil? Enough to make your blood run cold. That poor girl, if she's alive, must be out of her mind. Let's get a little closer. And keep your eyes open. They move like ghosts in the darkness. You can't hear them until they're on top of you. I certainly never expected to be stalking natives when I joined the public health service. I'll tell you that. Let's go. Sneak up behind the shacks and see what they're doing. All right. Incidentally, Craig, how many of them do you think there are? About 200. Good Lord. Under ordinary circumstances, they're quiet and peaceful. Oh, I should have known better than to keep over on a plantation. All this is his doing. Well, it's too late now to blame anyone. Over this way, Doctor. Crouch down. There. You can see him now. Hold up. They're all kneeling in a circle. Except the one in the middle. Who's he? The Bokor, I guess. The head man. Oh. They stopped chanting. Now what? I don't know. Anything can happen. Don't move. That's a new chant. He's asking the questions and answering. I've heard that before. I don't like the sound of it. Look, Doctor, you stay here. I'm going to walk right into that circle. You'd better be careful, Craig. That automatic isn't going to be much help against London Maniac. Still, I'm going to tear you to pieces. I doubt it. Anyway, it's worth a chance. Oh, wait, I'd better go with you. No, this isn't your affair. It's mine. In case I do run into trouble, get back to the house as fast as you can and put in a call to the police. Yes, I will. Okay. Wish me luck. Good luck, Craig. What was that? It's Sobo. He's crawling up behind us. I wondered what had happened to him. Go back out. Back to here. We've got to find the girl, Sobo, the missing lady. No, 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 no. Booker man make kill chant. That. What did he say? That chant. It's the kill chant. Go back. Sobo bring missing lady. You know where she is? Sobo find. Is she alive? Ask him. Missing lady lives, Sobo. Sobo find. Sobo bring back. Go. All right. Come on, doctor. Back to the house. Tell you, Craig, I don't trust your houseboy. It's been almost an hour since he sent us back here. The drum stopped beating long ago. He's always been trustworthy. He's been with me 15 years. Let's see if that phone works now. Maybe we can get through to Port-au-Prince. What good will it do? They can't get here in less than an hour. And anyway, the whole police department couldn't tackle 200 of them. Hello? Hello? Ah, there's something wrong with the line. I've got a feeling we'll never see that girl again, Craig. Dead or alive. I want her not to interfere. Why didn't she listen to me? Why didn't she stay where she belongs? Back in the States. How would I have enough trouble down here without this? Now, now, don't lose your head, Craig. Take it easy. Raving and ranting isn't going to get us anywhere. I suggest we go out there and look for her again. The drums and the chanting have stopped. Maybe they'll calm down. I'll go out. You get into your car and drive over to the Larimore Plantation. It's about ten miles from here on the road to Port-au-Prince. Get some help. You think there's time for that? Where are you other foreman? They're both in Port-au-Prince loading a coffee cargo. It would be away tonight of all night. But anyway, I think that's the best plan. You go for help, and I'll see if I can locate Sobo. Wait. I hear someone coming, Craig. Don't open the door. Why not? I'll open it. I've got a gun. <laughs> Who is it? Who's out there? Sobo, Missy. I bring Missy Lady back my... Get the flashlight off the table, Doctor. It's my houseboy. He's got Miss Carlisle. Good Lord. Where is she? Come on. Now you're inside, Sobo. Did you understand? Flashlight on the steps, Doctor. Yes, I am. Easy, Sobo. Easy. Watch the steps. The drums are beating again. Let them beat. All right, carry her in, Sobo, and put her on the couch. 
Close the door, Doctor. Be sure it's locked. Yes, sir. Put her down, Sobo, carefully. Let me look at her, Craig. In the meantime, get some water. Water, Sobo. You're all right now, Miss Carlyle. Just relax. Open my bag, Craig. You'll find some spirit for the moon. Right. There, now. Just relax. There you are. Thank you. Now, just breathe deeply, Miss Carlyle. That's fine. Once more. There we are. Here comes the water. Oh, pour some in the glass. Put it on the table, Sobo. We need to... Feel better now, don't you? Yes. There you are, Doctor. Oh, thank you. Now, drink this, Miss Carlyle. Here, I'll hold your head up. There, now. Just lean back. It was horrible. Simply horrible. I don't think you'd better talk for a while. I've got to tell you. They put his body in a grave. An open grave. A roof? Yes. What happened when you ran across the road toward the hut? I, I don't know. Suddenly they were surrounding me. I could see their teeth flashing in the darkness. I screamed, and that's all I remember until I woke up. Yes? I was lying on the ground. They were all kneeling around the grave. His body was in it. There was a torch burning, and one of them was chanting. Bokor, make la moon, What's that? Sobo says the man chanting was the Bokor. The one who makes the dead rise and become zombies. Oh, well, I think we've had enough of native superstition tonight, Craig. Let's stick to the facts. How did you get away from them, Miss Carlyle? Oh, no one was watching me. They were all watching the body in the grave. I I crawled off in the darkness. And Sobo found me. Brought me back here. Yes, well, it's all over now. You had us worry for a while. I think you'd better try to get some sleep. I, I can't sleep. All I keep seeing is that poor man's body. Don't think about it. Anything we can do. Isn't there some way of giving him a decent burial? You might as well know what this is all about, Miss Carlyle. LaRue murdered one of the natives. Oh. Murdered him ten days ago. They've been out to get him ever since in their own way. That's why the drums were beating every night. I told you it was their usual ceremony, just those enough to frighten you. But it was more than that. They were seeking revenge. Now they've got it. You mean because he's dead? That's only part of it. They're going through the zombie ritual now. That's what you saw at the open grave. According to their belief, they can bring LaRue back to life. Make him a living corpse who'll obey their orders. Well, then why were they putting his body in a grave? That's part of the ceremony. They bury him until midnight. Then the corpse rises as a zombie. That's right, isn't it, Sobo? Why, it's the most ghastly thing I ever heard of. And the most ridiculous. I wouldn't be too sure about that, Dr. Nelson. How long does the, the person remain a zombie? As long as they want him to. The Bokar, the head man, controls that. They can stop it at will. How? You're asking me questions I can't answer, Doctor. Questions I wouldn't even attempt to answer. But this much I know. There are zombies on this island right now. How they came into being, I don't know. But they're here. I don't believe it. I hope I never have to prove it to you, Doctor. Do these these zombies talk and, and act like human beings? No. It's a, it's a horrible thing to say, but they look dead. Their eyes are hollow and their skin has no color. They walk like people in a dream, heavy-footed and leaden. When they try to speak, all that comes out is weird mouthings. It isn't very pleasant, I can assure you. And that's what they're going to do with LaRue? I suppose so. Why? Revenge. As I told you, he not only killed one of them, but he drove them unmercifully. Once he's a zombie, they'll drive him, make him sweat. He'll become their slave. Do anything they order. You know that's nonsense, Craig. I'm not so sure, Doctor. Have you ever seen a zombie a living corpse? 
Only once. And I never want to see another. You mean there are actually people who've been raised from the dead? Of course not. You can take it from me as a physician that death is final. Absolutely final. Perhaps throughout the rest of the world. But not in Hades. Now listen, Craig. All your men seem to do is frighten this girl. I think perhaps the best thing is, Carlisle, would be for you to drive back into Port-au-Prince with me. Just midnight. We'll be there at one thirty. How about it? I... I don't know. It's a good idea. Chances are nothing's going to happen, but... What is it, Tobo? Step on the porch. What? He says he heard steps on the porch. Don't be alarmed. I don't hear anything. Be in the shed. Step. Where's the flashlight? I have it here in my pocket. Wait. Don't move. What's that? Tobo's right. Someone is on the porch. You stand over there with a the flash, Doctor. Right. Get back, Sobo. I'll open the door. No, no, no. Stand back, I said. Hey, listen. Just take him into a bedroom and come back here. Hurry. Yes, come, Miss Carlyle. Oh, please, please, don't open the door. Get out of here, Doctor. Come, my dear. There's nothing to be afraid of. I know, but we'll take care of him. Dr. Nelson. Yes, yes, I'm coming. Stand back, Sobo. That's it. Miss Carlyle's right now, Craig. Good. Now, stand behind me a little to the left and keep that flashlight on the door. You're not serious about it being a zombie, are you, Craig? Whatever it is, it didn't sound human. All set now? Yes. All right. I'm going to open the door. Keep that light steady, Doctor. The door is locked, you know. I locked it when we came I in. I know. Craig, perhaps it might be better to... Don't worry, there are six bullets in this automatic. That should be enough. Get ready now. Here goes! There's nobody out there. Careful, Craig. The porch is empty. Are you sure? Positive. Come on there with that flashlight. You too, Sobo. We heard heavy footsteps, didn't we? And that weird moaning? Yes, but there's no one here now. Flashlight around. That's it. See anything? No. Not a thing. Well, there may be some footprints in the driveway. Let's check. It's hard to tell at night. There's a good clear print. That could be mine when I got out of the car. Matter of fact, it is. I suggest, Craig, that we lock up and remain in the house until daylight. No sense taking chances. Probably the best idea. What I don't understand is... Good Lord! That's Miss Carlisle! Come on! Bravo, follow me! What room is she in? She at the end of the hall. What happened? Alive, will you? Strange, yes. All right, if you think he's alive, we'll take him alive. 
Get down low and crawl toward that hut. Keep your light out. Ready? Yeah. Door of the hut's open. When we get close enough, flash a light through. You see, you can't get out any other way. No. The door of the front window. I'm watching them all. This 38 doesn't stop him. Nothing will. Is this far enough? I think so. I'm ready if you are. Go ahead. Flash the light through the open door. The hut's empty. No, it isn't. He's stretched out on the bed. See him? Oh, yes. What's he doing that for? I don't know. Keep the light on him. Come on. This may be a trap, Craig. Be careful. I'm watching him. Hold the light steady. Steady as I can. Are we going to the hut? Yes. Come right behind me. Well, there he is, Doctor. Hold the light, Craig. Let me get a look at him. Keep it on his face. Miss Carlyle was right. His lips are blue and his skin is ghostly white. Are you sure this man is LaRue, your foreman? Yes. I can't believe it. What do you mean? Is this the man we saw running into the hut? Yes, of course. And you were right. Evidently, strange things do happen on this island. They do? Yes, Craig. This man has been dead for three hours. Columbia Network takes pride in presenting Orson Welles in the first production of a unique new summer series by the Mercury Theater on the Air. single year, the first in the life of the Mercury Theater, Orson Welles has come to be the most famous name of our time in American drama. Says Collier's Magazine, 23-year-old Orson Welles threw a bombshell into Broadway. Robert Benchley writes in The New Yorker, The production of the Mercury is, I should say, just about perfect. Time Magazine declares, The brightest moon that has risen over Broadway in years. Welles should feel at home in the sky, for the sky is the only limit which his ambitions recognize. And finally, the United Press remark... Meteoric rise of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater continues unabated. With four hit shows in its first year, the Mercury might well close its door on a season unparalleled in Broadway history. But Mr. Welles has long been working on a project for a greater audience, the Broadways of the entire United States. The Columbia Network is proud to give Orson Welles the opportunity to bring to the air those same qualities of vitality and imagination that have made him the most talked-of theatrical director in America today. And it is this project which Columbia brings you this summer, the first time in its history that radio has ever extended such an invitation to an entire theatrical institution. But here is Orson Welles himself to tell you about it. The director of the Mercury Theater, the star and producer of these programs, Orson Welles. Good evening. The Mercury Theater faces tonight a challenge and an opportunity for which we are grateful. We will present during the next nine weeks many different kinds of stories. Stories of romance and adventure, biography, mystery, and human emotion. Stories by authors like Robert Louis Stevenson, Emil Zola, Dostoevsky, Edgar Allan Poe, and P.G. Wodehouse. In the cast tonight are Martin Gable, 
the Cassius of our production of Julius Caesar, and George Kulouris, who played Antony in that production and appeared also in our Shoemaker's Holiday and Heartbreak House, and other leading Mercury Theater players. We're starting off tonight with the best story of its kind ever written. You will find it in every representative library of classic English narratives. It's Bram Stoker's Dracula. The next time I speak to you, I am Dr. Arthur Seward. George Kulouris plays Jonathan Harker, and Martin Gable plays Dr. Van Helsing. It's Dr. Seward who tells the story, and so for the moment, goodbye, ladies and gentlemen. I'll see you in Transylvania. The Mercury Theater on the Air presents Orson Welles as Count Dracula in his own version of Bram Stoker's great novel, Dracula. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Arthur Seward. I'm here tonight to bear witness to the truth of certain events which you may find it hard to believe, but I ask you to believe them. I have here certain documents, telegrams, clippings from the press of the day, memoranda, and letters in various hands. All needless matters have been eliminated so that a history almost at variance with the possibilities of contemporary belief may stand for this simple fact. I present you first with excerpts from the private journal of Jonathan Harker. I, Jonathan Harker, lawyer's clerk, article to Peter Hawkins, Esquire of Exeter, England, am writing this journal in the hope that if misfortune overtakes me, it may one day come to the eyes of those who love me. I set out from London on the last day of April to visit one of our clients in Eastern Europe. On May the 3rd, I arrived in Budapest and came after nightfall to Klausenburg on the borders of Transylvania. At Bistritz, there was a letter of welcome for me from our client, informing me that his carriage would await me at the Borgo Pass. It was signed, Dracula. The road was rough, but still we seemed to fly over it with feverish haste. When it grew dark, there seemed to be some excitement among the passengers. They kept speaking to their driver and looking at me and urging him on to greater speed. The crazy coach rocked on its great leather strings. The mountains seemed to come nearer to us on either side. Coachman! Coachman! What is this? Where are we? You are nearing your destination, young hare. This is the Borga Pass. There were black, rolling clouds overhead. And in the air, the heavy, oppressive sense of thunder. Now, we were through the pass. The young hair is not expected after all. You are early tonight, my friends. A calèche with four horses had drawn up beside us. Let me help you, sir. The coachman smiled, and the lamplight fell on a hard-looking mouth with very red lips and sharp-looking teeth as white as ivory. 
began to move. I looked back. The coach and its load of passengers had vanished from sight. We swept into the darkness of the past. I struck a match. It was within just a few minutes of midnight. And then a dog began to howl somewhere far down the road. The wind was rising, moaned and whistled through the rocks, and the branches of the trees flashed together as we swept along. It grew colder and colder still, and fine powdery snow began to fall. The baying of wolves sounded nearer and nearer, as though, as though they were closing round us to every side. We kept on ascending, always ascending. The howling of wolves was growing less. Presently, it ceased altogether. And just then, the moon broke through the black cloud. There's a ring of wolves running alongside the carriage. In silence, with white teeth and lolling red tongues, with long sinuated limbs and shaggy hair. Welcome to my house. I must have fallen asleep. The carriage had pulled up in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle. The coachman was nowhere to be seen. Welcome to my house. Come freely. Go safely. And leave something of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula? I am Dracula. Face was strong. Very strong. Aquiline. The mouth, so far as I could see under the heavy mustache, was fixed and rather cruel looking with peculiarly sharp white teeth. Hmm. You hear them, Mr. Harker? Uh, the wolves? The children of the night, as you say, Mr. Harker. The wolves. Listen... Come now. There are many things you must tell me tomorrow. Of England and of the estate there you have purchased for me. Ah, uh, yes. The estate is called Carfax, I believe. Yes, that is so. But now I will detain you no longer. You will find your room in readiness. And I advise you not to leave it during the night. This castle is on the very edge of a terrible precipice. A stone falling from the window would fall a thousand feet without touching anything. I explored. There are doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all of them locked. The door to the great hall, the door to the courtyard, every door in the castle is closed, bolted against me. The castle of Dracula is a prison, and I am a prisoner. The next night, I couldn't sleep. So after a few hours, I got up and lighting my candle, I placed my shaving mirror on the dressing table and was just beginning to shave. You seem restless, Mr. Harker. I hadn't seen him, although the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. I turned to the glass again. Count Dracula was close to me, and I could see him over my shoulder, but there was no reflection of him in the mirror. It was blank. I started and cut myself on the side of the throat. The blood was trickling down my neck. Count, my mirror! Wipe the blood from your face, Mr. Harker. And take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. When I woke, I found most of my things were gone. My passport, my notes, my letter of credit. I could find no trace of them anywhere. And my door is locked from the outside. June 20th. There is work of some kind going on in the castle. 
Now and then I hear the faraway muffled sound of mattock and spade. And last night, the second of the predated letters which Dracula made me write, the second of that series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth went forth. Dracula. Yes, my young friend. Well, what of me? When am I free? When can I leave this place? Free? Mr. Harker, you're always free. You want to leave? Would you like to leave tonight? Yes, yes, in God's name. My dear young friend, not an hour should you wait in my house against your will. Come, follow me. The door seems to be bolted. How strange. The door is locked. Well, in God's name, open it. As you will, Mr. Harker. You English have a proverb which is very close to my heart. Welcome the coming, speed the parting guest. Good night, Mr. Harker. Shut the door! Shut the door! I tell you, shut the door! The door is shut, Mr. Harker. I take it. You will remain. Morning, June the 30th. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. Oh, God preserve my sanity. I have never seen Count Dracula by day. At sunrise, at the first cockcrow, he is gone. I... I don't understand these things. I only know that the wolves obey him, and that he is a man with hair on the palm of his hands, with sharp teeth, and no blood in his face. He casts no shadow. He cannot be seen in a glass. And he moves like a bat across the sheer face of the castle walls. He eats no food and is mortally afraid of the crucifix. As I write this, I hear in the courtyard the rolling of heavy wheels and the cracking of whips. And there is in the passageway below a sound of heavy boxes being set down. Boxes shaped like coffins. And I know what they hold. Boxes are filled with holy earth from the chapel beneath the castle. This is the last box being nailed down. And now I hear the heavy feet tramping again. The door shut. The chains rattle. In the courtyard and down the rocky way, the roll of heavy wheels, the crack of whips. Gone. I'm alone in the castle. I'm alone in the castle. I'm alone in the castle. I'm alone. I'm alone. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Seward. Mr. Harker's journal terminates at this point. I now present in evidence a clipping dated August 8th of that year from the Yorkshire Telegraph from our correspondent in Whitby. One of the greatest and suddenest storms on record was experienced here today. The weather has been somewhat sultry, but Saturday evening was fine. The band was playing. The piers were crowded with holidaymakers. The wind fell away entirely during the evening, and there was a dead calm. There were but few lights at sea. The only sail noticeable was a foreign schooner under full canvas, which was seemingly going westward. A little after midnight came a strange sound from over the sea, and high overhead the air began to carry a strange, faint, hollow booming. 
Then, without warning, the tempest broke. And there, with all sails set, was the foreign schooner rushing with terrific speed toward the shore. A searchlight was turned on her. And there, lashed to the helm, was a corpse with drooping head which swayed horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. A moment later, she crashed. And then a strange thing was seen. At the very instant she touched, a huge dog sprang up on deck from below and running forward, jumped from the bow onto the sand and making straight up the east cliff toward the graveyard, vanished into the night. The coast guard going aboard at dawn found the dead man fastened to a spoke of the wheel. Tightly clutched in one hand was a crucifix. The man must have been dead for quite two days. In the pocket of the dead man's coat was found a bottle, carefully corked, containing a roll of paper. This proved to be an addendum to the ship's log. There was found on board only a small amount of cargo and that of a most unusual nature. Apparently the ship carried nothing but earth, common earth, packed away in wooden boxes, shaped much like coffins. of the Demeter, July 6th, finished taking in cargo, a queer cargo, boxes of earth, at noon set sail, east wind, fresh, crew, four hands, two mates, cook, and myself, captain, July 11th, entered Bosporus, at dark, passed through Dardanelle, mate reported in morning that one of crew, Valjodin, was missing. Took Larbert watch eight bells last night. He was relieved by Chilegian. Who came to his There's something aboard oh. this ship. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't laugh, Captain. In the rain last night. Oh. A tall, thin man go up companion way and along the deck forward and disappeared. When I go to the bow, no one. And the hatchways all closed. July 22nd. Rough weather last three days. All hands busy with sails. No time be frightened. Past Gibraltar and out through straits. All well, July 24th. Last night, another hand was lost. Disappeared. My Chilean, leave all watch midnight. Then we never see him again. Oh, double watch now. Double hey, watch. don't take watch alone no more. Double watch. Double watch. July 29th. At single watch tonight, as crew too tired to double. When morning comes... Hey! Hey, Milo! Balanchi! Balanchi! Is Balanchi, Milo? Balanchi's gone! Balanchi's gone like the earth! Like all the earth. Mate and I have agreed to go armed henceforth. July 30th. Last night, we are nearing England. Weather fine. All sails set. Captain! Captain! The man in the watch mistakes was missing! Both missing! Now, only self and mate and one hand left to work ship. August 3rd. Two days of fog and not a sail sighted. Midnight, I went to relieve the man at wheel, and when I got to it, found no one there. It's here. I know it now. I saw it, like a man, tall and thin and ghastly pale. It was in the bows looking out. I gave it the knife, and my knife went through it. What? Empty as air. What is it? What are you talking about? It's here, and I'll find it. It is cold. The 
one of those boxes of earth. I'll unscrew them one by one and see. And see. He is mad. Stark raving mad. It's no use my trying to stop him. He can't hurt those big boxes. They are invoiced as common earth. Down in the corner. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him. That's all that's left. That's all that's left. August 4th. I am all alone on my ship. And still the fog. I dared not go below. I dared not leave the helm. So here all night I stayed. And in the dimness of the night, I saw it. I saw him. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better to die like a sailor in the blue water. But I am captain. And I must not leave my ship. I shall tie my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail. And along with them I shall tie that which it dare not touch. My crucifix. I am growing weaker. And the night is coming on. God and the Blessed Virgin... Help a poor, ignorant soul trying to do his duty. You are listening to the Columbia Network's first presentation in a new summer series of unique dramatic productions featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. In just a moment, our story of Bram Stoker's Dracula will continue. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. We continue now with Columbia Network's presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in Dracula. Telegram, Seward, Perfect, to Van Helsing, Amsterdam. Lucy West Tenra in alarming condition. Cannot diagnose. Come at once. Seward. Telegram, Van Helsing, Amsterdam, to Seward, Perfect. I'm on my way to you. Please arrange the examination immediately, my arrival from Helsing. Ladies and gentlemen, I must now explain that six months before the events recorded here, I had become engaged to a young lady, Lucy Westenra, who had to have been married in the spring. My old teacher, Professor Van Helsing, arrived at four the next afternoon. I took him at once to Lucy's house. She lay in a bed asleep. She was ghastly, chocolate pale. The red seemed to have gone even from her lips and gums. The bones of her face stood out. Young miss is bad. Very bad. She must have blood or she will die. Yet she is not anemic. The qualitative analysis of her blood gives quite normal condition. It is strange. I do not like to think how strange. Look! My God, her throat, look! The black velvet band that she always wore had dragged up a little and showed a red mark on her throat. Just over the external jugular vein were two punctures, not large, but not wholesome looking. The edges were white and worn looking. Well? Well, what is it, Professor? What's wrong with her? 
Speak frankly. You can tell me the worst. I wish I could, Stuart. I wish I could. But I do not dare. But won't you tell me any, anything? I will tell you this. Your young lady is in a danger greater than death. You must believe me. If you leave her for one moment and harm befalls, you will not sleep easy thereafter. September 8th. I sat up all night with Lucy. Arthur, I'm afraid. Night, dear. You can sleep tonight. I'm here watching you. Nothing can happen. And I promise if any sign of bad dreams, if I see anything, I'll wake you at once. Will you really? Then I'll sleep. I sat all night by her bedside. And she did not wake once during the night, although... Her brows or a bat or something flapped almost angrily against the window panes. September 11th. Still quoting from my private journals. At this time that I received a message from Perfleet. Read 10.20 p.m. St. John's Hospital. Serious complications. Case 891. Your immediate presence, London. Imperative. I had no choice. Sometime later, a paper was found among Lucy Westenra's belongings. I write this and leave it to be seen so that no one may by any chance get into trouble through me. I went to bed as usual, taking care that the window was closed. Dr. Van Helsing had directed. About two in the morning, I awakened. I went to the door, called out. Arthur! Arthur! There was no answer. Something's broken the window. Alone. Then I go out. House seems empty. The air is full of specks, floating, circling in the draft from the window. The light burns blue. What am I to do? Something very sweet and very bitter all around me. I seem sinking in the deep water, and there's singing in my ears. You shall be flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. Ah. September 12th, late. Only resolution and habit can let me make an entry tonight. We found her sprawled on the floor. There was a draft in the room from the broken window. Her throat was bare, showing the two wounds, looking horribly white and mangled. We are too late, my friend. We have failed. God's will be done. She's dying. Yes. She's dying. Stay beside her. It will make much difference, mark me. Whether she dies conscious... Or in her sleep. It was late in the afternoon before she opened her eyes. Arthur, oh, my love, I'm so glad you've come. I took her hands and knelt beside her. Her breath came and went like a tired, peaceful child's. And then the light from the setting sun fell on her face, and then insensibly, 
A strange change came over her. Her eyes grew suddenly dull and hard. Her breathing was heavy. The mouth opened and the pale gums drawn back made the teeth look large and sharp. Arthur, oh, my love. I'm so glad you've come. Kiss me. Very darling, kiss me. Not for your life. Not for your living soul and hers. <laughs> Lucy! She's dead. Poor girl. That's peaceful at last. The end. Not so. It is only the beginning. Wait and see. September 25th, a Hempstead mystery. The Kensington horror, the stabbing woman, and the woman in black are vividly recalled to mind by a series of events that have taken place recently in the neighborhood of Hempstead. Several cases have occurred of young children straying from home or failing to return from their playing on the heath. In all these cases, the children have given us their excuse that they have been with a beautiful lady who offered them chocolate. In each case, the child was found to be slightly torn or wounded in the throat. The wound seemed such as might be made by a rat or a small dog. The Hampstead Horror. Another child injured by the beautiful lady. We have just received intelligence that another child missed last night was only discovered late in the morning. It has the same tiny wound in the throat. Well, Stuart, what do you think of that? You mean to tell me, my friend, that you still have no suspicion as to what poor Lucy died of? Nervous prostration, following great loss and waste of blood. And how was the blood lost or wasted? You are a clever man, my friend, and a good doctor. But you do not believe that there are things that you cannot understand. You are wrong, Stuart. Are you aware of all the mysteries of life and death? Can you tell me why in the pampas there are bats that come at night and open the veins of cattle and horses and suck dry those veins? Hmm? How in some islands of the western seas there are bats which hang on trees all day and then when the sailors sleep on deck because it is hot, Split down on them, and then in the morning I found dead men as white as Miss Lucy was. I understand none of these things. After tonight, Stuart, if you dare to come with me, perhaps then you will understand. September 29th. Before dawn. Now it is done. And I would sooner die a thousand deaths than live again to what I did this night. We will spend the night, you and I, here in this churchyard where Miss Lucy is buried. We enter the tomb, then we open the coffin. You shall yet be convinced. Take care, Van Helsing. Miss Lucy is dead, is it not so? Then there can be no wrong to her, but if she is not dead... In some difficulty, we found the West Denver tomb. I took up my place behind a yew tree on one side of the tomb, Van Helsing on the other. I was chilled and frightened. 
Suddenly, I saw something moving between two yew trees, a dim white figure which held something at its breast. The figure stopped. I could not see the face, for it was bent down over what I saw to be a fair-haired child. There was a sharp little cry, such as a child gives in sleep, or a dog as it lies before the fire and dreams. Then the thing saw us. She drew back with an angry snarl. The lovely blood-stained mouth grew to an open square. If ever a face meant death, I saw it at that moment. Then suddenly she turned and vanished in the direction of the tomb. Child is not harmed. We leave him in a safe place where the police find him. There's more to do. Come. Now we were in the tomb. There in the coffin. The thing lay. Like a nightmare of Lucy, the pointed teeth, the blood-stained mouth. Then Helsing never looked up. From his bag, he took out a book, his operating knives, a heavy hammer, and a round wooden stake, some two or three inches thick, sharpened to a fine point, and hardened over a fire. Stuart, the life of this unhappy woman is just begun. Then she become what you call undead. There comes with the change, the curse of immortality. She cannot die, but must go on age after age, adding new victims. Because all that die from the praying of the undead become themselves undead and prey on others. So the circle goes on, ever widening as the ripples from a stone thrown in the water. But if this lady, this undead, be made to rest as true dead, then the soul of the poor lady whom we love shall be again free. Tell me, what am I to do? Take this stake in your left hand. The hammer in your right. Yes. Place the point over the heart. Yes. Then, when I begin the prayer for the dead, in God's name, strike. Oh. Are you ready? Now. Domine Jesu Christe, Fili de Vivi, qui manus tuas ex voluntate patri. On the morning of July 11th, a man was found on the border of Transylvania. He talked wildly of wolves and boxes of earth and blood. He gave his name as Jonathan Harker. In the hospital at Clausenburg, he improved sufficiently to make possible his removal to England. I'm still quoting from my own personal papers. But there his condition remained so serious that he was committed for observation to a private ward in my hospital at Perfeet. Here he did so well that in three weeks he was completely recovered. It was during this time that his wife, Minna Harker, brought to the attention of Dr. Van Helsing and myself the journal that her husband had kept while a prisoner in the castle of a certain Count Dracula in Transylvania. I have before me the record of a meeting that took place in my study in Perfeet, transcribed by Minna Harker. October 1st. Meeting began soon after 8. Jonathan next to me. Dr. Seward opposite to Van Helsing at the head of the table. My friends, there are such things as vampires. Had I known at first what now I know, one so precious life had been spared to many of us who love her. The vampire which is amongst us is of himself so strong that he can direct all the elements. The storm, the flood, the thunder... 
He can command all the meaner things, the moth and bat, the owl and the fox and the wolf. How then are we to begin our strike to destroy him? How shall we find his place? And having found it, how can we destroy him? My friends, it is a terrible task that we undertake. To fail here is not mere life or death. If we fail, we become as him. Foul things of the night, as him. What do you say? I answer for myself. Come me in. I'm with you. The professor laid a small golden crucifix on the table. We took hands and our solemn pact was made. My friends, we too are not without strength. The vampire flourishes on the blood of the living. Without this he cannot live. He throws no shadow. He makes no reflection in a mirror. He can transform himself to a wolf, to a bat. He can come on moonlight rays as elemental dust he can see in the dark. He can do all these things. Yet he is not free. His power ceases at the coming of the day. Then, until night, he must remain in the shape in which he finds himself. And except in his coffin home, in those earth boxes, he cannot rest. When we can confine him in his coffin, then, my friends, if we obey what we know, we will destroy him. At that moment, something flapped wildly against the window, then... You hit it? I don't know. We looked out of the window. Against the black sky, we could see nothing. Data in our position. From the Count's castle in Transylvania to Whitby came 50 boxes of earth. All of these, to our certain knowledge, were delivered at Carfax. Recently, 12 of these boxes have been removed. First step. Ascertain whether all the rest remain in the deserted house next door or whether any more have been removed. We must trace each of these boxes and sterilize the earth with holy water so that he can no longer seek safety in it. And we must hurry. The events of the next few days are described in Jonathan Harker's journal. October 2nd, 5 a.m. Just returned from the empty house. Left Mina here at home. Well, we've done our work at Carfax. The place was filthy, the air stagnant and foul and alive with rats. We counted the boxes, only 38 of them. And over each one, the professor went through his same mysterious work. It was dawn when we got back. I found Mina asleep. She looks paler than usual. October 2nd. Soon after they left, I fell asleep. I remember hearing the sudden barking of the dogs. And then... There was silence. I got up and looked out of the window. There was a thin streak of white mist moving across the grass along the wall of the house. It dawned on me that the air in the room was heavy and dank and cold. The gaslight came only like a tiny red spark through the fog. I could see through my eyelids. The mist grew thicker and thicker. Then, as I looked, the spark divided and seemed to shine on me through the fog like two red eyes. You shall be flesh of my flesh. 
blood. Of my blood. Blood. Of my blood. October 2nd, 8 p.m. We're on the track. Twelve boxes were delivered last week to an empty house at 347 Piccadilly. My dear friends, until the sun sets tonight, Dracula must retain whatever form he now has. We have this day to hunt out all his lairs and sterilize them. Then he will have no place where he can move and hide. But we have only until sunset. The house in Piccadilly was empty. The one of perfectly the same sickening smell was in the air. On the table we found a clothes brush, a brush and a comb and a basin. The latter containing dirty water which was reddened as if with blood. The boxes are back here. Eight, nine, ten, eleven. Only eleven. There's a twelfth box somewhere. Gentlemen, it is after six. The sun is setting. We have no time to lose. He will return at any moment. Open the boxes. Quiet. Listen. It is he. The window. Your bullets, gentlemen. You think you'll baffle me? You with your pale faces all in a row like sheep in a butcher's. You think you've left me without a place to rest. But I have more. The time is on my side. The one you love is mine already. I have known her. Already my mark is on her throat. Flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. She is with me always, over land or sea. October 4th morning. Another meeting in the study of Turkey. We must find that last remaining box, gentlemen. We must find it. As long as that earth exists impure, as long as there remains one place of refuge for Dracula... There is no safety and no peace for any soul in England. And for the undead, never peace so long as he lives. Blood of my blood. Blood of my blood. Mina! How do you know that? Oh, well, quiet. quiet, quiet. With me. With me always. Over land and sea. Mina, darling, how did you know that Dracula said those... I don't know. The words just came. Strange. There are times when somehow I feel that I'm with him. At sunset? Yes. Just at sunset. And again at sunrise. Dr. Van Helsing, if I... If at that time, you... Have you the courage? Courage for what? What do you mean? Dr. Van Helsing here. Your question I will question her, yes. In a state of hypnosis. The one you love is already mine, he said. She is with me always, over land or sea. Ah, Count Dracula. 
Perhaps she will betray you if she is really the true, this one we love. Who knows? If she is really with you over land or sea. Blood of my blood. Mina. Yes. Answer me, Mina. Are you with him? Yes, I am with him. Where are you? I do not know. It is all dark. What do you hear? The lapping of water. I can hear it on the outside. Then you are on a ship? Yes. What else do you hear? There is the creaking of an anchor What chain. are you doing? Still. Oh, so still. It is like death. It's like death. Here is a report from Mats and Peabody. Shipbrokers, dated October 5th, according to Lloyd's List, the only sailing ship that left for the Black Sea yesterday was the Tsarina Katrina, bound for Varna. Some hours before she sailed, a man came alongside, all in black, driving a cart with a great box in it. This he lifted down single-handed and carried below. No one remembers having seen him after that as heavy mist came up over Doolittle Dock until sailing time. The rest of London Harbor remained... Completely clear. Our plans are made. The average sailing time from London to the Black Sea is three weeks. We can travel overland to the same place in three days. We shall be there waiting for him when he arrives. October 15th, arrive barn about five o'clock. Mina seems stronger. Every morning before sunrise and just before sunset, she speaks to Van Helsing in a trance. Are you with him, Mina? Tell me, are you with him? I am with him. What can you see? Nothing. All is dark. What can you hear? I can hear the waves lapping against the ship and the water rushing by. The wind is high. I can hear it in the shrouds and the bow throws back the foam. So, Tsarina Katrina is still at sea, hastening on her way to Varna. The Count cannot cross warning water. So we cannot leave the ship without being observed. What do you hear, Mina? Happy waves and rushing water. Darkness. Darkness and wind. A whole week of waiting. Daily telegrams from Lloyd's. Not yet reported. Not yet reported. Not yet reported. Not yet reported. Rushing water and creeping mud. Darkness. Darkness and wind. October 24. Telegram. Lloyd's London to Harker. Marina Katrina reported this morning from Dardanelles. Lloyd's London to Harker, October 28th. Marina Katrina and heavy fog reported entering Galatz Harbor at 1 o'clock today. Galatz! Galatz is 38 hours from here, and the first train for Galatz leaves at 6.30 tomorrow morning. My friends, we have lost. Three hours late. Something is going on. 
Zarina Katrina. A man come aboard with an order an hour before sunup to receive a box for a party by the name of Dracula. That is Pepper Zarita. Uh, Emmanuel Hillsheim, his name was. Mr. Hillsheim? Yes. You went out of the box yesterday. I guess the Kyloff by order. Kyloff. Mr. Kyloff? Hello. This morning they find him dead inside the churchyard of St. Peter. They find him dead. With his throat torn open. October 30th, evening. There are two ways in which Dracula can get back to his own place. By land or by water. We've examined the map and find the most likely river is the Seraph. You and I, see, we'll charter a steam launch and follow him up the river. Van Helsing and Mina will take the train to Veresti, and from there they will from go... From there we shall go in the track where Harker went from Bistrit over to Borgo. If you have not caught him before, we shall be awaiting Dracula there. <laughs> Got a carriage here, and we start in an hour. Our enemy is still on the river. October 31st. We can run at good speed up the river at night. There's plenty of water, and the banks are wide apart. November 1st, evening. No news all day. We hear that a big boat went up the river before us, going at more than usual speed. November 4th. All day driving. The country gets wilder as we go. By morning, we shall reach the Borgo Pass. November the 4th, evening. We've left the launch. We've got horses and we follow on the track along the river. We are armed. Look! Quick! There they are now! Heading west! With the dawn, we could see the Slovaks some miles before us, dashing along the river with their wagon. On it is the great box. Afternoon. We reached the Burgo Pass. Van Helsing! Look! Look! We could see a long way all around us. Far off, beyond the white waste of snow, was the river like a black ribbon curling. Between us and the river, not afar off, came a group of men, mounted slowbacks hurrying along. In the midst of them was a wagon which swept from side to side. On the wagon was a great box. Following fast, coming up from the south. Stuart and Parker, the Slovaks with their heavy wagon, are losing their guards. Now the horsemen are not more than a mile behind. Now the wagon is quite close to us. We can see the great box swaying crazily. Now they are almost upon us. Now has happened a strange thing. The wagon smashed into a great rock dead in the snow lost its front wheels, and turned over on its side, jammed against the stone. The horses tore loose from their traces and bolted, and the slowbucks scatter and vanish after them. Then silence. Silence like comes uh, after ringing a bell. 
His face. It is Dracula. Sprawled out stiff and twisted in the smear of his own holy earth. The box, in falling, has emptied the dirt onto the snow. His face is old-looking. The skin is like paper. Dr. Seward, there's no time. Look at the sun. Sunset. In one minute there is darkness and he is forever lost to us. Have you the stake of wood and the hammer? Here. Now, Seward, pray for us. Kneel down and pray. Harker, the stake of wood over his heart. Be not afraid, Harker. Do not look into his eyes. The hammer. Now, Harker, strike. Strike. Flesh of my flesh. Guilt of my guilt. Death of my death. Speak and be manifest in the instant of your master's peril. Elements of darkness, rain, evil winds, mist, and mold, and tempest. Right! This instant is no longer than the space between two heartbeats. But the night is not here. And I am lonely. Come to your master, my children. Beguile him now in the instant of his peril. Beguile him with the sound of your names. Claw. Wing. Tooth. Scale. Tissue of flesh. There is one very dear to me who has not answered. My love. Mena. There is less than a minute between me and the night. You must speak for me. You must speak with my heart. Give them to me! Jonathan, give them to me! The stake of wood and the hammer! Arthur! I shall never forget that moment. The look on poor Mina's face as she stood there, the angry scar standing out on her throat, her eyes like living coals in the last red of the sunset. She had torn the stake and the hammer out of my hands with the strength of an animal. Mina, do you know what you've done, woman? Do you know what you've done to us? You've released him, the evil is free. Look! The sun! As we looked down at Dracula, the eyes saw the sinking sun, and the hate in them turned to triumph. Flesh. Of my flesh, come to me, my love. Come into the night and the darkness. You have served me well, my love, my bride. Ladies and gentlemen, all the evidence in this case is now before you. I've added nothing, and to the best of my knowledge, I've omitted nothing that might help to throw light on the extraordinary events of the year 1891, 
which culminated on that terrible evening in the Borgo Pass. There remains only this one last report. When Mina Harker seized the stake and hammer from her husband, I believe she was under some form of hypnosis. She herself remembers nothing. But whatever influence was at work on her, she must, at the last moment, have rejected it. For at the exact instant the sun disappeared, it was Mina Harker who drove the stake through the heart of the thing that called itself Dracula. At that same instant, even as we looked, the wound on the side of her throat was no more. As for Dracula, before the scream of the creature had died from our ears, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. In the final moment of dissolution, there was in the face a look of peace such as I never could have imagined might have rested there. Tonight's production of Dracula by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater was the first of nine CBS broadcasts in which this brilliant group will bring to life a series of great narratives, all presented in the immediacy of the first-person singular. In presenting them each Monday evening at this time during the summer season, the Columbia Network is bringing a complete theatrical producing company to the air for the first time. In the cast tonight, Dr. Van Helsing was played by Martin Gable, Jonathan Harker by George Kolouris, Dr. Seward by Orson Welles, the Russian captain by Ray Collins, the mate by Carl Swenson, Mina Harker by Agnes Moorhead, Lucy Westenra by Elizabeth Farrah, and Count Dracula by Orson Welles. Bernard Herman composed the original music and conducted. Dan Seymour speaking. Davidson Taylor supervised the production for the Columbia Network. And now here is the director to tell you about next week's Mercury Theater production, Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, what are your favorite stories? If there is one you're particularly fond of and would like to hear on the air, will you please write me about it? Next week, the Mercury Theater is going to tell you Robert Louis Stevenson's exciting yarn about pirates and the sea, Treasure Island. Until then, just in case Count Dracula has left you a little apprehensive, one word of comfort. When you go to bed tonight, don't worry. Put out the lights and go to sleep. It's all right. You can rest peacefully. That's just a sound effect. There. Over there in the shadow, see? It's nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. I think it's nothing. But always remember, ladies and gentlemen, there are werewolves. There are vampires. Such things do exist. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
And now... The Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted, and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of The Golden Bracelet of Ammonitis. There doesn't seem... Over there, next to the sarcophagus. It's one of the workers. He shouldn't be in here. Something's happened to him. Here, you. Get up. Get out of here. Just a minute. What are you feeling his pulse for? He's dead. What? He's dead. Look, around his wrist. That's the snake bracelet the mummy wore. There's a strange mark on his wrist. Like the fang marks of a snake. The Hall of Fantasy will present the golden bracelet of Amoniris in just a moment. And now for our story entitled The Golden Bracelet of Amoniris. I had gone over to Egypt with Dr. Jason Freeman's archaeological group to discover, if possible, the tomb of the pharaoh Amoatan. Amoatan had been one of the greatest rulers of the Third Dynasty. Other parties before ours had covered every inch of ground in the Valley of Kings, only to meet with failure. Dr. Freeman believed the lost tomb was several miles away from the valley, and accordingly, our base of operations was set up some 20 miles north of the Valley of Kings. It was about midday, almost a month after we had begun excavating. give to be in a nice air-conditioned room in Cairo. I should imagine you'd be enjoying every minute of this, Charles. I can enjoy it and still be uncomfortable, Dr. Freeman. Yes, I suppose so. <sighs> we don't seem to have had much luck so far. But we will. I'm sure of it. One of the men is calling to us. Perhaps he found something. Well, let's see. You all right? Uh, we're coming. Where's Professor Porter? There he is over there. He's coming too. Yahavaka, we find tomb. What? We find tomb. Look. Here. Let me see. Well? He's right. And we're in luck. The seal is intact. What is it? What's happened? We were in luck when we started to dig here, Porter. We found the tomb. And the seal on the door? It's intact. That means grave robbers didn't break in. The tomb is just as it was left centuries ago. Is it? Amoatan's tomb? We don't know yet. We won't know till we get inside. There's no marking out here by the door. Maybe the sand is covering it. What are we going to do? We'll clear this area by the doorway. Then we'll use dynamite to blast it down. Men back far enough? There isn't anyone except us within 200 yards of that door. Good. The wire's attached, Porter? Yes. Then set it off. You've done it! Yes, a good clean job, Porter. When do we go in? You've forgotten about the heat, eh, Charles? You're caught up in the excitement of discovery. Well, it's to be expected. Yes, but when do we go in? About two hours. We'll give the air a chance to get in there and replace that which is present now. I don't want to take any chances, one of us being overcome by the stale oxygen in there. Jason, 
Yes, Porter? It's strange, but I have the feeling that we shouldn't go inside that tomb. Well, I don't know. I must be reading too many murder stories in my spare time. Everything inside that tomb is dead. Uh, of course, nothing can hurt us. Are you ready? Yes. You told the man to stay back at the camp. Yes. All right, then. Let's go. It's a good thing we waited. It still smells stale. Musty in here. Seems strange that there was no inscription on the door outside the tomb. Nor is there any in this passageway. Burial chamber will let us know whose tomb this is. Uh, shine your lights up ahead. I think we're coming to it. Yes, yes we are. Now, we'll find out if we've discovered the tomb of Amalat. There's an inscription over there. Shine your lights over there. See if you can make it out, Porter. It's not the tomb of Amalatan, Jason. It's the tomb of Amoniris. Amoniris? Yeah. The legendary queen of the Third Dynasty. It's truly a great discovery. Then you're not disappointed. Of course not, you? Charles. We've come across something the world thought was lost forever. Amoniris, the greatest of the queens of Egypt. Even in the most complete histories of Egypt, only vague references are made to her name. But we were sure she existed. And this will prove it. Who was she? Queen of Egypt, master of men, and one of the cruelest rulers of the ancient world. To disobey her slightest wish meant death to the one who incurred her wrath. Let's see if we can open the sarcophagus. This burial chamber is magnificently preserved. I only hope that the mummy of Amoniris will be in the same condition. There's an inscription on the side of the sarcophagus, Jason. What does it say? Let me see. Ah. Whomsoever violates the resting place of the queen and steals her wealth from her shall die the death she reserves for him. Hmm. Nice and friendly. They went to a great deal of trouble to frighten the grave robbers away. Inscriptions like that one appealing to the superstitious natures of their people. They hoped they would save their tombs from being ransacked. For the ancient Egyptians believed that they needed their wealth and possessions after death. Well, it certainly made me think for a minute. Oh, well, there's nothing to it. Isn't it right, Gordon? Uh, no, no, there's nothing to it. Now, let's see if we can't roll the top of this sarcophagus off. The three of us together. Right. All right. All together now. A little more. That does it. Whomsoever violates my tomb shall die. We'll return to the Hall of Fantasy in the tale of the Golden Bracelet of Amoniris in just a moment. 
Back now to the Hall of Fantasy and the tale of The Golden Bracelet of Amoniris. Both Freeman and I stared at Dr. Porter in amazement. He had backed away from the sarcophagus and stood staring down at the still figure of Amoniris in horror. Then he looked apprehensively around the burial chamber as if searching for someone. What's the matter with you, Porter? I tell you, I heard something. Well, I thought I heard something, too, like an animal howling. And that's all? Yeah, that's all. Well, I heard the animal, too. I didn't hear any voice, Porter. Maybe you imagined you heard it. It's possible that I imagined it, but it was so real, as if she were standing right beside me. Stop looking around the burial chamber. There's no one else in here. Are you sure? Of course we are. You you don't look at all well, Porter. Maybe you'd better go outside and get some air. No. No, I'll stay here with you. Then forget about what you thought you heard. Sound like a superstitious fool. I'm sorry, but... Forget it. What do you want me to do? We're going to unwrap the mummy. See what jewels and articles of value it has in this person. You've done this before, Porter. I think you should take charge of the job. That's it. That's the last of it. What a remarkable state of preservation she's in. Look, on her left wrist. That's a gold snake bracelet. Yes, I noticed it before. Beautiful workmanship. It looks almost as if it were alive. But it's not. It's getting late. We better go back to camp now. We can catalog the contents of the burial chamber tomorrow. It moved. What moved? The snake bracelet. It moved. Nothing's moved, Porter, except your imagination. You don't stop it. I'm going to recommend that you be sent back to the States. Oh, I'm sorry, Jason. I, I don't know what's the matter with me. I I thought it moved. You're not a superstitious man, Porter. Now, that's one of the reasons I wanted you with me in this expedition. But you're sounding like a frightened fool. I'll forget this nonsense once and for all. We'll go back to camp, eat, and then get a good night's sleep. I'm sure that's all you'll need to make you forget about your strange notions. What time is it? Almost 10.30. We'd better turn in if we're going to get that good night's sleep you were talking about. I don't feel like sleeping. Oh, you will once you lie down. You'd better go to your tent, Porter. Hmm. Yes, I suppose you're right. Well, good night. I'm... Worried about him, Charles. Oh, he's just tired, Jason. He'll be all right in the morning. Oh, I hope so. All this nonsense about a voice and then saying you saw the snake bracelet move. You know, you, you'd think something was happening to his mind. <coughs> that jackal out there. I hope it finds something to eat and stops howling. Ever since we made camp here, at night it's been out there, as if it were waiting for something. Oh, you get used to it after a while. I... I heard that cry while we were in the tomb today. I heard something myself. But it could have been the wind rushing through the passageways. You... sound as if you're afraid. Oh, I don't think I am. (laughs) That's what the ravings of an upset mind can do. If Porter isn't better in the morning, I will send him back. Well, you know, while we were in there today, I could almost believe that he had heard something. Now, don't tell me you're starting to believe it. 
was that? I don't know. It sounded like a scream. That's what I think it was. I heard a scream. Yes. So did we. It came from the tomb. Are you sure? Yes. My tent is at least a hundred yards closer to the tomb than you are. I heard it quite clearly. Maybe we better take a look, eh? Get your flashlights. One of the workers might have gone in there and hurt himself. Let's see what's happened. Anyone in here? Shine your lights around. Well, that doesn't seem... Over there. Next to the sarcophagus. It's one of the workers. He shouldn't be in here. Something's happened to him. Here, you. Get up. Get out of here. Just a minute. What are you feeling his pulse for? He's dead. What? He's dead. And look. Around his wrist. That's the snake bracelet the mummy wore. There's a strange mark on his wrist. Like the fang marks of a snake. Let me see. Those are fang marks. I... What's wrong? I felt it move. I felt it move. What move? The snake bracelet. You're insane. No, Jason. It did slip down his wrist a little. And now... It's on the floor. Well... There's nothing to be afraid of, Porter. It's just a gold bracelet. An inanimate object... It can harm no one. In the days that followed, we cataloged all the contents of the tomb. It was an exceptionally rich store of treasures that had been buried there with the queen. Many of the objects we left with the Egyptian Department of Antiquities. But we were allowed to bring the mummy of Queen Amoniris and a small part of the jewelry and other articles back to America with us. Among them was the snake bracelet. About a month after our return, Jason Freeman invited Dr. Porter and me over to his house one evening. Gentlemen, my wife, Laura. How do you do? A pleasure, Mr. Jason. Freeman. spoken of you often. And he's spoken of both of you often also, right? I feel as though I know you already. I, uh, I see you're wearing the gold bracelet we found in the tomb. Yes, sir. A gift from my husband. The other things he presented to the museum. Uh, did he tell you yes. about... Yes, yes, he, he mentioned that it was found on the wrist of a dead man. Porter seems to believe that, uh... uh excuse me. Hello? Yes. This is Jason Freeman. What's that? Well, it's not possible. I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for letting me know. Goodbye. Who was it, dear? Dr. Stevens. The curator of the museum. Anything wrong, Jason? Yes. He said the mummy of Amoniris is missing from its glass case. The case is completely shattered, but the mummy's gone. Well, who would want to see Stevens it? said the watchman told him he saw something walking across the grass outside the museum. What do you mean? He said... It was the mummy he saw. You are listening to the tale of The Golden Bracelet of Amoniris on this week's journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to our story entitled The Golden Bracelet of Amoniris. 
Jason Freeman had just received a telephone call from Stevens, the curator of the museum. From him, he learned that the glass case in which the mummy of Amon Iris had been placed had been destroyed, and the mummy was gone. Are you serious, Jason? Quite serious, my dear. Stevens said the night watchman had seen the mummy walking. That's absurd. No, 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 not necessarily. Since I've been back, I've tried to learn everything I could about Amon Iris. Uh, the bracelet you're wearing, Mrs. Freeman, has a definite connection with her. What are you talking about, Porter? Well, look. Amoniris had that snake bracelet especially made for her. Once she came into possession of it, she built her whole life around it. She believed that if the bracelet was taken from her, it would result in her death. And so she guarded it jealously. But one night, as she lay sleeping, it was stolen from her wrist. And she awoke to find it gone. She learned that one of the high priests had it in his possession. And so she went to him and demanded it. She went alone. When she walked into the trap the priests had laid, they killed her. I know that story too, Porter. That's only one of the legends that surround Amoniris. That's right, Jason, only one. But I'm not through telling you about her yet. Oh, why don't you forget about her, Professor? Because it may mean our deaths if I do. I think your mind's going back on you, Porter. I don't care what you think. I'm trying to help you, and I think you should listen. And I think that you... Oh, no, Jason, let him talk. According to the legend surrounding her, it is said that if the bracelet is removed from her wrist, Amoniris will wake from her long sleep to recover the bracelet. And with her, she will bring death. I know that story too, Andrew. And it's all Tommy, right? I don't think it is, Jason. I think it's true. Then I think you're as stupid as the story you're telling. Jason... I'm sorry, my dear. The mummy is gone, Jason. Well, someone could have taken it. Not according to the night watchman. And he could have been drinking. He saw something, Jason. Something out on the lawn in front of the museum. I'm going to take this thing off. What's the matter with you? All of you. This is the 20th century, not the Dark Ages. How far is the museum from here? About half a mile. And it shouldn't be too long. What do you mean? The mummy should be here soon. Listen. Dog, only a dog. I'm not so sure. It could be the cry of a jackal. Oh. I refuse to stay in here and listen to such stupid nonsense. I'm going out for a walk. Uh, Jason, don't go out there. I'm not going to stay here and listen to a lot of foolishness. Jason! Let him go. Oh, I'm sorry that I made your husband angry, Mrs. Freeman. It's just that I believe that we never should have entered the tomb of Amoniris. Andrew. Yes? Mrs. Freeman set the snake bracelet down on the coffee table. Now, no one has touched it since. Do you see what I see? It's moved. Oh, that's no dog out there. What are we going to do? I think that we should... That's Jason. We better see what happened. He shouldn't have gone out there. Let me in. Open the door, Porter. It's out there. What's out there? The mummy. I saw it. Then, then the story is true. I owe you an apology, Porter. I'm sorry. What are we going to do? It must be destroyed. But how? That thing from the past is 5,000 years old and still lives. It's getting closer to us. We have to think of something. It's trying to break down the door. Get back. Do you have a gun in the house? No. Any other weapon? Nothing at all. Besides... Good would bullets do against it. Uh, that door won't hold up much longer. We have to think of something. Fire. What's that? The way to destroy it. Fire. 
Jason, do you have any kerosene, any turpentine, anything flammable around the house? Not that I know of. Oh, I, I have some cleaning fluid in the kitchen. Get it, and some old rags that we can soak with it. I'll be right back. Now, look, when it breaks in, mm-hmm. it'll probably head first for the bracelet and then for us. Yes. Now, we'll soak the rags in the cleaning fluid, and when it gets close enough to us, we'll light them and throw them at the mummy. It's been kept dry through all these centuries. It should burn like a torch. The next time, the door will break in. We must be absolutely certain that the burning rags fall on the mummy. What about the house? What do you want to save? Your house or your life? Here it is. Good. Now, pour the cleaning fluid over these rags. Here, I'll do it. Make sure the rags are completely soaked with the fluid. Don't worry, I will. Ah! It's there, standing in the doorway. Seize the bracelet. Remember, when it picks up the bracelet, we throw the burning rags at it. That's all the cleaning fluid. It's got the bracelet. All right, light the rags. Right. All right, hurry. It's starting for us. All right, throw the rags. That's it. It's starting to burn. But it hasn't stopped. Back away, back away. sure the fire's completely out? Yes. I was afraid that we'd never be able to stop it. So was I. Yes. But we did stop. And the mummy is destroyed. Well, there's nothing left but ashes. And the bracelet. Yes. And the bracelet. Only the flames melted it down so that it's lost all shape and form. That's all there is left of the golden bracelet of Amoniris. So runs tonight's tale of the unusual, the terrifying, the unknown. Join us again when next we journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy to hear another strange tale of the supernatural. All characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. This is Arch Obler bringing you another in our series of stories of the unusual. And once again, we caution you. These Lights Out stories are definitely not for the timid soul. So we tell you calmly and very sincerely, if you frighten easily, turn off your radio now. And now, if you haven't already done so... 
turn off your lights now and listen to Revolt of the Worms. All I can do is sit and think and wait. Wait for the floors to lift and the walls to crash. Facts. Think of facts. Yes, a journal of facts. Think how it began, why it's happening. Journal of facts until the walls crash in and the thick flesh. Charles Prentice. There's a fact. Chemist and fool. Fool. Run away. Run away. Run away. Run away, Run away from reality. War. 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 Run away. You mean we're going to live in this godforsaken place, Charles? Yes, Claire, I remember. You did say that. And I said... Of course we're going to live here. It's ideal for my work. But we're so far away from everything, Charles. So far away from what? Your friends? My friends? All right, Charles. Whatever you say, Charles. You never disagreed with me, did you, Claire? Why, it's so quiet up here, it's almost as if we are out of this world. Yes, I remember. Young Jackson, you did say that. I like working with you, sir. Why, up here, it's almost as if we were out of this world. Out of the world. I wanted to be out of the world. Hide. Until it's over. Yes, why not? Why not? What are you going all the way up there for, Prentice? To do my work, of course. But who cares about propagating new varieties of roses at a time like this? The times have nothing to do with it. I'll do what I please. I'll do what I please. But, Prentice, to leave suddenly like this, it doesn't make sense. Roses are fine in normal times, but a chemist of your ability? In times like these, certainly there's more productive work that you could do. I'm not interested in your opinions. I'll do what I please. You hear me? Do what I please. Do? What I please. Yes, sir. Everything's ready, sir. Greenhouse. All ready for you, sir. One week ago, Wednesday. Does the wind always blow up here, Charles? Eh? I said the wind. Does it always blow like that? Why? Frightening. Mighty less frightening than the things that are happening back in the city. I suppose so. I know so. Where's that boy? Jackson. Yes, sir. The phosphates. Are they ready yet? Uh, not quite, sir. Well, get them ready. Every one of the plants. We work late tonight. Very late. Work late and hard. That was the answer to everything. Chemist, if your ability. In times like these, there certainly must be more important work than propagating roses that you could do. A chemist of your ability. In times like these, there certainly must be more no, important. No, no, I wouldn't think of that, I told myself. Wouldn't think of that. Roses. Yes, develop the greatest rose in the world. That would be my answer to them. While they bombed and burned, I'd develop the largest rose the world had ever known. And when the world settled down again, I'd come back and bring the rose to them, and they wouldn't care if I had run away. My plan. Why did it go wrong? Claire, why did it go wrong? Claire... Oh. Dead. You're dead. They killed you. Dead as I'll be dead. If I could only think, why did it go wrong? Well, I put the solution that's left over, Mr. Prentice. Yes, I do remember. That was it. Oh, gosh, Mr. Prentice, I'm trying to understand, but I'm so tired. You must keep working. The only salvation is to work. What's salvation got to do with roses? Don't be impertinent. Do your work. 
Yes, sir. Two cc for each plant, and careful, don't let any of it touch the stem. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You weren't very happy, were you, Jackson? Those were things you couldn't understand. It isn't that I, I don't want to work, Mr. Prentice. It's just that I'm all mixed up. These roses, why do I have to pour this stuff on them every hour on the hour? It doesn't make sense. Hormones, sure, I know what they are. Secretions from the glands in the human body. Sure, I know what they're for. Make us grow and everything. I get it. That, that's what you try to do with the roses. Make them grow fast and big. But how do you know these hormones will work on plants, Mr. Prentice? And how do you know how much to give them? And, and how big will the roses grow, Mr. Prentice? Questions. Everlasting questions. But now I ask them, why did it go wrong? Thursday. Thursday? What do I remember? Well, I throw the hormone mixture that's left over, Mr. Prentice. Mr. Prentice, I said, well, I throw the hormones... No way! Here. Can't you see that I'm working? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. I remember. Friday. What a Friday. Friday night. <laughs> Yes. Is that you? Yes, Charles. What are you doing walking out here in the dark? It's a lovely night. Romantic at your age. I just like the night. You women, come back to the house. All right. Crazy walking around in the dark. <laughs> That's, oh, what's the matter with you? Can't you walk? If I hadn't caught you... It's slippery. What are you talking about? It's so slippery around here. Don't talk foolishness. But it is. By George, you're right. What? Stand still, I'll light a match. I had some... Yes. Now, we'll see what... Charles! Stop grabbing! What? <laughs> Worms. What? Well, can't you see? Just ordinary earthworms. Nightcrawlers. We just walked over a few of them. Now, you women with your fears and your squeamishness. Walked on a few worms and you make more noise and more fuss. Yes, I remember. Friday night. The, the extra hormone solution, where'll I throw it, Mr. Prentice? Mr. Prentice, where'll I throw the extra hormone solution? Saturday. And then the night. Jackson! Jackson, where are you? Jackson, I told you to stay in the house. Jackson, where are you? Time to feed the plants. Jackson, where are you? He's not Claire. here, Charles. Uh, Claire, you startled me walking up like that. I didn't mean to. That infernal boy, where is he? Have you seen him? He's not in the house. But I told him not to go out. I told him only an hour ago he's got to work all night. The plants must be watered every hour on the hour. He went out. Well, why didn't you stop him? Now I have to go chase after him. Jackson! Jackson, are you out there? Come in. Charles, what did you think it was? Thunder. It's starting to rain. Shut the door. Shut the door, I say. But the boy... If he hasn't the sense to come in out of the rain, it's just too bad. I've got enough to do with worrying about my roses without worrying about him. And don't you go out after him. He'll come back. He'll come back. Saturday night. And when it was day again... Charles. Charles, wake huh? up. Please wake up. Oh, where? You're on the couch. You fell asleep on the couch. Charles, get up right away. Well, what's the matter with you? Why should I get up? 
What difference does it make? Listen to me, please. The boy, he isn't back yet. Huh? Jackson, he isn't back yet. Charles, where can he be? The storm, you slept, I waited. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Have you looked in his room? I just came from there. Charles, where could he have gone to? All through the oh, storm. Oh, stop talking so much and let me get up. Go see. Oh. Must you follow me? Why didn't you wake me up? Why did you let me sleep? I must have fallen asleep, too. I opened my eyes. It was day. Oh, Charles. Oh, stop old Charlesing me. Crazy young fool, so he spent the night outside. So what's the difference? Teach him a lesson. Well, no wonder he isn't back yet. Fog like this, it's as bad as night. Charles, All I... right, all right. What am I supposed to do? Go wandering through fog like a bloodhound, like a fool? Don't worry, he'll be back. He'll be back. But you never did come back, did you, Jackson? When the sun came out and that everlasting wind came up and lifted the fog. Charles. Charles, come here. Where? Uh, where are you? Back of the house, Charles. Come quickly. Oh, well, what is it? What do you want now? The boy isn't around. I, I've looked everywhere. Now, Charles, what, what happened back here? What? Look at the ground. Well, what? Who plowed this ground up? Plowed? Yes, certainly plowed. Can't you see? Some crazy drunken fool plowed up the ground. But during the night? Charles, how could that be? You believe what you see, don't you? It's that boy. What? Yes, that Jackson went crazy, found a plow, tore up the ground and ran away. Went out of his mind. That's it. The boy's gone crazy, tearing up the ground. Gone crazy. Gone crazy. And then, that night, that same night after I thought Jackson had gone crazy, run away, I went back to my work, Sunday night. Charles, Charles, can I speak to you? Charles, please stop your work and talk to me. Haven't you lived with me enough years to know I don't like to be interrupted when I'm working? But I'm frightened. Are you? Really? Charles, stop it. Are you out of your mind? Yes, maybe I am. What did you say? Maybe I am crazy. All right, maybe I am. That's the only way I could have lived with you all these years. What? Endured your selfishness, your unbelievable selfishness. Well... Everything's for you for 20 years, everything for you. Now, that's enough. Your work, your pleasures, what you think, what you want, everything for you, nothing for anyone else. Will you the shut up? The gentle little Mr. Prentice, the scientist, the good husband who never lifts his voice. Mother in heaven, I'd rather be married to a fool with a heart in him than you. Well, I mean... You haven't got a heart. You never had a heart. It's you, you, and no one else, and that boy can be dead out there and you don't care, and I can be dead and you don't care as long as you're safe and doing what you want to do. Will you go away and let me go on with my work? Charles, Charles, I'm fighting that boy. Now the noises. I'm asking you for the last time to go away and let me do my work. But listen to me. You've been out here all night. I've been in the back of the house alone, and I've been listening, and I didn't want to come in here, but I had to. Charles, things I said, I meant them. For years, I've meant them. All right, that doesn't matter. But I tell you this. There's something outside the house. Find out what it is, Charles. Twenty years ago, I thought you were an irrational woman. I thought I'd trained you out of that irrationality. I was wrong. I'll humor you just this once, but never again. Where are these noises? At the back of the house. The lantern handed to me. 
Yes. Thank you. You're frightened. You don't have to go with me. I want to know. What? That you're a fool? Well? So what am I supposed to hear? There's nothing. Hello out there. Hello. Well, what now? Listen. To what? Listen. To what? I... I thought... You heard the wind whistling through the cracks in your brain. Come into the house. Charles, wait. Wait for... Here? Yes. So what? Give me the lantern. If it's that boy... Well, it could be him, couldn't that it? That crazy young fool playing practical jokes. If I get around the corner of the house and... <laughs> going on here? Charles, something moving under the ground. Yeah. So dark. Can't quite make out. Charles, what is it? I don't know. I don't know. Animal of some sort? Take me back to the house. Oh, go yourself. Moon will come out of the clouds. See what this is. Give me the lantern, Charles. No, I want to see. The house is back there. Turn around and go back to it. Go ahead. All right. All right. Yes. It is something burrowing. Infernal moon come out. I'd see there. Coming out. Now I'll see what... Holes. Holes in the ground all over. What are they? Who... Bomb craters? But that isn't possible. No. Animal burrows. But what animal could make a hole four feet across? What animal... Claire! Where are you? Claire! So dark, I can't see you. Claire! Where are you? Claire! Claire! Where are you? Claire! Yes, Claire. Claire! I ran through the night looking for you. The echo of my voice is still in my ears. Looking for you and the moon was under the clouds and I couldn't see you and I couldn't find you. And then I did... You had fallen into one of those craters, into one of those holes in the ground. I couldn't see you, but I could hear you. But which one of the holes? They were all over, ground pockmarked with them. I ran around in the dark. I could hear you, but couldn't find you. And then the moon, it was out again. Oh, blast the moon. Why did it come out? If it hadn't come out, I wouldn't have seen. And my head... Stop it, stop it, stop it, Claire, stop it. I can still hear you. I can still see you. Your body down in that hole. As I ran toward you, suddenly I saw that something else was coming toward you. Something that glistened wet in the moonlight. Something long and slimy. A great twisting snake. Yet not a snake. Not a snake. And the fear in me made me fall to the ground, and I saw as I lay there, I saw. The thing moved toward the hole in the ground as if you weren't there. 
as if it were blind and couldn't see, like a great blind worm. It was a worm. A worm, 10, 20, no, 30 feet long, crawling in fright to its home in the ground. And it moved toward you, Claire. Covered you. Crushed you. You're dead, Claire. You've been dead for two days. Why should I tear out of my memory all the horror of how you died? Of how young Jackson must have died? Well, I throw the extra hormone solution, Mr. Prentice. Well, I throw the extra hormone solution, Mr. Prentice. Yes. That's very funny, isn't it, Jackson? I ran away and I was going to bring back to the world the greatest rose. But I brought back the greatest worms. The hormones you threw away soaked into the ground and into them. Hundreds of little worms burrowing under the ground, soaking into their flesh, into their life process, miraculously increasing the growth of them. Until overnight they grew and grew without limit into those terrible horrors. And they are still growing. I can hear them. For the last two days, squirming around the house and over it, great monstrous pieces of slimy flesh squirming and writhing. Hundreds of them, thousands of them, burrowing under the ground and at night coming out of the ground. I have seen them, a sea of flesh. A sea of worms. Yes, I hear you out there, you worms. You were under the ground and now there's no room underground for you, so you come out of the ground. The world was yours first, so now you're going to take it back again. The world for the worms. You're under the house. You're lifting it. The walls will fall and crush me and I'll be dead and I want to be dead. Yes, now I know why this is happening to me. I thought I could run away from the world and what is happening in the world. You hear that, you worms out there? I thought I could run away. Another following. 
and another. They're filling the room. Worms all around me. The worms. The worms. Worms covering cold flesh, wet flesh, worms, the worms covering the worms. Transcribe stories of love and adventure, of comedy and crisis, of conflict and human emotion. Today, an unusual and dramatic account of superstition and hate in the bayous of Louisiana, as we bring you William Frug's terrifying story, The Lou Garou. Good morning, Gus. Legrand. It will be a hot day today. Yes. Your shrimp nets are filled? Where's Marie? Why, why, she is taking some medicine to Brother Coxey. He, he does not feel well today. You mean he's drunk? I want to talk to you about your daughter. Yes, Gus? I'm afraid for her. Afraid? Why? She's been seen again on a levee with a stranger. I did not know. There's bad talk. Tell me, Gus, tell me. They say the strangers killed Pierre's baby. Zeb? It does not seem possible. I know the bios. Strange things happen. But this thing, this thing is, is, no, I do not believe it. Well, it's not what you believe, but what the others believe. That is true. So I've come to warn you. Your daughter is young and very pretty and, well, I, I wouldn't like to see her harmed. We can't help the stranger, but Marie... Uh, thank you. Thank you, Gus. I will warn Marie. Mm-hmm. 
We wait here. Ghost come soon. What's he want? How I know. He say it is important. Pilot, oh, that is the life. Not you, Taco. You smell like shrimp. What is wrong with shrimp? A riverboat pilot smell like hair slickum. There's a mighty big difference, boy. My cousin is pilot. He go on the boat to New Orleans every month. I've been to New Orleans lots of times. Pilot smart fellow, Willie. They make big money. <laughs> Plenty of women, I bet. <laughs> Plenty of everything. Uh, to be a riverboat pilot, that is the life. Oh, here come Gus. Aye. Hello, Gus, my friend. Hello, Gus. Where's the wine? Mosquitoes. Here, here, I, I have some wine. Gus! Orange wine. It's good orange wine. I make myself. Well, you drink it. I'm used to better. Give it to me, Taco. I ain't so particular. Here. I just come from Pierre's house. How is little Traffer? Angry. Very angry. What? Ain't he getting enough for his muskrat? His baby's dead. Dead? Yeah. Well, he's got 11 more. Oh, I am sorry for Pierre. It was swamp fever, huh? Don't be so sure, my friend. What do you mean, Gus? There are other ways for babies to die. What you getting at? You two seen stranger? The tall one, the quiet one. Yeah. Yeah, I seen him. Walking down Levitt the other night with your gal Marie. <laughs> hey. Uh, Gus, I, I have seen him. Yes, baby took sick the night the stranger come. Huh? That's right. Uh, that was same night I lose my cow. Remember, we all look. I remember well. Cow just disappear. The night the stranger come. The night he come, baby get sick. My cow disappear. Only one thing can make this happen. I, I seen a ghost once in the bayou. The stranger, he lives in the bayou. Animal disappear, baby die. Evil. What evil spirit can do this, Taco? What evil spirit can make himself into animal? Can kill babies? Lugaru. We will? Lugaru. Gus, what we will do? We fix him before he fixes us. You come to see me? Come to buy me some salt. Oh. Marie, we have a customer. Oh. And Papa, it is Zeb. So, I see. Come to buy me some salt. Papa, Zeb is from Mississippi. He's a stranger here. He does not know anyone. I don't mind it, none. The bayous have strange ways, Mr. Zeb. Zeb is going to be a big farmer someday, Papa. He is learning to grow things in the swamps. In the swamps? Here is your salt, Mr. Zeb. Good day. Don't you want me to pay? Leave your money on the counter. Thank you. Zeb? Yes, 
we walk again in the levee? Well. The night? I reckon. Marie. Oui, Papa? Goss, come to see me today. Why don't you like Goss no more? I like Zeb, Papa. Goss is afraid for you. He does not think well of this Zeb. Oh, Goss is jealous. There are others. They say Zeb is evil. I do not believe Marie, I know these people. I know the Delta. You must promise me you will not see Zeb again. baby is dead. Oh, I am sorry, Pierre. And you saw the stranger near your cabin. Night's child took sick, didn't you, Pierre? Oui. I saw him with the girl, Marie. With the daughter of the storekeeper, I am sure. He was with Marie? <laughs> yes, you sure enough for losing her. Shut up. <laughs> you saw the stranger, Pierre. There. What I told you. Uh, Gosh, she's right. Uh, maybe we ought to ask Marie. Oh, she's a child. What does she know about these things? Yeah, but seeing as how you and her was... You shut your face. Marie's nothing to me. It's a stranger we got to think of. Uh, Gus is right. It's a stranger. He killed my baby. Come, we'll get the others. Like I used to. Getting dark out. It's me, Brother Coxie. Ain't you gonna ask me in? Yeah, come in. Ah. Hey, nice cozy place you got here. Thank you. Got any liquor? I reckon not. Yeah, lucky thing I brought me some. <laughs> uh, wanna pull? No, thank you. Excuse me then. Come to talk to you, Zeb. What about? There's trouble, boy. Bad trouble. Been brewing a long time. Why are you telling me? Brother Cox is your friend. Uh, come to warn you, boy. I don't need no warning. Then you heard? I heard. Uh, what you gonna do? I ain't gonna do nothing. Uh, boy, this ain't no ordinary trouble. Uh, the crops is bad. Ain't been no rain. Folks is scared. This is my land and I aim to stay on it. Ah, he that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it. That's from the Bible, boy, Old Testament Proverbs. I don't care what the Bible says. This is my cabin. Zeb, they don't want your cabin. Then what do they want? Son, you listen to Brother Coxie. I come here 47 years ago. I come to do good and preach the word of the Lord. I come with nothing but the shirt on my back and the good book in my hand. Oh, I can't read no book, Brother Coxie. Yeah, there's good people here, but they got their ways. They got their notions. He said, you ever hear of the Foo Foley? Never did. There ain't nothing but swamp gas. Little pockets of gas that explodes in the swamps. Strike a match and you'll see them. The folks down here figure there's evil spirits. 
When they see him, they just naturally got to start running. I guess I've seen them. It's the same way with the spirits, ghosts, zombies. I never seen them. Folks in the bios have. What's that got to do with me? You, uh, you ever hear tell of a Lou No. That's a spirit that can change itself into an animal. What kind of animal? Oh, any kind it feels like. Horse, dog, cow, anything. Is there such a thing? Folks here say there is. Lou kills people. Hope I don't ever see one. Yeah, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But you got to believe in him first. I don't know. Eh, uh, Zeb, suppose you was one of them. Me? Yeah, just suppose. What you saying, anyway? You got to leave here, Zeb. Oh, you talk crazy, brother Carson. You drunk? Yeah, maybe. You better get. Zeb, folks are saying you're a loo Brother Coxie, you better get... No, 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 Zeb, listen to me. I ain't much for books, if that's where you learn these things. I come here for land of my own. I got it now, and I ain't giving it up for crazy talk. Son, this ain't crazy. They're coming to get you. Get. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. That's book talk again. Matthew 7. Get. Just this once, Zeb. Just this once, you listen to me. You're in terrible trouble. I can take care of myself. I ain't moving off my land. Now you get. We'll return to romance in just a moment. Later today on CBS Radio, go behind the scenes of a great city hospital for the story of beautiful Liz Carroll. She's there as a patient for minor surgery, but her troubles go far deeper. Liz is successful, but comes from the wrong side of the tracks. A wealthy contractor and millionaire sportsman have both been linked with her name in the gossip columns. For the story of Liz Carroll's recovery, under a special therapy prescribed just for her, join us on most of these same stations later today when it's time for City Hospital. And now, for the second act of Romance. Just closing the store. Never mind, store. Come now. Where? The orange packing shed. Big meeting tonight. The whole village, you must come. Why? The stranger has killed Pierre's baby. We must save the village. Go without me, Taco. It is for you to decide right now. Papa. Papa, what is it? What did Taco say? It is not for you. Is it about Zeb? Yes. The village is against him? Oui. What has he done to them? I do not know. Tell me. They say he has killed Pierre's baby. Papa. I don't believe he did that. Papa, you will help him. I am only one voice. Papa. Yes. Do you believe Zeb is evil? I don't know. He is not, I swear it. You love Zeb. Oui, I love him. Then I trust what you say. Stop them. You must stop them. Very well. I will go. 
There is danger here, Marie. You stay inside and lock the doors and windows. No, I'm going to think. Marie, no, no. You must not go there, Marie. Marie, come back. Why are we waste time with this talk? My baby lies dead. There must be justice. Kill the Lucaro. That means justice. Stop, stop. Let's hear all the evidence. Anybody else want to talk? I wish to speak, Mr. Gus. Mr. Legrand. Go ahead, speak, I have lived in the bayous many years. This is my home. I have seen what I can't explain. The strange little lights in the swamps. The animals who disappear without trace. The men who suddenly die without reason. These things I can't explain. And I have seen the stranger who calls himself Zeb. I say to myself... Is this man evil? Or do I fear this man because he is a stranger? And the answer is yes. Are you talking about the is yes. I fear this man because I do not know him. And that is the only reason. All right. All right. We heard, Mr. Legrand. Yes, baby, is dead. That we know. Yeah. All right. We know what we have to do. We tie the Lugaroo to the stake. Yeah. And let the mosquitoes and the tacnos be the executioners. Yeah. Oh, no. Let the virus bring justice for the Lugaroo. Yeah. Thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth this color in the cup, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. <laughs> Proverb 23. You're drunk, Brother Coxie. Drunker than an alligator in an oyster bed. You better leave. Drunker than a drumfish in a shrimp nest. You better go home. Yeah. Ain't you never going to get some sense, boy? Home is where the bottle is. The bottle's empty. Uh, so it is, so it is. Forty-seven years in the bayous and the bottle is always empty. You try, son, you try your almightiest and they just don't listen. And you try and you pray that the wrath of Jehovah will show them. And they just don't listen. Well, well, us here. Your company is here, They can come. You open that door, boy, and you sign your death warrant. I can take care of myself. Steve! Steve! Marie! What you doing here? Say we must go at once. I'm staying here. Say they are coming to kill you. Now I got a gun. The whole village, Say. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. You shut up! Say there is little time, Gus, is bringing the whole village to kill you. 
They say you are Lugaroo. I don't know no Lugaroo. You better get and take Brother Coxie with you. No, no, I will not leave without you. Maybe I'm what they say I am. You're not Zeb. It is Gus. He is made in this way. He is jealous of you. Then I'll settle it with Gus. Brother Coxie, help me. Love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. I beg you. I plead with you. Leave before you are killed. Leave for my sake. For, for your sake? For me, Zeb. For Marie. Zeb. <laughs> Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Timothy three. Ah, empty. All right, I'll go. Quick, into the swamps. They will not see us in the dark. If the blind leads the blind, both fall into the ditch. Matthew 14. I'll come over here. This way. You follow me. I know the swamps. I'm coming with you. We'll wait for brother. No, we cannot wait. Then. Brother Coxie. Where thou goest, I will go. Yeah, but I think I'll nap you a little first. Dave, we cannot wait. Come on, men. I hope you did. It's no use. Dave, please, for me. Maybe they're right. They are not right, Dave. Please, we are gaining. Maybe I ought to give up. They cannot find us in this swamp, Dave. Hurry, Marie! Oh, without me. You, you cut your leg. Without me, David, it's your life. Oh, it's no use running. Dave, if you have a match. A match? What for? Quick, give it to me. The guest pockets will be light there. It is our only chance. Yeah. Oh. They are gone. I see it. Both of you. You think you're smart. You make a big fool out of Gus, huh, Marie? You make love to this stranger behind my back. You think I don't know? Well, Gus knows. Now I'll come and get you. Both of you. Let him come. You don't make a fool of Gus. Maybe as a knight. I get Lugaroo. No. Don't you wait. No Lugaroo. No Lugaroo. No He, he, he's dead. 
I killed him. Are you hurt? We are all right, but Gus. Gus, he's dead. I killed him. Gus came with a knife. It's hard to kill them. I know. The others, will they come back looking for us? No. They fear the evil swamp spirit. Papa, can we go back now? Yes. The village will soon understand. Gus was the evil spirit. The Lugaru is dead. Romance is produced and directed by William Frug. The Lou was written by Mr. Frug. Featured in the cast were Sam Edwards, Lillian Baeff, Barney Phillips, Herb Butterfield, Joseph Kearns, Parley Bear, Jack Edwards, and Jack Crucian. Music is supervised by Jerry Goldsmith. This is Dan Coverley inviting you to hear Romance transcribed next week at this same time. Law and order needed a helping hand in the early days of Dodge City. And a helping hand was just what Marshal Matt Dillon had to offer. His hand was particularly helpful, too, since it enjoyed one of the quickest trigger fingers ever to find its way to a gun. For some really wild, really western thrills, hear what happens when the Marshal's good friend Doc gets into a tight situation and needs some help to get out of it. It's yours right now, For Gunsmoke follows immediately on most of these same stations.